It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. He's talking politics and comedy too. He'll tell a dirty joke if you want him to. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a union man with an Emmy for writing. Someday he's mad and he feels like fighting. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show To get your ears on right, buckle in real tight He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way turn the the sound on that always helps my name is david feldman welcome to the david feldman show friend me on facebook follow yours truly on twitter and sign up for my newsletter go to davidfeldmanshow.com and hit the uh, newsletter button and once a week you'll get a reading list all the stuff that you should be looking at all the stuff we talk about on our show two days ago Joe Biden became president. 4,409 Americans died yesterday from COVID. We had 186,000 new cases of it. And the new president has introduced a $1.9 trillion stimulus bill that many say isn't enough. Joining us from Washington, D.C. is the Reverend Barry W. Lynn, for nearly a quarter of a century. He ran Americans United for Separation of Church and State. Besides being an attorney, he is also an ordained minister in the United Church of Christ. It seems to me, the Reverend Barry W. Lynn, that once you get past all the pomp and circumstance, not too much to be optimistic about. It was an extraordinary day, yes, to uh, to see the inauguration, uh, because I do think that the pomp and circumstance done right actually does matter. It helps to set a tone and takes the people who are not terribly interested in the political ins and outs a chance to say, do I feel better about my country? And I do think that Biden's speech was literally the best 
inaugural address I've heard. The first one I heard was John Kennedy's, at least that's the first one I can remember. And I was always troubled by that because the iconic line, ask not what you can do for your country, but what your country, and that's not what you can, your country can do for you, but ask what you can do for your country. This was written and delivered in 2000, and uh, I mean, excuse me, 1961. I'm having a little uh, fog here. Um, I always thought it was a stupid line because 25% of the people in this country were in poverty. Michael Harrington was working at that time on writing his brilliant book, The Other America, which basically said one quarter of America in rural parts of this country, in inner cities, are in poverty. I would like to think those 25% of the people would have said to Jack Kennedy, an interesting sentiment, but what the hell have you done, your country done for me lately? And the answer would have been nothing. I think uh, Senator Ed Markey answered you the, uh, last year when he ran against one of the Kennedys and he flipped that bromide and said, it's about time you asked what your country did for you. Exactly. That speech that Kennedy gave in 61 was his putting the gauntlet down to Khrushchev. He was challenging the Soviet Union. That speech was not addressed to the American people. It was addressed to the world that America is going to take on communism. That was that was the message of that speech. It was get ready, folks. We're we're going to war somewhere, someplace, somehow. Of course. And of course, the books about Kennedy, including the best and the brightest, argued that if Kennedy had not been shot, <clears throat> excuse me, um, he would have repudiated involvement in Vietnam, but he probably got involved in Vietnam as a way to show how tough he was. This was, of course, as some people remember, right after Khrushchev went to the United Nations and banged his shoe in defiance of uh, any kind of uh, accommodation. And I think Kennedy just said, no, I'm tough. And that's what sucked him into Vietnam. Yeah. Didn't he kill the DM? Did he kill? Didn't he order the assassination of DM in Vietnam? I mean, this was not a uh, peace loving dove, Jack Kennedy. So, yeah, I guess the pomp and circumstance is important. The question is, does before my country, before I love mm -hmm. my country, I'm going to ask, does my country love me? And uh, I know that we're we have about, I don't know, nine months before Biden is in serious problems. And if he doesn't deliver big to the American people, the Democrats are going to lose the Senate and the House and something far worse than Trump is going to come along or Trump will come back mm. and he will have learned from his mistakes. And by mistakes, no. uh, getting caught, he will surround exactly. himself with thuggier, thug, thuggier thugs. He, yeah, he's got to go big, Biden, and, and he's not going big. He's still what they call bipartisan curious. And... <laughs> Yeah, well, come on, give me a break. The guy's issued 27 executive orders in the last 
36 hours. And they're not little things. These are big deals. But what? Stop the Keystone pipeline. That's a big deal. Pisses off people in Canada, or at least the leadership in Canada. He's He said, we're going to find the kids that have been stolen from their parents who have been missing. The ACLU has been trying to find them, getting no, nothing but pushback in the Trump years. But now he wants them found. These are These are important things. When you talk about what he's done in 36 hours and compare it to almost any other president who, for good or ill, look at what they did in 36 hours, there's nothing like what Biden's been able to do. But the biggest problem comes, what will he do next? How can those of us to the left of Biden push him to do more, to be bolder? He did say in the inaugural address that um, it's time for boldness. And I think we need to push him in that direction. But here's the problem. He doesn't have control of the Senate. He has well, he does have control of the Senate. Now, they've they've given it up. They've decided to have a co-rule. But we we have we, we've uh, we the Democrats yeah. have the majority with Kamala. We don't have to consult Mitch McConnell. But no, but Schumer have. rather would rather have an excuse, and so we're gonna it's gonna be a joint leadership here. Well, look, I think here's what at a minimum what they ought to do is what they did in the last time there was a split uh, 50-50 Senate. Let it, give them the same number of people, but make sure that if there's a tie in any committee, it immediately moves to the floor anyway. That's the way that, uh, that Tom Dash and the Trent Lott worked it right, out. Right. And then they got us in, and then they signed the war authorization and got us into the Iraq war. That's what that joint rule did. Yeah, I mean, McConnell wouldn't extend the same courtesy to Schumer. Why won't the Democrats rule? And from what I've been hearing is that the Democrats were totally unprepared to win in Georgia, that they have no legislative plan, that they automatically assumed that McConnell was going to be the majority leader, that Chuck Schumer didn't anticipate becoming the majority leader. They don't know how they're going to pass this one point nine trillion dollar stimulus package. They don't know how they're going to uh, give citizenship to 11 million dreamers. So when it comes to executive orders, I'd be curious to hear about them. But I think from what I've heard, Mm. Biden and Schumer, legislatively speaking, were caught with their pants down. They didn't expect to win in Georgia or some would suggest they were hoping they weren't going to win in Georgia so they wouldn't have to deliver on anything. (laughs) Yeah, well, I, I have not heard that. I don't believe that's true. With all due respect, I don't believe that's true. But but it's more complicated. You have to organize right now. The Republicans are, in fact, in control of the Senate because they're in control of all the Senate committees. In order to make sure that they can move at all, you have to pass uh, a resolution that establishes the rules for these committees. How many Democrats? How many Republicans? What are the rules? And McConnell has, within the last 24 hours, said he won't, he'll filibuster that proposal unless it contains a guarantee that the Democrats won't try to eliminate the filibuster. That's a a non-starter. You cannot do that. Because there's nothing, there's no possibility of moving anything forward 
unless you can get rid of the filibuster. And then you have people like Joe Manchin or on some other issues that Senator uh, from Colorado uh, uh, who ran for president who's so memorable I can't even remember his name. But they, they are opposed to some of the big things that matter. If you are a real Democrat, the one thing you want to do, and this, you, you want to get two senators here in the District of Columbia, because those are going to be Democrats forever. You need to get those people. The Manchin says he's a Democrat, so I, I, I can't approve that. We'll, we'll never have statehood for the District of Columbia. And other Democrats have said, too, for all kinds of wacky reasons, we're not going to give two senators there. And these are not necessarily racist, but, you know, you have to kind of wonder, since it's impossible that there wouldn't be two African-American senators here in the District of Columbia, that they just don't care enough and they don't want to give up for some inexplicable reason the right to get two more votes essential absolutely essential to getting anything done but you can't you've got to have a deal you have to make sure that they can't eliminate the possibility of doing away with the filibuster there are not 50 votes even with kamala harris to do away with the how how what, what is budget reconciliation and how can that be used to outsmart yeah, the Republicans. Um, we, that's how we got Obamacare, didn't we? Yeah, it's it's. I I don't think that I can explain it simply. I'm not sure I ever fully understood it. Well, if it's it a spending a bill, problem. if it's a spending it's bill, spending it's, bill, it's filibuster proof. You only need a simple majority is. for it to pass in the Correct. Senate. But whether they would be willing to do that or able to do that, I don't know. You see, they the Republicans know everything about procedure. They know it so much better. And for a long time, I was against changing the filibuster rules. I was against them being changed when Harry Reid did it. And, of course, more, uh, more opposed to it when Mitch McConnell tried and succeeded in doing it away with the filibustering of, of Supreme Court justices, which you know, led us to these three clowns we have, thanks to Donald Trump. But, but it, the filibuster, in my experience, was used for things that were good, like prevent abrogations of free speech, uh, prevent serious intrusions into the separation of church and state, prevent militarism. Those were the things when there were people who understood how to do this, who were deep peaceniks or strong First Amendment advocates, they managed to do the right thing by using the filibuster. And, and that so clouded my view that when people said, let's get rid of it, all I could think of was the times that I was intimately involved working with senators to make filibusters happen to help people, not to hurt them. But now it's, as we've seen in the last uh, six years, uh, it's nothing but hurtful. It it doesn't do anybody any good no. whatsoever. Especially since the the Democrats control the House, and by popular vote, by popular vote, something like forty mil, something like forty million more Americans voted for a Democratic senator than a Republican. But yet, because of the system, it's tied in the Senate. So. Yeah. 
when you look at what the American people want, they want health care. They want free health care. Yes. They, they want to ban dark money. They, they want voting rights expanded. They want to cut the defense budget. They want gun control. But the system is completely detached from what the American people want. And this kind of hopelessness that, that I sense, and I know you say that he signed a lot of executive orders, but that's not a democracy. That's ruled by fiat. The, the, the system doesn't work. And we have a, we have a political problem. We have a, a political problem when when we say democracy was spared. We're not living in a democracy. We're not getting what we want from Washington D.C. Well, that you're not going to get an argument from me about that. Of course, we're not getting what we want, and of course, the system doesn't work. And as I've said, it feels pretty hopeless. It does, because I, I, I think what happened two weeks ago, was it two weeks ago when they when they stormed the Capitol? Yeah, a little less than that. No, I think it was two weeks ago. And now we're going to impeach Donald Trump, which we should. And he should be banned from mm -hmm. ever running for office again. But it's going to seem irrelevant He's no longer president. And for the Democrats to, to turn around and go back to prosecuting Trump because they can't do anything else seems hopeless. Even though Trump should be locked up, hate the guy. Yep. But that's that's going to the, the optics look really bad. Huh. Well, how about this deal? Would you cut this deal? Let's say you're Mitch McConnell and I'm Schumer and I come up to you and I say, listen, you are about to have a trial in the Senate, but I will tell you, I will suggest strongly to Democratic colleagues that they not vote to convict Donald Trump. But here's the deal. You have to make sure that we can organize this in a way that gives us equal representation, Democrats and Republicans on every committee. But if there is a tie, it goes to the floor of the Senate. Would you cut that deal? Okay. Mitch McConnell, would you cut that deal? Let's go through these 17 executive orders. No, but would you cut that deal? McConnell's not cutting any deals with anybody. Think of it this way. Then we'll go to the 17 executive orders. But... You preserve the possibility then that there will be no Republican incumbent senators who are hurt by this so-called trial, because even the Democrats won't vote to convict them. So those 17 people that are being looked for in the Republican Party to, to support conviction, you don't have to look for them anymore. They can vote any way they want and get away with it. Okay. Let's go to the 17 All right. executive orders, which are important. You're right. You know, uh, some of them are important. When it comes to COVID, he initiated a, a national mask mandate. If you're on federal land, you yeah. have to wear a mask. Let's see how that's enforced and let's see if, if it's held up in court. 
I do think if everybody wore a mask, we wouldn't have to be putting 100 million shots into people's arms. Right. I think the mask works better than a vaccine. He has uh, brought back the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, DACA. So, again, we're playing with the hearts of about, what, 11 million Americans who now think they have a pathway to citizenship. Yep. And he's promised to introduce an immigration bill that will create a pathway to citizenship for about 11 million Good luck getting that passed. Uh, we're back in the Paris Climate Accords. Right. That's good. That's good. We're back with the World Health Organization. Uh-huh. That's, That's good. He's uh, not going to have any a Muslim ban anymore. Right. That's good. Evictions have been postponed. Uh, student debt has not been canceled. He had talked about canceling student no. debt, but he's postponing payments on uh on student debt so yeah uh but there's other things that he hasn't promised you know he promised a public option Mm. that was in that was actually in the platform the democratic platform called for a public option his health care bill has been written by the health insurance companies the same way obamacare was written this 1.9 trillion dollar stimulus bill is a love letter to the health insurance companies if you're broke if you're broke if you've lost your job if you're on cobra the government instead of giving you money or instead of giving you health care will give money to etna and anthem to to give you health insurance with enormous deductibles well, what do you see? What do you expect? First of all, he couldn't have added a a public option by executive orders. So no, no, but he could have gone big and bold and introduced. Yeah, well, we'll 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 see what happens. But you can't even get to the fifty people necessary to get these proposals on the floor of the Senate unless you do some kind of legitimate dealing with Mitch McConnell now, you, you can't, you, it's, it's kind of like the Supreme Court, as I've said repeatedly on this show, you can't get anything approved by a Supreme Court with its current makeup. And now that Justice Breyer will be able finally to retire and be replaced by someone probably at least as quasi-progressive as Breyer is, you, you still can't get anything done that requires being able to defend it in a case before the Supreme Court. This Supreme Court wouldn't go for any variation of Medicare for all. It wouldn't. New, Green New Deal, it would say, forget it. We're mm-hmm. not doing that. And so, so yeah. when they storm when they storm the Capitol. David, you have the Supreme Court and for the moment still the Senate that are implacable enemies to anything that people like you and I want to accomplish. And this is why people storm the Capitol. You know, today I was having Internet problems and I was on the phone with Spectrum, Mm. which does my Internet. And there have been outages all over Manhattan. But if you call Spectrum, they'll say there are no outages. Everything's fine. And then they 
you spend an hour rebooting your modem. Yep. And then they go, oh, you know what? There, there, there have been outages. <laughs> and then I say, well, you know, I just spent three hours trying to get my cable. Why don't you make it worth my while? Oh, we can't do that. Why not? Well, I don't have the authority to do that. And I, my mind went right to the insurrection because the way you're speaking and when I'm being the adult in the room, <laughs> I talk just like the douchebags from Spectrum Cable explaining why I can't give you a refund. I hear you. Mm-hmm. I, I, I know that your Internet sucks and we're responsible for that. But there's a chain of command here. And the best I can do is give you reimburse you for one day of lost cable service, because that's just how the system works. Yeah. And then and then when they storm the Capitol, the problem is you have schmucks storming the Capitol who don't know why they, they can't even explain to you why they're right. storming. It's for Donald Trump. Right. The, the, the wrong people stormed that Capitol that, that day. Well, they're not. These are not the brightest bulbs in the pack, as we all know. Well, what what but do we what have do to do? do? Here's my problem. Um, there were times when I had the, exactly the kind of anger that was being expressed by those creeps two years two weeks ago. But but you you, you have to go. There's got to be another way because there isn't the support. There is the support, as you pointed out. More people voted for Democratic senators than Republican ones. But you can't. I'd love to abolish the Senate. There is absolutely no reason to have a United States Senate in 21st century America. None. But we're not going to be able to do it. We can't even necessarily do away with the filibuster, which isn't even in the Constitution. It's a terrible idea. It's used entirely for bad purposes over the last 15 years. It should be done away with. But where do you go short of storming the Senate and demanding that they do the things we want them to do? Where do you go? You have to change the system as it is. Push them incrementally or not so incrementally. Push them boldly to do things that the left wants. Yeah, I think the problem, and you pointed it out, is that the Republicans, since 1976, since Carter took office and probably before, learned how to manipulate the levers of power and parliamentary procedure and play tough from Washington, D.C. down to the state houses and the Democrats. The the problem, uh, the problem is the Democrats are frauds. They really don't want anything. So they're 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 pushovers. They don't believe in anything. So they're easy to outmaneuver. Schumer doesn't know what he wants. He's afraid to pass any legislation. So he wouldn't speak to the parliamentarian and ask, hey, how do we outsmart Mitch McConnell here? But if you're if you're ruling through minority rule the way the Republicans are, you damn well better learn parliamentary procedure. Yeah. And they're shameless. They get whatever they want. I mean, maybe maybe if Biden gets 100 million shots, 
which yeah. I don't know if he can, if we see that kind of competence, if by Christmas this pandemic is for all intents and purposes over, right. we'll see competence and, and, and the Democrats can run on competence. Yes, they can. David, he's inherited nothing, as we, we learned yesterday. He is absolutely... Uh, Trump has done nothing. All of the clowns on the uh, task force, the COVID task force, were all, uh, with the exception of Dr. Fauci, all cowards, and most of them are now gone. And uh, But there's no plan for the distribution of the vaccine. That we not, we thought it was sketchy. We couldn't figure out why people had to wait in, in lines for three hours to get their appointment vaccine shot number one. But now we learn that they just don't have anything. There is no binder of this is how we plan to distribute the vaccine because the Trump people had no plan. But you're right. If you do get 100 million doses and maybe when the third pharmaceutical company comes out with it's easier to administer one dose vaccine in a month or so, it might be possible to literally get hundreds of thousands of people inoculated before, you know, the end of uh, the year so that we can go and have Halloween parties and get drunk and, and catch a new disease and, and catch a what and catch a new disease. The, the vaccine is a metaphor for what's wrong with our country, because something like 35 million doses have already been manufactured by Moderna and Pfizer, and they've been distributed Half of them are still sitting on the shelf. How do, you, how do you ask Americans to obey the law? How do you ask Americans to wait patiently in line for your vaccine? Don't jump ahead of the line. If you're under the age of 65, wait your turn. If you're perfectly healthy, wait your turn. Why wouldn't you then decide it's, it's every, every man for himself in America? There, there are half the doses are just sitting there. If you know a guy who can get you the shot, take it because it's just going to go to waste. That is a metaphor for bad governing and how bad governing instills more and more bad behavior among the citizenry. The way we're administering this vaccine is identical to the IRS. There's no justice with the IRS. You're more likely to get audited if you're poor than if you're rich. Correct. So why should people obey the laws when if you break enough of them, they can't convict you because you're obviously too powerful or where do we even start? But if your taillight is out and you're black, you get shot in the back. Yeah. So. These the inability to distribute the vaccine right now, right, is a metaphor for everything that's wrong with this country. So maybe governance, good governance, maybe Biden can restore good governance. And with good governance is a modicum of justice. Yeah, that step. that that maybe spreads throughout the country, because right now there's no justice. There's absolutely no justice in this country. 
That so is true. May, maybe, true. maybe impeaching Trump, removing him from office, maybe it's one of the first steps towards justice in this country, and it'll spread like wildfire and will change. I doubt it. I doubt it. Well, but, that's why. Yeah, I don't think under any circumstances there are 17 Republicans or 18 since Manchin's already said he wouldn't vote to convict, um, there aren't 18 Republicans that they're ever going to get to do the right thing about conviction. And you're right, the optics will look terrible. They will probably be able to get uh, Alan Dershowitz in to defend the president using an argument that is really bogus, that say he couldn't have incited that riot in the Capitol because look at what he said it's it's not a call for imminent lawlessness and quote some Supreme Court language as if Supreme Court justice, uh, jurisdictional matters or any other policy matters made any difference in a trial in the Senate. It does not. But but he will talk about it. He will talk about the clear and present danger test. He will talk about the Brandenburg test and he will give enough Republicans and maybe one or two more Democrats a justification for saying, you know, we he's, a, he's such a terrible president. He's gone out and we can't convict him because he just didn't meet the standards of inciting imminent lawlessness. And, and he'll get away with it. The Reverend Barry W. Lynn. Follow him at Twitter at Barry W. Lynn. Go to Barry W. Is that the name of your yes, website? And it. are you going to be at office hours? Um, I, I don't think I can okay. be at office hours this week. All right. But, you were great last week. Thank well, you. Well, that was fun. I had a lot of fun doing that. I like uh, having you on earlier, by the way. Sometimes it gets a little too uh, crowded here and I don't get to. We, we should yeah. go. We should go longer and earlier. Well, I think we can probably arrange that. Thank you. I would like I do. I do have some people I would like to introduce to your audience and at office hours to do perhaps an interview please with, uh, some of the people that i think would get a would be an addition to your uh, world here thank you thank so, you reverend stay out of tr- stay out of trouble only good trouble it's time right now for the David Feldman Show. He's talking politics and comedy too. He'll tell a dirty joke if you want him to. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a union man with an Emmy for writing. Someday he's mad and he feels like fighting. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show To get your ears on right, buckle in real tight He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way
Somebody's learning After Effects. Welcome back to the David Feldman Show. Sign up for my newsletter. It's sent out once a week, and it's pretty much a reading list of everything that we discussed on this show. Well, Professor Asha Kumar is back. Yay. And it's time for Henry Huckamaki's Marxist Power Hour. Special guests, Grace Jackson and Professor Kumar. Hello, Henry. Hello, David. Yeah, as you mentioned, uh, I'm, I'm bringing Grace on to co-host this segment with me. Uh, and Grace, you can reintroduce our guests to the audience, even though he's been on a couple of times in case this is uh, the first time that the audience has heard him. Sure. Yeah. So he was on last week um, for a very uh, enjoyable and kind of chaotic segment that ended with an update on the Indian farmers protests. Um, and so, yeah, let's introduce him again. He is Dr. Ashok Kumar. He's a lecturer in international political economy at Birkbeck College at the University of London. He's also the author of the book, Monopsony Capitalism, Power and Production in the Twilight of the Sweatshop Age, which is published by Cambridge University Press. Yeah. So, thanks, guys. Nice to have you, Professor Kumar. Thanks for having me again. Sure. So our, our topic for the episode today, and by the way, listeners, we're going to reserve the last 10 or 15 minutes for listener questions. So if anything comes up that you want cleared up, uh, just keep those questions in mind for the end. The, the overriding topic today is going to be primitive accumulation, which is a very important uh, topic or, or theoretical concept within Marxism, but something that a lot of people don't know, although they will get it once they hear it. And I'm sure Dr. Kumar will do an excellent job of making sure that everybody's going to understand it. But before we get into that topic, I just listened back to our conversation that we had last week uh, with Dr. Kumar. And I, I realized that there was a term that uh, Dr. Kumar used several times and I've used in the past, and I don't think that we've ever defined it before. So I think that it's worth doing just in case people are unaware of it, because inevitably it's going to continue to come up, which is the reserve army of labor. Dr. Kumar, can you uh, let the listeners know what the reserve army of labor is? Because both of us have referenced it, and I don't think that we've ever defined it. Um, so reserve army of labor is the uh, is a Marxist term um, for... Another way of describing it is the reserve army of the unemployed, which... Marx uses in variations and also like Keynes uses, but also um, I believe Keynes uses it, but lots of sort of post Marx, post Keynesians use it, but also um, it's a way of looking at it. Another way of looking at it, another way it's been described as surplus populations. It's basically the population that either could be employed by capitalists or people who, um, so it's not directly just unemployed people. It's also people that 
potentially could be exploited. But basically, it's a, it's a population that's used against, say, people who are in full-time employment or stable employment or people who are even employed as a mechanism to increase the rate of exploitation. So imagine, you know, David is a capitalist and we're all workers and there's potentially... 500 workers who are seeking three jobs that David is, you know, David has, and he's the only capitalist in this, in this universe that we've constructed. And there's potentially 500 people that are willing and able and need to sell their labor power, wage labor, become workers. So that'll be connected to the conversation we have today. That means that that pressure, that's the reserve army of labor means that we're willing to do it for even less, you know? Whereas if there's just two people who are willing to sell their labor power, that's a small reserve army of labor. It means that that gives us greater, as workers, greater bargaining power. So that's why it's important for many reasons, but that's one of the key key reasons why it's important to both the bargaining power of workers, but also the rate of exploitation for capitalists, the employer. Excellent. So now into primitive accumulation, which is something that unless the listeners have studied Marx or Marxism or even Adam Smith uh, in the past, they, they might not have heard of it. So let's go back to the very foundation of this theory, which is more or less Adam Smith. What did Adam Smith have to say about primitive accumulation? What was his concept of primitive accumulation? Well, the Smithian concept is quite descriptive. I mean, I think it's uh, a more helpful, uh, it's the, technically uh, Smith, uh, well, Harvey's, uh, Technically, Marx, when he's describing it quite later, when Marx is describing it, he calls it the so-called primitive accumulation because he's obviously trying to... Uh, but there's quite a bit of distance between what Marx is describing and what Smith's describing. Smith is describing it as a kind of natural process of what you have, early accumulation. Okay, let's just try and define what it is first. Yeah, that, that might help. Into, you know. So primitive accumulation, or it's easier to describe it as kind of original accumulation, is the accumulation that you that is necessary in order to uh, have capitalism. So that gets to the question of what is capitalism. And I think people think of it as kind of intuitively, that's the system we're under. It's a system of, of cap that involves capitalists, but also invo involves uh, uh, maybe exploitation. But it's also important, it's, in order to understand what capitalism is, we have to understand what capitalism isn't. And so capitalism, so for example, the, the system that we had prior to capitalism, um, in different places it was different things, but in most places it was a form of feudalism or semi-feudalism. Um, and that meant that, you know, you had a lord and you had, you know, peasants who were either uh, had a plot of land, like in much of Europe, or were mostly tenants, like what it was in England, for example. And that system was a system in which you, um, uh, let's say you're a peasant and you have three plots of land. Uh, yeah, there's four plots of land that you're working, you're tilling that land. And uh, the deal was that you get to live on one piece of land and you, uh, one, one fourth of it, and then anything that you accumulate like you know, food that you grow on that piece of land, uh, you can consume and your children won't starve as a consequence of that. But in order to live there, you have to work on all four pieces of land and that the three other bits would go to the, you know, go to the, the feudal Lord who would then consume it and live a decadent, decadent, decadent life. Um, but it wouldn't necessarily reinvest that, right? It was, it was about consumption practices. It's, that's where it's different from capitalism. But anyways, under capitalism, it's a different mode of production, as Marx calls it. So Marx has, you know, maybe the hunter-gatherer mode of production and then the slave mode of production. And obviously there's, these aren't, it's not a stage like this, but there's lots of overlap. And then you have a feudal mode of production and then you have a capitalist mode of production. So 
in order to develop into the capitalist mode of production, you need this form of primitive accumulation. So you can't just have, you don't just, you don't just create capitalists, right? You know, capitalists just don't just emerge, you know, in order to have capitalism, you need to have, um, uh, you know, um, you need to have someone who's written a lot really well on this is, um, uh, someone like E.M. Wood, um, was a Marxist who died about five years ago or, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, she, when she's de- what she's describing is basically in order to, you know, they go back to uh, why, for example, England was the place where capitalism begins. Um, and it's because, you know, between f- uh, 1500 and 1700, uh, you had the most productive agriculture in England in the world and in the history of the world. And that was because of particular forms of tenant property relations. And this is what E.M. Wood argues. And this is obviously very contested. And this is what, um, uh, you know, uh, Robert Brenner argues in Merchant Revolution, and it's called the Brenner thesis. It's one thesis, it's an important thesis, but basically it's an important way of understanding what primitive accumulation is. So basically between 1500 and 1700, you had the most productive agriculture in the world. Why is that so important? There's a series of reasons why that is. It's because Brenner argues that it's the particularities of the tenant property relations under feudalism in England that makes it much more of a, of a productive form of accumulation rather than property relations in in Europe, which was based on people having an old, their own plot of land and not necessarily being a, a marketized, marketized peasant, for, for example, or, but anyways, that let's say, put that to one side between 1500 and 1700, the most productive uh, um, agriculture in the world, in the history of the world. And why is that important? So if, if people are subsisting, you know, if 99% of the population is subsisting, they're producing basically just enough to subsist and live off, you know, and survive and just enough above that so that they can give, you know, so that it can be extracted by a landlord or used for other purposes. What that means is that um, you can't produce uh, enough wage laborers. What is a wage laborer? A wage laborer isn't someone who's working the land and subsisting off that land. A wage laborer, in order to create capitalism, you have to create enough surpluses for those to so that capital so work, workers can live and work for capitalists and then go to a grocery store and exchange the money they got working for a capitalist for the surpluses that were produced. Right. So if you have a society that's hundred percent subsistence, there's no way you can have capitalism, right? That's part of primitive accumulation, right? So when you have this very efficient form of production, agricultural production, what that leads to is, uh, you know, you, you uh, basically a, a form of surplus population. And what Marx is describing with primitive accumulation is the violent dispossession. So you're dispossessing, forcing people off their means of subsistence, which is, you know, growing food into wage labor, into cities to, to basically work for capitalists and sell their labor power. So you're, you know, peasants don't sell their labor power. Workers have to sell their labor powers for a wage. And that wage is the only mechanism that they can subsist, that they can sell that and they can trade that, or, you know, that currency for food and, and rent and what, what, what have you. So that's a form of primitive accumulation, and that's what he's describing in England. And the way that happens is you had forms of common land and you had forms of peasants living that uh, were uh, non-valorized. There were ways that people, you know, people, you had a form of a, a kind of motor production in which people were living um, off the land, but also like obviously paying tribute to the, to the, to the feudal lord. In order to get them off that land, there was a series of laws, enclosure acts, which forced people off the land 
into cities to be accumulated. And you have to create enough, you have to create surpluses of labor. That's where the reserve army of labor comes in. If you had, if you need a hundred employees, you don't push hundred peasants off the land violently to become sell their labor power. You have to pull 150 because you need to give uneven asymmetrical power to the employer. Right. Um, in other places it happened in different kinds of ways. So in, in China, for example, you had much more in the development of capitalism, much more um, coercive forms of, of dispossession in India, you had more, sort of hegemonic ways. So for example, they would, you know, they would, um, they had the green revolution. They had other mechanisms in which basically between, you know, 1989 and 2009, a 20 year period, the population from rural to urban went from 90% to 65% or 67%. That's humongous. Now does that happen? You do that through the mechanism of the market. Um, just like you did it through the mechanism of laws in England, or you do it through forcible relocation like you did, like you did in China. So primitive accumulation is, is central to the development uh, and emergence of capitalism. So can I, can I jump go, in? Go right yep, go right ahead. We just kind of breezed past um, the clearances and the, the enclosures of common lands, which was a kind of precondition for primitive accumulation. Um, and I was just wondering. Or it is primitive accumulation, yeah. It is primitive accumulation. Can we just pause on that for a second and explain a little bit more about that process? Um, you know, when it roughly began in, in England and why it happened? Um, so, this is a process in which. Uh, for example, there's a number of people that have written a lot about this. For example, E.P. Thompson has written about this. And um, uh, I mean, others uh, have written quite a bit about it. But uh, basically, you had laws that were passed in the 1700s and the 1600s. I think, yeah, 1600s, 1700s, around that period, um, in which you... Um, uh, in which, like, for example, common law land started becoming privatized. We had period places in which there was land that was not owned by anyone that was unproductive, or, you know, they had laws in which, um, you know, huge tracts of land that were owned by lords, people could, if they were hunting an animal, they could go on the, that, that could, could go on that land. Um, and uh, they passed laws that said it went from basically within a very short period of time where people could continue to hunt on that land, um, that if you were hunting on that land, you could be put to death. Um, and, and people were actually put to death. I mean, there's, um, what's the book called wigs and something, um, where it's a documentation of how many people were put to death in the trials. That were. So I think in those laws were crucial in order to make, um, make uh, that kind of life unlivable and to force dispossession at a massive scale, uh, into these kind of, you know, the, the process of dispossession, and proletarianization um, is the, the, their hand in glove, right? They're 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 not they're not um, two different processes; they're one and the same. Um, so the basic principle, if I understand correctly, is you have these common lands, these common resources that people are using to subsist, to sort of grow what they need or hunt what they need to feed their families um, and and stay alive. And when these these lands essentially get privatized, uh, thus forcing all of these people out of the countryside and into cities. And that's what we mean by, you know, the creation of the proletariat. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, that's the process. That's exactly right. And that's the process in England, but in other places, 
it was other other forms of of primitive accumulation, right? It's, this happened particularly violently in the Highlands of Scotland, right, with the Highland clearances. Yes. Yes. Yeah. No, 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 that's fine. That's fine. This is what I wanted you as a co-host. But uh, speaking of, of violence, that brings back to the point of Adam Smith. So uh, I have a, a little quotation from chapter 26 of Capital here, uh, Marx's Capital, that is, um, where he describes Smith's version or uh, vision of what a pr primitive accumulation was. He says, and again, this is his interpretation of Adam Smith. Long, long ago, there were two sorts of people. One, the diligent, intelligent, and above all, frugal elite. The other, lazy rascals spending their substance and more in riotous living. The former sort accumulated wealth and the latter sort finally had nothing to sell except their own skins. And from this original sin dates the poverty of the great majority who, despite all their labor, have up to now nothing to sell but themselves and the wealth of the few that increases constantly, although they have long ceased to work. Smith's version of the primitive accumulation is a very peaceful process. Marx doesn't exactly agree with that process. Dr. Kumar, would you like to comment on that? Yeah, I mean, this is the kind of, um, I think that there's a kind of uh, Smith's explanation for these um, I mean, obviously, Marx borrows heavily from Smith for a lot of different analysis. And I think it overlaps a lot, especially with with sort of David Ricardo and other sort of political economists he's attempt, attempting to critique. Um, uh, but on these questions, it, 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 I mean, obviously, Smith comes across as quite simple that there was, you know, basically it was based on the ingenuity of some proportion of the population and the laziness of others that that you see these this 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 cleavage between uh, the you know the capitalist and the proletariat. If you're gonna be if you're gonna even give him credit for that, so I think um, that's why I don't think it's I, I think it's helpful to say that this is the source of his critique, but it's not Smith's idea of primitive accumulation isn't particularly helpful to understand it because it's so uh, kind of divorced from the reality of it. Yeah. Isn't there some kind of political aspect to that as well, that he's he's kind of naturalizing this process and therefore justifying it as having its own inevitability, whereas Marx is going to historicize it. He's going to yeah. say, well, no, this has, this has contingency built into it. It didn't have to be this way. This was the result of, you know, uh, particular forces acting uh, in that context including the state, which Adam Smith completely disregards. Uh, and Marx, Very conveniently yeah, for him. Yeah. Well, exactly. He, he writes about the state when it's convenient, and he completely omits it when it's not. Uh, but yeah, Marx, Marx does write about the role of the state in the process of uh, primitive accumulation, including these combination laws that uh, he writes about, which essentially were, you could think of them as old-timey, anti-union, anti-assembly uh, laws for workers. If, if we were really were looking at a free market, uh, these sorts of state interventions wouldn't be taking place. And therefore, how can you call it a natural progression to this, this primitive accumulation that's the basis for capitalism? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, I think I I often use primitive accumulation um, as a way to even ex- as an entry point to even explain, um, you know, like Marx begins it's something like I think it's after chapter twenty six or twenty seven or something in volume one. <clears throat> You'd think that when Marx was going to write, you know, volume one and explain what capitalism is, that he would start with primitive accumulation surely right but you know no, he starts with the commodity and he expands from that i mean that's what makes i mean most people stop very early on because it's it's confusing you know, why is he stop starting with this <clears throat> when i'm trying to explain this to students i typically or try to explain what capitalism is i be- begin with primitive accumulation because um because it allows us to understand that it's not um it allows us to understand what what capitalism really is right because it's uh if you subs, if you're, what does it mean to subsume society under the logic of the market? It's not to say that during feudalism we didn't have systems in which people were wage laborers. I mean, some proportion of the population were doing things outside of just producing tomatoes or whatever. It was that you had um, uh, you that it was as a proportion of the population fairly insignificant. And trying to draw out that once you have this kind of uh, process of commodification, you know, you know, where people are selling themselves and selling all elements of society, it fundamentally alters all of the elements of society. Um, so it's an important w- mechanism to really understand. Uh, if you have to start with a chapter that's not chapter one in volume one, start with chapter 26. It is chapter 26, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, basically 26 through 32 cover primitive accumulation, more or less. So the idea that if I work hard as an American, if I'm poor and I come to America and I work really hard and play by the rules and I save my money, that would be how Smith defines primitive accumulation. Then I have capital to invest in my own candy store. That's the myth, right? I, I mean, I think it, I, it, with Smith, it's more about uh, in the in the kind of uh, development of capitalism. But yeah, I guess that would be it. Would be more about the the it would be about individual agency rather than the structures that are involved in and the process. Is it involved. like where capital come? Where the source of the capital comes from? Is that? I think I think it. Uh, yeah, I don't think it would be what if you said I'm coming to America and I want to make money and I work really hard. I don't think that's the conflict between Marx's conception of primitive accumulation and Smith's conception of primitive accumulation. If you were to say um, we live in a society that isn't capitalist and how did capitalism begin? It happened because some people, ha- you know, had to put it bluntly, you know, had the wherewithal to do it. And some people just didn't. And then, whereas like Marx is like, well, no, it's part of a larger process of Don Corleone. Would, would he would Marx say primitive accumulation comes through people like Don Corleone? I'm trying to wrap my mind around. It. I'm. I think that what Marx would say is that it's not so much individuals. Um, and you would say that it was uh, systemic. Yeah, that it's a system. It's a, it's it's a system that um, creates capitalists. It's a system. It's not that we don't have agency. You know, people do. 
there are capitalists that take make decisions. I mean, you know, in chapter 10, when he's talking about um, the fight for the working day, it's about all about agency. It's not just that we're like victims of, of the structure, you know, it's, it's that you have this tension between uh, various social forces and those social forces are full of people who are, you know, self-organizing. And, and so that shapes and circumscribes society as well. It's not just a structural question, right? It's kind of like, um, all right, so I'll, I'll, I'll let you get back. I apologize. But is primitive accumulation where it's taken from some? Is it safe to say that you can't have primitive accumulation unless you're taking it? Well, I mean, how, how are you? It's not um, it's it's about how how are you going to have a system in which you um, you uh, create a, a, a section of society that are uh, being exploited? And how do you have a system in which? Um, you move a, a population from doing one form of labor they've done for hundreds of years to our one form of, you know, subsistence to something that's hugely exploitative and immiserating. And I mean, how, I mean, how does that one do that without, we can call it violence, we can call it whatever you want, but it's, it's coercion. It's um, you know, it's, so I, there's no way, there's no mechanism or means you can do it. You can do it through the market, which you did in India. You can do it through coercion, quite literally, quite violently dispossessing people directly through the state, um, like China or other places. Um, or you could do it through a legal mechanism, like the legitimacy and the violence of that that you found in England three, 400 years ago. Um, but am I right in understanding that primitive accumulation has already happened? Like, we're no longer in that stage of development i mean obviously when marx is talking about it he's it's a temporal thing it's a thing about this is a particular stage of capitalism and it's and also we're not we don't have a whole world in which every place is you know i mean most of the world is capitalist but it's not like you know there are some places that are you know still in the process they're you know we live in an uneven but combined world um and it's what is important about primitive accumulation. Some people say it's an ongoing process. And this is where Harvey comes in. Harvey will say, David Harvey will say, it's an ongoing process of valorization and dispossession. And it's not just something that happens in the beginning of capitalism. Right. But then, um, which is, which is obviously the case, but it's, a, I think it's a different thing. He calls it accumulation by dispossession, but um, we can get into that too. But it's that um, what's important also about primitive accumulation is this ongoing debate about, is capitalism a universalizing tendency? Does it universalize in the same way? And this is like kind of debates that happen largely in, in academia, but it, one of the ways that you can point to it, the similarities in the way it accumulate, uh, the way it happens everywhere is primitive accumulation. That is a universal phenomenon that happens in localized ways in different places, but it has to happen in order for capitalism to emerge. Um, and there's different ways that it accumulates. I mean, there's other schools of thought, like people like Wallerstein and in in Emmanuel Wallerstein, who argues that basically capitalism emerges because you have the um, you know you have these large empires that are kind of uh, dissolving, and at that point, local sort of feudal lords no longer have to pay tribute and taxes, and that accumulation starts being able to be concentrated. Um, outside of some, you know, empire core and that accumulation that can then can be reinvested into forms of, you know, labor saving mechanisms and efficiency and so on and so forth. And that is the surplus you need in order to accumulate and 
But that's still a form of, uh, I mean, even if it's not Marx's thesis, it's still a form of primitive accumulation. So I want to transition us slightly, uh, still on the topic of primitive accumulation, but a, a different way of looking at it. So I was going through this work uh, entitled Enclosures and Discontents, Primitive Accumulation and Resistance. Uh, Dr. Kumar, I, I believe that you're familiar with it. Yes. <laughs> it's something I, I wrote with a few friends uh, many years ago. Yeah. Uh, it, it does raise the the connections between colonialism and primitive accumulation, which I think are something that, you know, when we're talking about this historic historical process, and of course, uh, with with Marx writing primarily about Britain in, in the context of primitive accumulation, the the prospect of colonialism and how it relates to primitive accumulation, unless people really dive into the material, they don't really think about it. They think about it from a a, a systematic kind of a process way rather than a material way and how it's affecting the world. So would you be willing to talk a little bit about how colonialism yeah, and primitive accumulation are linked? Yeah. I mean, look, it's, it's so uh, going back to the Brenner thesis, it's like Robert Brenner's thesis around this. He basically intuitively, but also directly argues that you already have capitalism emerging in England prior to colonial British colonialism and prior to Britain's involvement in the transatlantic slave trade, right? If that happens in the early 1600s, this happens prior to that. You have a form of, of capitalism emerging already. So it's not that it was a necessary prerequisite or pre it wasn't necessary in order. There is an argument, and this is the same with, um, with uh, a book uh, called Capitalism and Slavery by, uh, uh, I have the book right there, my brain is going blank. But basically, um, uh, you, the argument is that you, it wasn't it wasn't absolutely necessary you know, in the emergence of capitalism, but it was necessary in the emergence of industrial capitalism in the sense that you needed to accumulate the the levels in which you needed to accumulate in order to uh, ensure the rapid development of industrial capitalism in the late 1700s, early 1800s. Um, and that's why England not only becomes the emerge, you, you know, sees the emergence of capitalism, but also the rapid development of industrial capitalism um, is because of the colonial uh, relationship they had. You know, they expand and they um, colonialism in India. I mean, people know are familiar with this, but also their involvement in the transatlantic slave trade. I mean, this is also obviously the reason why you know the U.S. is is able to, you know, through massive dispossession of indigenous populations and also free labor through the, through the transatlantic slave trade. These are forms of, of uh, primitive accumulation, you could say, um, in which, uh, uh, you know, if the land, if this land was continuing, you know, it was necessary in order for capitalism to emerge um, so rapidly here as well, right? Um, I mean, I'm saying here, I'm saying the U.S., uh, I think it's also that um, it's uh, this is where I think it's also where Harvey is quite important. If we're saying, you know, what Claire, Grace's argument earlier about the ongoing relationship between forms of dispossession um, and uh, accumulation. So if you say col colonialism was important in primitive accumulation, but also you have uh, forms of um of dispossession, for example, in in the urban environment, or dispossession in terms of 
tr- turning forms of use value. So for example, like you had forms of use value in the 1970s and eighties of like what Marx or what Harvey calls, um, the, uh, 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 you know, for example, like with the welfare state, the welfare state was, was formed, was a form of in, in, in across, for example, advanced capitalist world, uh, you know, in Europe, the welfare state in the form of like healthcare or housing. Why is it so important that in the seventies and eighties that becomes uh, from a use value? So it's like free for the vast proportion of the population into something that's exchange value It's because it's that too is a form of accumulation what he calls accumulation by dispossession. It's necessary for capitalism and the ongoing growth of capitalism and also to absorb their own profitability crisis of the, of the early 70s to liquidate these forms of public good and valorize them into forms of private good, right? So those two are forms of dispossession is what Harvey's arguing, that these are ongoing processes that, the, you know, it's, um, I'm sorry if that's been a bit muddled, but, uh, uh, did that make sense? That it's not that it's not just this. I think it's it's an important intervention that Harvey's making. That it's not just this thing that happened in the past or that's happening in some far flung corner of the world. It's that in order for it, it helps us understand what capitalism is. Is that you have a system in which it's constantly seeking new terrains of profitability, and those new terrains of profitability require say the dispossession of populations, you know, it becomes, you know, if you look at like, for example, London, London, you know, there was a period of time when, and like many cities, uh, industrial cities, it was, uh, it was important for the, for capitalism that you had workers that were in the vicinity of industrial capitalism. And then all of a sudden you have deindustrialization in the 1970s. And then you, and all of a sudden it becomes more important for the land in which those people are in than the people actually who are there, right? Because you have deindustrialization. So then that form of dispossession and valorization of the city, um, <clears throat> you know, um, it was like, it was particular, you, know, you look at cultural elements of this, right? So for example, in, um, you know, in, in the US, you had forms of, you know, like the ghetto. The ghetto was a very important reserve army of labor, to go back to that idea. You had this population that were that didn't have access to the labor market, but that you can use as a lever against the striking workers, or you, it was a racialized subject that you can use as a lever uh, against full-time employees to say, well, you know, we always they always have this dispossessed, like basically confined population, and that was important for the capitalist accumulation process. I mean, Louis Kant writes about this. Loads of other people have written about this. But then once you have deindustrialization, there's no longer the necessity of the ghetto. So the, the, the ghetto, that, which was, you know, they're like, don't go to the inner city. It's this dark and dangerous place, which keeps workers from organizing with, these, with this reserve army of labor. All of a sudden, once you have deindustrialization, they're like, well, we need to dispossess these pe- people. They're, the city no longer becomes a dark and dangerous place. The city is now a dark and, you know, interesting place, you know? And so like all of these different archetypes of the city become become valorizable, right? So this is a form of dispossession. This is like, this is the kind of base superstructure relationship. It's like all of a sudden at the base, they need to, they need to accumulate from the city. And so then they, they dispossess. Gentrification doesn't just happen. You know, when people go, oh, why is gentrification happening in all these different parts of the world? Well, if there's a phenomenon happening in all these different parts of the world, it's not because there's all these people who all of a sudden feel like they really like warehouses and they really like, you know, industrial, like, you know, it's, it, it doesn't just happen in all these places because of a coincidence. It happens because you're at the advanced capitalist world, 
deindustrialization is happening at a simultaneous time because it's a global crisis in the 1970s of profitability. So you have to find a spatial fix. Like Marx, like Harvey says, capitalism never solves its crisis. It just moves it around. Right. That's and so what are what, what are we saying? Because I know that Henry had promised our Zoom audience an opportunity to ask you questions before they raise their hands. We're, we're talking. This is fascinating. And I hope you come back. We're, we're talking about the theoretical. I foolishly started the show today being frustrated, banging my head against the wall, thinking about Biden and how hopeless it it all seems that is you, you when you look at it through the prism of Marx's theory, of course, it's insanity for me to keep hitting the same button, expecting a different result. Right. This nothing about the inauguration surprises you. Nothing about the game playing between Schumer and McConnell and Biden surprises you. Correct. I mean, I imagine it doesn't surprise you either, right? I'm not as smart as most people, and I hope springs eternal and what's left of my soul. I mean, obviously, <laughs> I want to be surprised. I want him to come out and go, actually, I I want him to say some, I'm going to do a, I want him to do progressive stuff, you know? And I have, I'm hopeful, you know? I'm not like, so, so what you just quoted Harvey saying, uh, uh Capital, what, what, what capital? capitalism never solves its crisis, it simply moves it around. And that's what we're saying in Washington, D.C. We're just moving the crisis around to well, different... I don't think a political crisis is necessarily an economic crisis. He's talking about an economic crisis. So basically in the 1970s, you have an economic crisis, and then what you have is a form of globalization, and it moves it around. But then that crisis emerges in the 1980s. So what do they do? They have to find new terrains of profitability. So they start privatizing. But, but it, I, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but the political crisis, you can't separate the political crisis in Washington from an economic crisis. I mean, this is capitalism run amok. They, the capitalists own our, our system. So isn't, isn't what's happening in Washington, D.C. just part no, when of what, when capitalism becomes about- top heavy? Harvey's talking about an economic crisis. Okay. So he's not talking about Biden, like, versus Trump. I mean, he's not, we're not talking about that. We're talking about, of course, you can't disarticulate them. But right. when we're talking about it, th- that specific quote is about. Right. I understand that. So yeah. what did you see when you when you see you're not even in America? So w- what do you see with the gridlock is exactly what the capitalists want. They really don't want anything to get done. In- That's not necessarily true. I mean, the emergence of the welfare state was, some people would argue, like, you know, lots of people would argue that it was a form of a class compromise. It was necessary in order for, you know, he had an agency of the subjective agency of the working class that was threatening capitalism in lots of ways. You had the Soviet Union that was a bona fide threat as something potentially different that existed, at least in its early stages. So that was a threat to the capitalist order. And so then it was like, okay, we need to give people some shit so that they don't think, you know, it's like. And and giving people health care in many ways is a corporate bailout. So the corporations don't have to. In America, it makes even more sense why they would. I mean, if the employer is providing, if okay, let's say capitalism is an amalgam of many, many employers. Let's that's a simple explanation. Let's just say that's what it is, and that's the logic. If all these employers are having to pay for healthcare, you'd think that the employer would want a system in which there's public healthcare. But no, 
that's not, I mean, it doesn't matter if the employers want that. The system also wants people to be desperate in their employer and need their employer for, for their survival. They also want, they want a system in which people. Well, let's, let's, this is important for us to understand. And then we'll go to uh, Oliver. Uh, it makes perfect sense. We live in a system that is very happily gives what welfare to corporations, right? Socialism, whatever you want to call it, for the corporation bailouts. And you just said that universal health care for American workers would be a bailout for corporate America since they wouldn't have to pick up the cost. But it's more important in this country to have the workers afraid of losing their health care, therefore afraid of losing their job and more obedient. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of different factors. I mean, the state is not necessarily interested in one or two capitalists, right? They're interested in the stability of the capitalist order. That's what the state, the capitalist state is interested in. And if you have health care, you're going to you're going to take, say, take this job and shove it. That's what they're afraid of. Yeah, it's potentially that, but also that you have, um, you know, if the if if the if the system gets untenable and people are have no stake in it, um, then that also threatens the order of this. Of, you know, so you know there was a really brilliant writer Trotskyist of the 1960s, French Trotskyist named Andre Gores, who wrote a book called uh, Strategy for Labor, in which he draws these distinctions out. He says there's one group of policies called reformist reforms. So that's like a minimum wage increase. That's a reformist reform. It's good. It's not bad, but it stabilizes the system for the accumulation of capital. And then he creates another system of policies called non-reformist reforms or like transitional reforms. And those reforms are reforms like, uh, you know, having a system of public health care, because what does that do? It it de-commodifies and de-valorizes a system uh, it weakens the power of a section of capitalists in society. Of course, it also stabilizes the system. What you need to do, and this is what we were trying to do with Corbyn, was create a system of a series of po- policies that would systematically weaken the power of capital. And that's what we have to think about when we're thinking about policy, because not just to do policies that you know, bolster the, the position of the capitalist and give us, you know, the capitalist goes in and shovels a cake in their mouth and a tiny crumb falls off their beak. And, it, and then we just, we're like, oh yeah, we're just fighting over that. And we're like, oh, shouldn't we be happy that we got this tiny little crumb that fell off the beak of the capitalist? You know what I mean? Like we just need to, I think, think about more strategically about what kinds of policies are are transitional. Let's take a question from, is it Olivier? Olivier. David, David, let, let me, let me add one very quick thing in before you bring him in. So uh, I just want to mention that I love something that uh, Dr. Kumar just said in terms of the state doesn't care about one or two capitalists or capitalist institutions, but it cares about the system of capitalism. That's why, for example, in 1954 in Guatemala, uh, Arbenz was overthrown because they nationalized some of the unused land that was held by United Fruit. That's unused land of one, one corporation. There was no value that was coming out of that land. But to set the precedent that you can nationalize private lands is a worrying precedent to set, especially without any sort of retribution. And that's why we saw the retribution that there was of the overthrow of a democratically elected government, a continent away from where the United States and that individual private corporation was located. I just wanted to use that as an example to, to throw that out as, onto what uh, Dr. Kumar said. Is it Olivier? 
or Oliver? Oh, you you can call me what you like, uh, Dave. <laughs> where, where are you calling from? At the Netherlands. Oh, that's right. That's right. You teach yeah, yeah, yeah. you teach philosophy in high school. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I have two questions. Can I ask two questions? Sure. <laughs> thank you, thank you. Uh, the both relate to history. So I was wondering if, if Marx um, commented on, and let's see if I pronounce this right, mercantilism, where the sovereign tries to accumulate uh, monetary supplies. Now that that predates capitalism, right? Doesn't mercantilism yeah. predate capitalism? Yeah, it does. And the other question, and you can just riff on that from there, is did Marx comment on the situation in the United States in the 1850s, you know, where the United States were industrialized, but they also had large swaths of uncultivated land still the, ready to be de- to be developed, right? The, the Dutch East or? India Company, I believe, was the early early example of mercantilism, right? And they were competing against the crown. Um, well, I think mercantilism is all about increasing the monetary supply of the sovereign. And I think the Dutch East Indian Company was the first private business in a way because it was Dutch, well, civilians being stockholders. And we didn't have a king back then. We had a regent and he wasn't a sovereign in that sense. I thought, okay, it's, yeah. I'll ask Dr. Kumar. I always thought that the, that w- that the uh, the king of England created a corporation that competed with the Dutch East company and they were two basically sovereign corporations going kind of like a sovereign fund the same way that Saudi Arabia has a sovereign fund which is in many ways a form of mercantilism anyway Dr. Kumar you want to um yeah I mean I'm not uh, uh an expert of this um but I know some people who are, um, I, I can reference those books. Um, Jairus Banerjee's Theory of History, he's an expert of mercantilism and he's a Marxist and he references a lot of Marx's work, but also Marxian uh, texts, um, so secondary sources uh, on that. And then also, if you're thinking about the US, um, a really good text on this and not, not long ago is Charlie Post's uh, The American Road to Capitalism which um, is, all, is also a Marxist text. Could um, mercantilism, people go, what, what's next? Could we go back to mercantilism where the entire country, the, where, what, what is the difference between sta- a state-owned economy and mercantilism? Because isn't mercantilism where it's the economy and the government or the crown are synonymous? Isn't that what it means? Uh, yes, yes. Well, sort of. It really means that the state, the government and the king is trying to um, export so much and increase its money supply. And that's basically, but the economy would be in the best interest of the nation. Yeah. And the economy would also revolve around increasing money by finished goods, by increasing the gold supply back then. Because back then we were on the on, on the gold standard, so it was all about getting as much gold as it is in the world inside the borders of the country, and that that was the economic model back then. Motivated a lot of uh, uh, colonialism. What is your second question? Well, those were only two questions about mercantilism and the situation of uh, primitive accumulation in the United States. Because Marx wrote in the eighteen fifties, and the United States was in a bit of a mixed state back then. You know, you had industrialized. East Coast, but still a lot of uncultivated 
outback basically and, and did he comment on that like what was how did he comment in the united states and where they were at um yeah i mean he wrote a lot of, of uh articles uh journal articles he wrote hundreds of journal articles um about uh what was going on in the u.s he was a uh, columnist right right yeah um and uh i'm trying to think what specifically he wrote about u.s um development in the u.s uh i, I mean i actually i'm i don't know but um do you know henry or grace No, I'm much more familiar with what Hitler wrote about the U.S. than what <laughs> Marx wrote about the U.S. What was that? Hitler was a big fan of the uh, race laws in the United States. He wrote about them in Mein Kampf, and the Nuremberg laws in large part were based on, uh, or at least they took a lot of inspiration from race laws within the United States. So, of course, and our, were, and our scientific community when it comes to eugenics. He borrowed yeah, heavily from yeah. that. Well, that, that never gave us credit, though. Never gave us credit. Oh, they did. They did. Uh, there's a book out. It's called Hitler's American Model. It's by a Yale University law professor um, whose name slips my mind at the moment. But uh, yeah, the name of the book is Hitler's American Model. And it's, it's a short book, fast read, talks about how Hitler and the Nazi party took their inspiration from american race laws and really praised the american race laws and in some cases said that the american race laws were a little bit too uh you know over the top even for the nazis um now of course they did abhor the liberalism that was uh, inherent in the american political system and the anti-authoritarianism which of course we've seen uh, perhaps isn't as strong as it as it appeared to be but yeah the nazis were were opposed to that the liberalism the anti-authoritarian nature of our constitution and laws but in regards to the race law the nazis were, were really quite fond of them and used them for inspiration a lot but yeah i can't say uh much on on marx's take on on the americas yeah i mean i think that there's mostly i uh, secondary sources that are good eric williams is oh that was what i was thinking of eric williams uh capitalism and slavery um and the americas is very good um Uh, looking at the relationship between the two, I mean, also across Europe, but also its emergence in the U.S. Marx did have correspondence with Abraham Lincoln. That's right. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, and gave him uh, a lot of a lot of uh, credit for his his push to end slavery, such as it was. Uh, yeah, I see Anne Lee posted in the chat. It was James Q. Whitman who wrote Amer Hitler's American Model. Um, definitely recommend picking that up. It's a very fast read. Oh, someone asked about uh, Gore's book. It's called Strategy for Labor. It's a very small book. Oh, Strategy for Labor, not Reform and Revolution, right? Um, the book that I think is quite good at breaking it down is Strategy for Labor, but okay. he's written it in a, a few places. Um, I don't, and he doesn't refer to it in Farrell to the Working Class, which I think is not a great book, but um, okay, I mean, that's cool. what he's known for. We you had Professor Gerald Hoard on, Professor Adnan Hussein brought him on, Tuesday show, and I've been reading a little of Professor Horn. What was interesting is after the glorious revolution, the slave trade was opened up to the free market. At one time, it was controlled by the crown, and that when the free market got hold of the slave trade, that's when it became incredibly, incredibly sadistic and well, cruel. I think, David, also after the glorious revolution of 1688 was one of the things that 
heralded this new era of enclosure of the commons. Tell us what the, remind us what the Glorious Revolution was. Oh, now you're putting me on the spot. Um, Is is that when the Protestants took back? Yeah, broadly speaking, um, it was uh, when the Catholic James II um, was replaced by Mary and William of Orange, who was Dutch, and they were Protestant. Right. Falco, who's in Belgium. (laughs) Hello, everyone. So since we've been talking about the reserve army of labor, um, another important concept, I think at least, to to talk about or to explain maybe to the listeners is um, the precariat and how this has been uh, development that we've been seeing in the last decades. And... um, Talk, a bit, talk maybe a bit to how this development emerged and the key aspect of it being that the worker is even further alienated from his means of production. They're not fully engaged um, in the labor process. And um, to add on to that, uh, one of the characteris- characteristics of this is also that they have a lot of unpaid activities that they have to do. Uh, then we're talking about like uh, temp workers that constantly have to be on call or constantly have to work, uh, sorry, constantly have to uh, go and look for a job, which takes up time to them as well. Could you talk a bit to that? Sure. Um, so for those who didn't hear, it was uh, the idea of the precariat. Um, yes. This is guy standings term from 2011. Uh but it's a combination of proletariat and precarious. Um, and um, basically the argument is that, uh, that you know, when you have the, cri- I mean, I keep going back to the crisis of the 1970s, you have the crisis of the 1970s and you have that, you know, capitalist, it's a crisis of profitability. And in order to increase profitability, you need to have, uh, you need to control time. What Marx calls the petty pilfering of minutes is that you have um, the necessity to squeeze as much from the worker in as uh, little amount of time. Um, so uh, in order to do that, uh, you need to introduce a number of laws that erode the power of workers. Um, and so one of the laws that they have here is called zero hour contract. So you only get paid for the hours that you're in and they never give you a stable contract. So what it means is that every minute that you're working, every minute that you're getting paid is minutes that you're working, but you're always on call. So it's a form of, um, it's a high, you know, it's, a, it's just increasing the rate of exploitation. So precariat is not, the phenomenon is, is it happens really in the advanced capitalist world. It, ex, it was always the case with, with really low wage workers um, and service workers that they were precariat work precariats, but it starts expanding across society as, the, the needs to inc- accumulate more profits because of the crisis of profitability increases. Um, and so you, um, you uh, see this happen across the advanced capitalist world. I mean, there are some exceptions, um, uh, but in general, it's something that's a generalized phenomenon because, because the crisis was a generalized phenomenon. David, do you want me to read to you what Marx wrote about the glorious revolution of 1688? Yes, please. 
Let me this is from chapter 27. Tuck, tuck me in, Daddy, and read to me. <laughs> okay, he said, the glorious revolution of 1688. Brought into power, along with William of Orange, the landed and capitalist profit grubbers. They inaugurated the new era by practicing on a colossal scale the theft of state lands, which had hereto been managed more modestly. These estates were given away, sold at ridiculous prices, or even annexed to private estates by direct seizure. And a little bit ahead. The crown lands thus fraudulently appropriated, together with the stolen church estates, form the basis of the pre- present princely domains of the English oligarchy. That's what he had to say about the glorious revolution of 1688. Joining us in Michigan, I believe, is Professor Ben Burgess. He is the host of Give Them an Argument, Logic for the Left. Well, that's the name of his book as well. He's also a columnist for Jacobin. And this is Henry Huckamacki's Marxist Power Hour. And we've been talking with Dr. Dr. Kumar. And I asked you if you've, have you met Dr. Kumar other than on the show? And Grace Jackson and Henry? Only on this show. Hmm? Only on this show. Okay. Henry, why don't you wrap it up and we'll, we'll talk to Professor Ben Burgess. Thank you, Dr. Kumar. I hope you come back as soon as possible. Yeah, so uh, I guess we'll sign out for this edition of the Marxist Power Hour. We'll be back uh, whenever I, I get confirmation on another guest to come on for, for a full hour to talk about an aspect of Marxism. Dr. Kumar, it was a pleasure talking with you, and uh, I think the listeners all enjoyed the, the conversation quite a bit. And Grace, thanks for joining us. And Plug, uh, I, plug the books, please. Yeah, Grace, why don't you plug uh, Professor Kumar's new book? Oh, sure. And his Twitter handle, don't forget. Don't forget. Don't Stalin forget bro, Twitter. that I know. <laughs> Stalin bro. Yes. Um, it's uh, Brosif yes. underscore Stalin. Oh, I'm Nobody's sorry, Brosif. Right, sorry. sorry. we got to make him say it. Um, find uh, Dr. Ashok Kumar's book. It is called Monopsony Capitalism. Power and Production in the Twilight of the Sweatshop Age, and it's published by Cambridge University Press. Thank you so much. follow him on Twitter at brosif underscore Stalin. And Grace, how can the listeners follow you? I'm on Twitter as Grace Jackson. Great. Very, very difficult to find. And listeners, for me, you can just subscribe to Guerrilla History. We, we have some really interesting episodes coming out, and we're going to have a lot coming out for Black History Month next month. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Let us please, Dr. Kumar, come back. This is uh, let's go to Michigan. Are you in Michigan, Professor? Let's go to Michigan where Professor Ben Burgess is standing by. He's a columnist for Jacobin. And I read your latest piece about what Bernie accomplished. I started the show with the Reverend Barry W. Lynn being really cynical and thinking it's hopeless and this is not a democracy and we can't get anything accomplished in this country. But your piece in Jacobin is very inspirational. So let's start off with Bernie, who everybody is making fun of because of the, the mittens and the new meme. But let me ask you about what he accomplished, what Occupy accomplished, what the Democratic Socialists of America accomplished. Yeah, um, I, I don't know. I, I thought the way he was dressed at the, uh, at the inauguration was awesome. I, I, Me too. I think, had the, uh, I think it sent the perfect message, honestly. Um, and uh, 
Although uh, the one politician whose uh, whose behavior at the inauguration I actually liked even more than Bernie standing there looking irritated in sort of casual winter clothes uh, was uh, AOC who skipped the inauguration to uh, go visit a picket line. Uh, How unusual! So, yeah. Um, but uh, but where we, were we when you when you look at yeah Barack Obama taking the yeah. oath of office yeah and where we are now words like you talk about this in in, in Jacobin the ninety nine percent the one percent Medicare for all was that part of the lexicon back then no certainly not um, yeah I mean in the in um, yeah, in 2008, when Barack Obama, uh, you know, took office, then, well, I mean, actually, if you think about what was going on, you know, while Obama was being elected, there was the uh, global financial crash and uh, and there was the, the bailout, you know, that happened at the same time. And if you remember that, the argument that was happening about the bailout, like it sort of verged, like the, the spectrum pretty much went from people who supported it to people who opposed it for like right-wing libertarian reasons. You know, like like when um, Mitt Romney wrote that, you know, let Detroit go bankrupt op-ed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that was pretty much, uh, that was pretty much the discussion. Uh, in 2008, you know, when, um, you know, when Obama was uh, was first running, if, if you remember, like uh, John Edwards was running that year. And like, that was what passed for a populist. That's who I voted for. Cause he talked about the two Americas. He's the one I voted for. Yeah, exactly. So, and that was enough, right? I mean, that was like, that was enough to put him at like the far left wing of the democratic party spectrum in 2008, that he basically acknowledged that economic inequality existed and was a problem. Even if like what he was actually saying, you know, like basically, you know, basically John Edwards, 2008, you know, healthcare plan wasn't that different from Obamacare, for example. Uh, but he was at least rhetorically acknowledging the problem. And, and that made him, you know, I mean, he was a pretty peripheral candidate, you know, in the larger scheme of the election. But that was enough for people like us to maybe get excited about him. Uh, and since then, uh, a lot has happened. But I think the most important thing that happened was Bernie Sanders running for president twice. Um, and saying um, things on television that nobody had ever said before, going after the pharmaceutical industry going after the sponsors of the television shows, basically, which you can't do. Yeah, no, exactly. And um, and obviously that happened against a background of um, of that, you know, global financial crash having happened of the long term effects of that that have been playing out for like seven years by the time, you know, he declared for uh, for president. And so there, there was a lot of you know, discontent out there for him to tap into, but the, the combination of the moment and the candidacy ended up, you know, having relative to where things were at this, this huge, you know, this huge effect. I mean, and, and it's, it's hard to remember how marginal everybody assumed it was going to be in 2015. Like if you go back and watch that video of Bernie uh, announcing his first presidential run in 2015, uh, he literally he's talking to it looks like about 10 reporters outside, like, you know, short distance from the Capitol, walking distance. Uh, he takes out a piece of paper that he has folded up in his pocket with the speech written on it. 
And the, one of the first things he tells them is that uh, he can't stay for the very long. He'll take a couple questions, but you know he doesn't have an endless amount of time because he has to get back inside. He's like doing it on his lunch break or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, How and, big was the DSA back then? Uh, yeah, there were about 6,000 people as of the 2015 6,000 people, 6,000 Americans were democratic yes, socialists. 6,000 total members in the entire country. And, um, and so, you know, since then, right, uh, DSA has something close to 100,000 now uh, members in the country. There are uh, multiple members of Congress who have, have some relationship with it, you know, have, have at least, you know, um, maybe not been active, but have, have been members, have not shied away from having some association, uh, some association with it. Uh, there's, um, you know, like Medicare for all is a phrase that nobody was using. Like nobody said the phrase Medicare for all in 2015. It's so the reason your article over Jacobin is so important is it's a pathway forward. It it it, it literally answers my question. Tell me what to think. What do I believe? How am I supposed to react to this nonsense that took place on Wednesday, this inauguration where I and and so you kind of lay out a path forward for, yeah, in your so, piece. So, it's, it's everybody should read it. it's entitled Get Ready to Fight Joe Biden. And it's yeah. almost inspirational because go ahead. Yeah, I mean, so, so part, part of what I'm trying to engage with in that piece is uh, I think like two very different attitudes that you could have about about where the left should go now, right? Because of course you're right when you say, you know, like there's a, there's a certain sense which you're totally right when you say we don't live in a democracy. I mean, you know, we certainly don't live in a democracy in the sense that uh, that you know the powers that be, the Democratic Party, you know, people who hold most of the positions of power are particularly receptive to what the public wants. You know, uh, when it comes to stuff, you know. I mean, if you, um, I mean, if, if you just look at polls and look at what happens, you know, then uh, if you looked at the polls and you assumed that politicians were going to do what it said, you know, then we'd be ending the wars and giving everybody health care and all that stuff. And, you know, obviously none of that is happening anytime soon. And so I, I think that the cynicism is on one level totally right. But then the question is, okay, if we're not just going to give up, right, what, what's, what do we do, right? What's the path forward? And I think that there are at least two ways that people can go and and understandably go right like 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 i i I totally get how somebody could end up at either one of these even though i think the second one is the right one so the first one is think that basically and this is what a lot of people think uh on the left that the goal is um that we should basically understand ourselves as being in some as being in this coalition with like regular centrist Democrats like Biden and Pelosi and Schumer and all these monsters and reach across uh, the aisle and try to get something. Yeah. Yeah. What we should be basically seeing our role as is as like courtiers to, to the, you know, to, to the Biden, you know, court uh, trying to like, you know, be kind of loyal foot soldiers, but also lobby behind the scenes, try to get what we can, you know, from them. And the the goal of this, and there are very different versions of the strategy. Appeal to their better angels, even though those better angels don't exist. Uh, 
Yeah, exactly. Either like either appeal to their better angels or even like try to somehow, I don't know, like, you know, like, like try to try to somehow like do some kind of like, uh, like somehow like browbeat or bully them even. Right. You know, like, like they're all versions of the same idea, right? This, the basic idea behind all of these things is that the way to get the things that we want politically is to somehow push Biden and Pelosi and Schumer and all these people to uh, to give them to us, or if they can, or if we can't get them to give us what we want, then at least maybe we could push them so they give us like half of what we want or right. something like that. Right? That's the basic idea, and I can understand how somebody could think, well, that sounds realistic, right? You know, it's that's, adult. That's, You're uh, an adult. Life is compromise. Right. Totally. So, so. Uh, so, so I, I don't think so, though. I, I, I agree. I, I'm, I'm, I, 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 I know I where you're going with this. I don't think that's going to work. Um, no. I think that uh, I think that we're certainly like when you take something like Medicare for all, which honestly I think is a pretty minimal baseline. I mean, they've had that in Canada for decades. Uh, you know, I, I certainly hope that all of our you know hopes for the future of what American society could be, that, you know, being like Canada isn't like the outermost limits of our imagination. Uh, so when you think of something like Medicare for all, I don't see any route there, you know, towards towards getting like Biden and all of these people to to come on board with it. I mean, Biden he can't even give us the public option. He promised the public option and he won't even introduce Biden, that. Yeah. Biden said he would veto Medicare for all at one right. point, you know, in a mobile honesty on the campaign and uh and and he and the rest of the democrats have had a long-standing friendly relationship with i don't see them nationalizing that industry which is what medicare for all would be i don't think that's going to happen i don't think there's any amount of pushing and lobbying and anything that's going to lead to that happen somebody could then say okay well we can at least get uh, we can at least get the public option or something that like, okay, what we want is Medicare for all. And I understand we're not going to push Biden that far, but like maybe there's some scenario where he'll do that. And I don't think that's right. And in fact, I, I, even if I had thought that before, which, which I didn't, right. But even if I had thought that, I certainly wouldn't think that after watching his inaugural address, oh. uh, where on, uh, you know, Wednesday, where he literally equated uh, the pursuit of bipartisan unity with Lincoln freeing the slaves as like the defining project of his presidency. You know, he quoted Lincoln saying that if he was going to be remembered for anything it would be the Emancipation Proclamation. And he said, you know, that he, his whole soul was in it. And he said, similarly, his whole soul is the pursuit of unity and bringing the country together. Well, that's so how that- that's what Lincoln did. He freed the slaves by bringing the country together, by reaching across the Mason Dixon line and offering bipartisan support yeah. to Jefferson Davis, I believe. Is that the yeah. story of America? I think that's more or less what happened between yeah. 1861 and 1865. That's right. right. So, um, so, you know, maybe some details, whatever, more or less. Right. So, uh, <laughs> So, yeah, uh, so that certainly doesn't sound to me, right, like somebody who is going to go to war against centrists in his own party and the donor class and, and do something like that. And or even when it comes to something like the public option, you'd still need to do all that to get the public option. Like, like, I, I understand he said, you know, like, if you think that uh, promises made during campaigns are binding oaths. Uh, then you think, oh, he has to pursue the public option. Uh, but if you look, if you're, if you're, you know, old enough to remember the Obama administration, Obama said a lot of stuff too when he was running for president. Uh, he didn't do very much of it. Uh, he uh, he 
he he carried out the bad stuff, you know, the drones and all that, you know, but he, he didn't do, uh, you know, he, he said he was Obama ran on the public option in 2008. Obama ran on card check to make it easier to organize unions in 2008. He didn't do any of that. Republicans and, keep their prom or at least try to keep their promises. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they have a uh, yeah. I mean, I, I think that. There is a reason structurally why Republicans, I mean, whatever, Republicans lie a lot, too, during campaigns. But there is a reason structurally why Republicans probably keep more of their promises than Democrats do, because the things that the Republicans are promising uh, tend to be things that donors and the political establishment aren't actually going to object to. Uh, whereas uh, the things that you need to say to, to get a progressive base behind you and you know revved up during an election very often are things that the political establishment and the donor class uh, would uh, would object to, and so I think that the idea, and I understand that you know Biden is not going to be governing exactly the way that Obama is because, for one thing, we're in an unprecedented public health and economic crisis, and so I think there's a much greater willingness in establishment quarters to basically spend a lot more money uh, than than anybody was willing to spend in the Obama years, but that's uh, that's just not the same question as are you willing to go to war against the donor class, which you'd have to even to get a public option. So I don't think Biden's going to do that. I don't think there's any amount of pressuring and lobbying or, you know, it, like anything, whether we're talking about the, these guys are basically our friends, we can like quietly lobby them to do what we want version of the strategy, or whether we're talking about the, there's some sort of negotiation playing hardball thing we can do to force them to do what we want version of the strategy. Either way, I think the idea is that you're somehow going to get Biden and the centrist to do the things that we want. And I think that's just not happening. OK, so we only have 10 minutes left. So so, so, so in your piece in Jacobin. Yeah, so, so so the so what's behind door number two is that. And I understand this is much harder. And I understand why some people might not want to believe this, because this is a much longer path. And obviously, if there was some way that we could get to things that we want, like next year, that would be better. But we can't. And so I think the only possible path is to not get them to do it for us, but to uh, but to win a bunch of elections and and beat them and, and do these things ourselves. So that, you know, the uh, you know, to get to the point where we don't just have like one AOC and one Rashida Tlaib and, you know, Jabal, you know, Jamal Bowman and whoever. But we have like hundreds of people like this that, you know, we. Uh, have have been elected to Congress and, you know, the next and do it in a way the same way Jimmy Carter and the Democrats didn't see the new right. The same way the Republicans didn't see Trump, didn't understand Trump. All of yeah. a sudden, this new left, the squad emerges as as a real force within the party. Yeah. So 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 I think that's it. I think that's I think that's the only way forward. And so I think what in terms of what it means, like rhetorically right now, you know, in terms of not like the most important stuff, which is what people on the ground are doing in terms of, um, you know, like justice Democrats types re recruiting primary challengers to go after vulnerable centrists or union organizers doing what they do. Obviously, that's the most important thing. But in terms of what people like us do, right, in terms in terms of how we talk about uh, you know, Democrats, I think that the key thing is that I don't think that it's a good strategy for us to, like, play up any little bone 
that we get thrown by the Biden administration as a great victory and talk about how we're, we're succeeding, we're pressuring them, you know, move to the left. I think that we need to be doing the opposite. I think we need to be drawing really, really clear contrasts uh, and pointing out at every turn, hey, you can't blame everything on Republican obstructionism. Here's the thing that the Biden administration can be doing. Here's the thing they can be doing. Here's the thing they can be doing. They're not doing any of that. And that, I think, is what sets us up so that we don't live in an eternal recurrence of 2020 where, you know, Biden beats Bernie, you know, where in future elections, both presidential, congressional, whatever, that we can beat enough of these people that we can win. Because I think this this is my big claim that the only way we're ever going to get what we want, the only way we're ever going to get social democracy in America, never mind anything that goes beyond that, is we can't pressure them to do it for us. We just have to beat them so we can do it ourselves. A year ago, around, I think it was a year ago, you were in Las Vegas going door to door for Bernie. Is it fair to say that when it comes to the the infrastructure of a movement, he was alone? Uh, Yeah, I mean, I don't know about he didn't have the Democratic Party behind him. He he didn't have the Democratic Party and and he's not going to have the Democratic Party. But there are ways that uh, that the infrastructure could be there in the future in ways that it was right. just there in 2016 or 2020. I think that uh, just like, just real quick, like I, I think, um, yeah, I think there needs to be a left-wing machine on the ground to counter the centrist machine. We could have a much bigger discussion about this, but I know we're going into the last few minutes. So I'll just say, I think a huge part of that equation is uh, rebuilding the labor movement. I keep I hearing that. I keep hearing that. And and to me, that just because you're right doesn't mean you're correct, because that's almost reactionary to, to look backwards and say, well, it was the labor movement that gave us the New Deal. And uh, but it there is no labor movement in this country anymore. Yeah, we're, we're going to have Andrew Miller from the Internet, the IWW on later. So. So, uh, OK, so I, I would just say that uh, that I'm, I'm open. Like the question is, what's behind door number two? Right. Like if uh, if we think we can have like the kind of infrastructure, like be, like a kind of alternative power center, a kind of alternative infrastructure on the left that doesn't involve organizing workers as workers, then what's the other thing that we can have? That would be more effective. What is it? What is it? Well, I mean, I'm arguing for door number one. You're the one who's arguing for door number two. But I've been hearing that. I don't. I agree with you. I agree it's, that. I, that I, I, I mean, this is the pessimistic part, right? You said you said you thought the article was optimistic, and, and I, I get what you mean, right? You know, because because it does talk about how far we've come from where we were in 2015, but the there is a pessimistic half of it, which is. Uh, which is that, yeah, we've come really far from where we were in 2015, but we've still got a really long way to go. And I, I think and I think we can get there, but I, I just think we need to be honest about, about where we're starting. I mean, like, can you I, have I a labor that, movement without a government that enforces labor laws and cleans up the unions and passes laws to make sure that? The, the, the rank and file isn't getting screwed by the management. Don't you need Washington, D.C. passing laws to insist on a type of corporate governance that includes 
labor where 40 percent of the board has to be labor leaders. The labor it's it's chicken and egg question, I guess. I just think the labor movement has been denuded of all its. All the arrows. Well, what I would say, um, you know, it's interesting that we still use that phrase chicken and egg because I've always thought, look, didn't uh, didn't Darwin solve that one for us? The, uh, you know, we had the first chicken egg before we had the first chicken. It was laid by something that was almost a chicken. Uh, but uh, the the point of which is just to say, but it was an egg uh, that, but it was an egg that he laid. She laid. Right. Let, help yeah, me out but, here. It's it's fe- hens lay the eggs, right? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But that the hen laid an egg for you know of uh, the first the first chicken egg. You know, was was by something that was almost a hen. Whatever. I mean, we so, happen uh, to have so, an so, expert so, here. So, Ethan so, could so, answer so, this so, question later. So, Go ahead. Here's, here's the point, though. Before we before we lodge the correct explanation of chickens, uh, the the point, right? The analogy is that we, in the same way that Darwin cleared up the chicken and egg thing for us, I think we can look at the history of the real world here and say that it's not true that we didn't have a big militant, you know, uh, labor movement, uh, you know, with with real political muscle until. Um, until we had, you know, friend, you know, like friendly left, you know, left or New Deal kinds of governments, you know, in the, like New Deal in the U.S. or Labor Party in Britain or whatever. That's not how it happened. It happened the other way around. Uh, now, I understand that once those governments came to power, they were in turn able to do things that allowed that movement to grow bigger. But look, you said you, you can ask somebody from the IWW on, well, look at the glory days of the IWW when it was actually a mass movement. Uh, at the end of the 19th century, the beginning of the 20th century, there sure as hell weren't any, like, you know, National Labor Relations Act, you know, like anything like that, you know, that existed then. Uh, they, were, they were operating within a deeply unfriendly, uh, you know, political, uh, political landscape and winning a lot of strikes. Uh, so, I mean, this, the, the reason why it's not, you know, this isn't super optimistic is that I, I think the obstacles are very real, but the reason that it's not super pessimistic is that I don't think that those obstacles are necessarily insurmountable. It's just hard. Let me ask you a a question about academia before you go. I'm a big fan of MOOCs. Uh, I I use MOOCs. Many people say I am a MOOC. I I belong to the teaching company, Coursera, uh, Harvard X. I hate to admit it. When you said MOOC, it, it took me a minute. I thought, man, like in the uh, streets, you know, you can't call me a MOOC. But yeah, massive, <laughs> yeah. massive online, whatever right. the other courses. Yeah. I happen to learn. Some people don't learn well that way. I happen to learn watching That's lectures. Okay. Yep. Cannot find a course on, forget Marxism. Forget, I mean, just cannot find a class on Marx. Cannot find a class on the history of the American labor movement. They do not teach the history of the American. Forget Taft-Hartley. Forget learning about card check. You can't even get a college-level course in a MOOC on the on the history of the labor movement. I, I doubt they even teach it in high school. I'm sure they teach us about Cesar Chavez. But w- would you consider teaching? Would you come up with a curriculum? A perimeter I mean, to teach the history of the labor uh, movement? Well, I don't think they would 
I don't think they would let me teach the class because I don't have the right, uh, the right, you know, sort of academic background for that. Oh, that's right. I was going to, but, 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 but I, I will, uh, I will say this one, this, right. Like I, I know you need to get to the, the next guest, but I'll say, um, you know, I'll, I'll recommend a, a book, you know, that like is one of the places where I learned the most uh, about, about some of this stuff. And, and I think the, uh, I think the author of that book, you know, might be a good future, you know, future guest, and, you know, distinguished FU scholar, uh, was uh, Sean Richmond has a book called uh, Tell the Bosses That We're Coming, uh, where where he uh, he does a pretty deep dive into some of this this history and this and exactly the question that you're raising about what it means for the future. You know, could you have a resurgence in in organized labor without the laws changing first? Uh, is there a problem about which one? You know, which one of these comes first? So, uh, so so yeah, I'd, I'd recommend F U um, F U. Yeah. Now, I'm not talking about the university that I found. Just- <laughs> <laughs> we, we should talk about Feldman University doing a, uh, a 52 year course on the history of the labor movement, because it's people don't. I don't know. The history of the labor movement, and they, they don't want us to know, do they? Uh, yeah, no, I mean, I, I think that's right. I mean, I think that the people, um, you know, the people, there are like places where, um, like where Sean teaches, it's like this like, like labor center that's linked to the city university of New York. There are things like that, but you know, few and far between because, you know, most look, I mean, most university administrators, you know, are come out of like a corporate kind of background. Can we get an adjunct professor who sleeps in his car? Cause he's not paid enough to teach a course in the history of labor. Is that possible? Yeah, yeah probably. Yeah, you probably could. You. <laughs> Professor Ben Burgess, by the way, fired me from the podcast. That's right. That's right with, yeah. uh, Speaking yeah, of labor relations. Labor violation of all these labor things. I, I fired you from the job. I wasn't paying you for uh, I, that. My Sundays are, are every Sunday. I would edit your podcast and yeah. put in subliminal messages that you didn't know about. Yeah, we, we started. Uh, yeah, we so so instead of pre-recording it and then editing over the weekend, we started doing it live on uh, Monday nights. So, uh, as which which means the only way that you have left to put in subliminal messages is just to come back as a guest. Okay, sold. Professor Ben Burgess has a great piece. It real. I we didn't get to talk about it enough in Jacobin. Go pick up Jacobin. Subscribe to Jacobin. Get ready to fight Joe Biden by Professor Ben Burgess, who also teaches at Perimeter College. And you can listen to his podcast. Give them an argument. Read his book. Give them an argument. Logic for the left. And when does the new book come out? End of April. I understand you have a very annoying comedian who you interviewed for the book. Uh, yeah, I mean, whatever. He has his moments. Thank you, Professor. <laughs> Thank you, comedian. Thank you. Let us now go to Dr. Ethan Hershenfeld and his son, Dr. Philip Hershenfeld and Ethan Hershenfeld. Dr. Hershenfeld is a it says Ethan Hershenfeld. It's Philip Hershenfeld. You're the Freudian psychiatrist and Ethan is the actor comedian good evening why does your dad come in as ethan 
I don't know. That's weird. He, he's popping up as Ethan, but you can hit the, the rename button. You can rename yourself anything on here. Okay. Like you can rename, for example, sometimes I put my name up and then I say my pronouns. My pronouns are uh, me, my, mine. <laughs> okay. It's selfish. So which came first, the chicken or the egg? I'm glad you asked a vegan. Uh, <laughs> the answer is uh, the tofu. Uh, the tofu. If you ask who came first, the tofu or the seitan, I could answer that. Uh, <laughs> the answer is neither. Dr. Hershenfeld, yes. you, you look, may I say, you you look, Ethan, your, your dad agree. looks, he looks fantastic. I, I saw, I actually, I'm not kidding. I saw the same thing. You look like uh, a full administration younger. He, he, I, I, you know what? You look like, uh, can I, I don't want to mean to be disrespectful. But you look like a magazine ad for some kind of pharmaceutical product that I should take. Doesn't he? Jelzens. Can I tell you a secret, David? Yes. I got a new computer this week. Ah. Makes you look great. (laughs) This is an Apple advertisement, and I got... Fifty thousand dollars for saying that on air. That, Ask no, your doctor that, about MacBook. <laughs> Ask your doctor about MacBook. May cause bleeding. <laughs> doctor Hershenfeld. Yes. Do you right. feel better now that Donald Trump is gone? I do feel better. I feel a big sigh of relief, as does everybody I know. Um, but it's not absolute. And I think uh, we have to be prepared for whatever comes next. I should also point out that the sigh of relief is very different among the Jewish people. I don't know if you know this. A Gentile sigh of relief goes like this. Ah. <laughs> a, a Jewish sigh of relief goes like this. <sighs> and who gets named? Why would Jews name their kids sigh? Yeah, it's terrible. Yeah. That's also, like, Mel. 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 Is terrible. Yeah. Mel. Yeah. That's Ethan. Are you optimistic? Did you watch the inauguration? And most importantly, I'm going to ask you this first. How important is the pageantry? The pageantry uh, on a scale of one to ten. Get the bell ready. It's a seven. OK, hang on. Let me get the seven. hang on. That is correct. <laughs> now we're now we're all set. Because without the pageantry, it's it's like let me, again. I don't. I, I'm coming off as very Jewish here, but it's like a bar mitzvah without a band. <laughs> I mean, you still become a man, but you know your relatives aren't complaining about how loud the band is the whole time. So mm-hmm. it's not a complete experience. Uh, Why you, is the band so loud? Is, is that by design? That, that is actually, uh, it has a rabbinical, it goes way back to the uh, rabbinical texts. It's a medieval thing. There was uh, the the uh, the rabbi of Chelm, um, <laughs> he was actually a hard of hearing. He demanded the extreme volume in the music at every bar mitzvah and in the tradition carried on. Is that part of the plan, doctor? My, my theory about the music is it's so loud because nobody really wants to talk to one another. So they have an excuse that the people throwing the bar mitzvah or the wedding think, I don't want to talk to these people. Just make it so loud that you can't carry on a conversation. 
I think the loud is strictly for the benefit of the band because they like to play loud and they think that advertising is very helpful to them. But I can tell you when Ethan's sister got married, I went up to the band and I said, you play loud, you don't get paid at the end of the evening. I actually said that. Good. And he also said, you play soft, you also don't get paid. <laughs> and now play. He, he's, he's like a mafioso. The Goldilocks sound. He's looking for the Goldilocks sound. No gold. But, and did that help my statement? It helped for five minutes to, to, to use an old Yiddish phrase like cupping helps a dead person. Yeah. Cupping. I mean, putting leeches via Teuton bankus. That's how you say that in Yiddish. That's hilf via Teuton bankus. It, it was a medieval treatment. You, you heat little cups, you put them on your skin. It's supposed to draw out the poisons from your system. It's medieval, but it's also available on North 9th Street in Williamsburg for $500 <laughs> a minute. <laughs> These things come back. <laughs> it is, but you're right. It does come back. Yeah. yeah. What, uh, what is it? Reeking? Where you put your hands over somebody and heal them. Oh, Reiki. Reiking. I, yeah. I know a dentist who has studied this and sa says he can heal you psychically by just waving his hands over you. I know a gardener in the neighborhood who actually can heal reiki your leaves off your lawn. <laughs> he doesn't get out of the truck. Now, do you, yes. do you understand Yiddish, Ethan? I speak a, a little bit. My, my mom's father grew up speaking Yiddish in Brooklyn. He was born in, in 1909. And but he was Irish he Catholic. Said, How is that possible? Yeah, he had to, you know, he had to communicate with the guy who delivered the seltzer. <laughs> no, he um, so he taught me a few phrases. And then over the years, I've done a few roles where I've had to speak some Yiddish or learn some phrases for an, for an audition. So that was it. Do more people speak Yiddish today than they did 30 years ago? Because wasn't it dying out at, at some point? Oh. It was well, a dead... 70% of the Yiddish speakers in the world were murdered in the Second World War. So then Allegedly. <laughs> that is, you, you are, that reminds me of every meal I ever had with my parents, what you just did, Ethan. It's like, it's like I'm 18 and having dinner with my parents, allegedly. <laughs> and my mother would get upset and my father would start laughing. <laughs> my mother would get allegedly. <laughs> that was like, I just went back in time. To, By the way, I was talking about um, what, when Yiddish really went, went in a lull in popularity. That was back when that book, The Joy, The Joys of Yiddish. The Leo Rostin. The Joys of Yiddish was not hearing it. <laughs> but then it made a resurgence. Well, my I, my father, we weren't allowed to speak Yiddish growing. I, like, I remember I used a Yiddish expression in front of my dad's boss, and he was my dad. Yeah. Don't don't do that. 
Don't. You just cost me my raise. Yeah, don't do that. Too. By don't. the way, when I had this audition where I had to ad lib in Yiddish, Dad, you you hooked me up with one of your colleagues who speaks Yiddish. Right. So he just gave me a whole bunch of phrases which I memorized so I could pull them out. And my one of my favorite was "Du sollst wachsen wie Zwiebel mit den Kopf in Dreher, which means "May you grow like an onion with your head in the earth." <laughs> Hey, I saw a comedian named Renan Hirschberg. Have you seen this guy? Oh, yeah, he's very funny. Yeah. I yeah. stumbled upon him. Yeah, he's on uh, 800 Pound Gorilla Records, the same company that put out my album. He's very funny. And, and I try to get him on the show today. He's going to do it next week. Nice. He's unapologetically Jewish and just goes out there. And, he, you know, he's he must be in his, what, late 20s, 30s? Oh, yeah, yeah. Is that a new generation of American Jew? Because my generation of American Jew was, you know, don't be a professional Jew. Just go out there. Don't just be an American. Don't go, hey, everybody, I'm a Jew. Yeah. Uh, and this guy, Renan Hirschberg, hysterically funny yeah. and plays with the stereotypes in, a, in an inoffensive way. And my reaction being much older than he I, i'm thinking well is that wise and, and so has it changed a little in this country where it's okay to be a professional jew for everybody it's changed i don't think it's limited to jews i think uh all minorities are, are feeling their oats wow what well, what? <laughs> allegedly. I mean, allegedly. No, that phrase that minorities are feeling. They're, well, that's, they're, that's they're, a verbatim quote from Strom Thurmond. <laughs> <laughs> I know you didn't mean it that way. Um, but they're 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 saying I have an identity. This is who I am. Yeah. And it's funny. And you called your album Thug Thug Jew. And I, I without being presumptuous, I would assume your father, uh, well, I, don't, I, I, I shouldn't assume what your father thought, but were you completely comfortable calling? It, it took, it actually took me a little getting my head around. I realized at a certain point, that's the perfect title for the album. It comes right out of one of my jokes. It says a lot about what the album's about, but I did have that moment of like, oh, this is a little, this isn't going to sell well in Kansas. But then I thought, it's not going to sell in Kansas anyway, and maybe this will actually pique someone's interest. Um, but the other thing I want to say about your question about younger people going out and owning it, younger comedians, a lot of times, like going out and saying at the beginning of your act, like, hey, I'm Jewish, you know, like the, my thought is like, yeah, no kidding. Like, of course, you're a stand up comic. Look at you. Like, obviously, like it sort of goes without saying on some level. We've talked about this before. I feel like. Stand up comedy, the whole world. No, not exactly, but I mean this topic that the world, especially in the states, especially in the big cities of stand up, it's so Jewish that I don't know. It doesn't seem like uh, any risk to to just put it out there. If you were, if you had a fictitious son, Doctor Hershenfeld, yes, and he's just he's in his twenties. Yeah. And you go see his act and he's a bit of a professional Jew. Right. He's doing jokes about being Jewish. Right. And it, would you well, you would I would assume you wouldn't say anything. That's none of your business. Right. 
you wouldn't not my business, but I would applaud it. Actually, suppose he's putting in, he's playing with fire. Namely, what's the fire? The stereotypes. Look at Jackie Mason. He made a career of that. No. Do you approve of Jackie Mason? I don't. He was a very funny guy. But I don't approve of him. Because of what? Well, his... I won't talk about his personal life. I'll just talk... I'm talking about... uh, The stuff he says that he trafficked in stereotypes that... And that were uh, were borderline, and he said some things about African-Americans that... I'm not aware of. Okay. Yeah. That, that, and, and he has a conservative streak that's borderline fascist. I mean, his best friend is Raul Felder, that should say enough. So, yes. Mm-hmm. Is he one of the greatest stand-ups who ever did it? Absolutely. But I'd have to put him in the same category as Sam Kennison. And Andrew Dice Clay, problematically funny. You know? Well, part, part of um, the function of humor is to be able to say things that nobody else can say uh, and to get a laugh out of it. L- like the court jester could say things to the king, anybody else would get their head cut off and when the court jester said it, the king would laugh. The difference there, of course, is that they're, the jester's punching up. He's making fun of the king, who has nothing to actually worry about, whereas the examples of people punching down at someone who's actually um, been raked over the coals, that's, that's an important difference. Is ethnic humor, it's, it's problematic, ethnic humor there 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 was a generation in the 60s and the 70s that looked down on ethnic humor they didn't think you should talk about it It was you know blend in be part of the melting pot that it's easy myself when it comes to my ethnicity i think of myself as a proud boy I mean, not that the name is taken, but you know, the idea, just a proud boy. Like I'm, I feel young and proud. So a proud boy. How would you get to them? If, if, if is there any way to get to the proud? I have, a, I have a joke that, that makes fun of them on my album, which is that, uh, you know, those, those Nazis in Charlottesville, they were chanting Jews will not replace us. It sounds like a chant. I would have heard from all of the appliances in my parents' kitchen. <laughs> That's it's not really it's not hard hitting. It's just kind of what did you what did you see, Dr. Hershenfeld, during the inauguration that gave you hope? What did you see that? I saw bad hair plugs. I I saw a president having seriously an unlucky day with the hair transplants. Yeah, but but that's part of what I saw, too, that I liked, which is I'm not the first person to say this boringness. We need a little bit of boringness. Absolutely. And, and, and that, uh, I think, is good for the soul. And in relation to your previous discussion that you were having, not that I consider myself a, a, a politico in any sense. However, I'll venture to say this. 
My guess is that after our last four years, people are going to want a little bit of calm and a little bit of centrism. Not everybody, but a lot of people. So the idea of, of any kind of progressives or radicals making a big headway, I don't know about that one. Yeah. Uh, yeah. it's I think people want calm, but I don't think they're getting I don't think they're getting it. I think the economy is so shot and yeah. uh yeah, I, I don't know. I, I'm I, I'm not particularly optimistic. I am very optimistic. You are tell I, good. I want to hear. Tell me why you're I'm optimistic. optimistic. I felt like it was it was just such a huge relief that that guy is gone. We got the new guy in who's a professional. Government needs to be run by professionals. To hear that, did you hear any of these uh, press conferences with the new press secretary? It was incredible to have someone just speak it's, like a human, not be a troll, not be a, I mean, that those blondes that he would get in there from Spicer through the last one, they, they were just trolls, it turns out. I mean, and you forgot that. To see someone right. up there just asking questions, it was such a relief. My God. And also to have someone who's actually like Fauci today was saying that he just got off. He just he was on stage. He said, I was just talking to Biden. He said, science first, science, science, science. That's what we're going with, science. The idea that this is revelatory, but at the moment it is. What a relief. Like you go to your doctor and it's actually a doctor, not a mechanic. That is, that's a big, that's a relief. How did it happen, Dr. Hershenfeld? If the nightmare is over and it doesn't come back, how did it happen? How do you explain? Enough people had had enough. Enough people uh, saw that he is responsible for hundreds of thousands of deaths in this country. Now, I happen to know somebody in my family, not my immediate family, but married into the fringes of the family, who is a Trumper. Maybe he's even a Q. I don't even I don't know. He maybe he would not admit that. But when he was confronted with the, and this is a young man, when he was confronted with the idea that Trump has uh, allowed this pandemic to spread and kill, and he said, well, everybody has to die sometime. That, I mean, that's the most insane uh, drinking the Kool-Aid but, but that's literally, yeah. I mean, that is something yeah. that they would say in Guyana with Jim Maybe Jones. But, by yeah. the way, you know when Q is going to reveal himself, don't you? When? Anon. <laughs> <laughs> a little Elizabethan humor. Yeah. A little. Are, are they capable? Because you, I don't, I'm reading that Q now is disappointed with Trump and they feel betrayed. I happen to think those are fake. I think those are FBI agents going in to to those discussion boards and getting them to to question themselves. If you went this far to believe that Donald Trump was the savior and was doing undercover work to root out a cabal of pedophiles, including Tom Hanks, which is a stroke of genius. I mean, come on, you know, the idea that Tom, this is like something we would come up with here 
to see if we could get this thing going. If you believe that, you're going to gloss over the inconvenient fact that Donald Trump peacefully left office, right? You're, you're going to come up with a new reason. It's like, you know, hey, that Reverend Hagee, who says, you know, the apocalypse is next Friday. Right. Oh, I was using the Julian calendar instead. They always have an excuse, right? Some people, some people, you know, there are precedents for this in history, not just Jim Jones. But did you ever hear of Shabtite Svi? No. Famous movement, I think, in the 16th century. Guy by the name of Shabtite Svi appears in Europe with a with with a guy called Nathan of Gaza. Nathan of Gaza says, "This guy's the Messiah." Wait, Nathan of Gaza? I I got my bagels there okay. on 14th Street. Hot dogs. It's hot dogs. Oh, sorry. Thousands, thousands and thousands of Jews sold their houses, uprooted themselves, followed him. And they were going to go, you know, with Messiah to Palestine. Well, the Sultan in 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 Turkey at some point decided this guy's bad for my uh, business. So he he told Shabtai to me, "I'll tell you, I'll give you a deal. Either you convert to Islam, or I'll cut your head off." So, being a practical man, he converted to Islam, <laughs> and and they cut his head off. <laughs> They didn't. So what happened? Thousands of his followers were totally disillusioned, crushed, went home with their tail between their legs. But thousands more became a new religion, which was called Sabbateanism. And they were sort of Jews, but they were also followers of, of, of Shabtai Tzvi. And I think you're seeing a very similar thing here. Some people are saying, were we duped? This is horrible. Did I really alienate my whole family? Uh, and the whole thing was phony. Those are people with a little bit more reality testing. I wonder but what the percentage is. I don't know the percentage. But I'll tell you, you got the bell ready? I got the bell ready, yes. 17. But, That's correct. But a lot of the other people are simply going to say, well, Trump, he, Trump is the Messiah, and he did flee, but he's coming back. Right. I've heard that one before. <laughs> For a couple of months. Right. The Messiah is returning. Can yeah. I tell you a delicious anecdote from this thing I just heard? A comedian friend of mine in, uh, in Pennsylvania, uh, he had a bet with a woman who owns a club in another city. The woman is full cue. And she said to him, and he 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 published the uh, the chat so you could see their conversation. She said to him, "If Biden's actually inaugurated, I'm giving you the deed to the club in this town. But if but if if Trump stays in office, you promise to leave the country like you've been threatening to do." So this comedian friend of mine said, "Yeah, I'll take that bet. Should I draw up the paperwork?" <laughs> and then yesterday he wrote her a public uh, message saying. Okay, we're good. I'm, you know, I'm waiting for the deed. It's pretty sweet. Yeah. Uh, Before you go, Dr. Hershenfeld, is there any cult-like belief that you can think of that you you held uh, and then changed your mind? Did you have like this moment where you believed something either about America, Israel, uh, yourself, 
American history. And then it was almost like a cult-like thought. And you went, I, I don't believe that anymore. I, I, to me, the Democratic Party, uh, Obama, the Clintons, uh, to me, that was where I went, wow, this is just complete. I had one of those things. I know my father did, but let me answer. My answer is shorter. I had one. It was Soul Cycle. I was full. I was I was all in. I was, uh-huh. but it turned out. Uh, anyway, Dad, you go. You have a better story. I, I would. That's a complicated question. I think I'm going to have to think about it for a week. I'll be glad to address it. But I, but I would say. Well, I was religious for a while, but they say that religions are not quite the same thing as cults. The religions are wider, more accepted type of a thing, but very often cults then turn into a religion. Mm-hmm. So, it, it, David, I will. You'll get back to me on this. I will get back to you on. This. But I would say that's what I was thinking. I would say you did have that experience by being very religious and then being completely secular. Okay, that's me. Uh, all right. Dr. Philip Hershenfeld, thank you so much. Uh, Bert Ross is here with, and he loves Ethan. I just want you to know that Bert Ross is in love with your son. Okay. Don't feel threatened by it. He's got a girlfriend, though, so I'm not sure. (laughs) Out. Hey, I'm I'm, I'm open to all kinds of arrangements. (laughs) Joining us. Thank you, doctor. Ethan, you're going to stick around, right? Yeah, I'm going to stick around. Thank you. Let us now go to Malibu, where Bert Ross, columnist for the Malibu Times, is standing by. Besides being a humorist, he is also the creator of New Jersey's right turn on red. Is that correct? We've had, you know, it's amazing. Every single week, we have the identical conversation and, and the only assumption I can make is that his audience never stays for more than one week. And so he feels he can do the identical. I, I introduced you as a columnist I, for the Malibu Times. That's, that's a, fine. That's a that's new. Thing. The other thing I did 72 years ago, I didn't create it. You I created the right mother, turn on I red. In Florida, I was driving in Florida and everybody was making a right turn on red. So I said, this seems good. And I went to the governor and I said, governor. This is a great idea. And he said the attorney general doesn't like it. So I went to the attorney general. He said, it's fine. I went back to the governor. He said, the attorney general doesn't like it. I said, governor, the attorney general does like it. And even if he didn't, you could tell him you are the governor and you appointed him. This is one of the few laws where literally 99% of the people like it. Okay. You don't have to stay at a red light. You save energy. You don't pollute. No, it's hard not to. I, uh, okay, and you're, and you're coming after me. You know, I used to have Jonas Salk on the show all the time. And I said, I can't have you on anymore because I, Burt Ross, I'd rather have Burt Ross on. And all the times I had Jonas Salk on, he never complained to me that I always introduced him as the guy who came up with the polio vaccine. Boy, if you if you invent something I mean, like the I mean, polio I mean, vaccine or the right did turn on meet, red. Did, did you ever meet Jonas Salk or is that just your stick? That's the truth. 
He he had he used to be on my show all the time. When? Then I start having you on. I said, "Yes, Jonas, your your history. What have you done lately for me? Unless you come up with another vaccine, I'm going for a younger demo." Imagine for a minute that your legacy is saving millions and millions of kids from getting polio. You know, I, you know, how many people can say they've done anything remotely like that? I mean, gee, that uh, having had polio and clearly it doesn't matter how old I am. I look back at my life and that was by far the most horrific experience of my life. But being in a hospital for five months and worse than being on this show. <laughs> well, not it. <laughs> He said, why didn't you say that? that was, <laughs> he was, Ethan was thinking that. It depends. A couple of weeks ago, I would have said that was. That What's was the cool. worst experience of your life, Ethan? Oh, I spent, I think I mentioned this when we were going to talk about it. I spent a whole night locked up in Brooklyn at Central Booking, um, shackled and moved around in, in the heat of, it was September 1st, 2010. It was hot. There's no air. The other people who were locked up were like smoke. There was threats. There was potential violence at any moment. There was a potential fire. It was horrific. I ended up, it was a false arrest. The city ended up paying me back for all the lawyers fees, <laughs> but it was traumatizing. I left there with a backache that lingered for a month. It was so stressful. It was incredible. Yeah. You know what the worst okay, experience? That's like we're talking about casting when you said central booking. No, no, central auditioning. No, not central casting. Central That's a bigger nightmare. Big, dif- big difference. They never take me at central casting. Central booking, yeah. The worst no, experience uh, of my life yeah. was a month ago on the Smithsonian Channel. They did a documentary about elevators, and they told a story of a, a man who worked in the McGraw-Hill building for, I believe... Forbes magazine or Money magazine, and they his job was to help put the magazine to bed on Friday night. He goes out for a smoke at nine o'clock. He goes back into the elevator. And it gets stuck on the 12th floor. And he's in there until Sunday in the elevator Friday night until Sunday. And it's all captured on tape. And watching that was the worst experience of my life. It was so I I was getting I I must have had three panic attacks watching this guy stuck in the elevator. I once got stuck on an escalator. (laughs) In Poland, that happens a lot in Poland, I believe. The part probably the worst part of that tape you watch, David, is when he eats his own arm. Yeah, I don't want to even want to talk about getting. Do you do you, do you get claustrophobia, Bert? I'm not fond of it. Of being in enclosed places. I, I have a little fear of heights, which is what acrophobia. That's why you do my show. Fear of heights. I actually have a fear of widths. <laughs> rare. Extremely rare. So. I don't have to do it. You know what's amazing? Being the way this is formatted, I'm in between two comic geniuses. I can just sit and laugh. And that's what I need. 
Why? That's why that's why I sign up. I can just see here. Go to it, guys. What did you write about in the Malibu Times this week? You must be happy that that uh, neoliberal hack got inaugurated. Well, actually, I was upset. I wrote a, um, a guest editorial, which has nothing to do with my column, and they didn't run it. And it was kind of excellent about a local politician who's imitating Donald Trump. Um, with a lot of Joe, innuendo, you know, this corruption. Uh, he actually came up with, on election day, he came up with, with the following posting on Facebook, uh, that the city, which is corrupt, has cr- created a construction project at, at the intersection of two major roads in Malibu in order to suppress the vote on one side of Malibu from getting to their voting places. What's this and guy's name? Bruce Silverstone. Nice. And mm-hmm. it, it, borders, it borders on insanity. Uh, first of all, it wasn't a city project. But secondly, and, and by the way, I was in the traffic jam. It was like 10 or 15 minutes. You got people waiting in, in Georgia for five, six hours. And in North Carolina, uh, some, some rich folk in Malibu can wait 10, 15 minutes. And what does Bruce Silverstein do other than produce movies? He's actually not a, not a movie producer. I think he's a somewhat retired attorney, but he's come into town with the assumption that everybody's a crook. And in Malibu, all, he's probably right. No, he's not. He's actually probably wrong. You can't have he, a fortune. He actually worked, he actually worked with, a, uh, with a former councilman, mayor, because everybody who's on the council ends up being mayor. They rotate every nine and a half months. The chief executive. It's like a participation trophy becoming mayor. And the guy who was in office on his way out had Bruce prepare an affidavit, which he signed, saying that 11 years ago, I'm not making this up. He was offered a bribe. And he mentioned in great detail all the things he had been offered, a trip to Costa Rica, a trip to Las Vegas, but he couldn't remember for the life of him who offered him the bribe. Think about it. And then, if that's not bad enough, um, we award all the contracts to the low bidder. So why you would bribe somebody, a councilman has no impact on it. If the guy bids low and he's qualified, he gets the job. And this is the kind of innuendo. Um, it's something that's throughout the country. Uh, the, the conspiracy theories, the assumption um, of the negative. I mean, we had uh, a dear friend of mine, we had, after the fire, this terrible fire where I lost my home two years ago, uh, a friend of mine said, you know, the city manager left Malibu and went on vacation to Hawaii one week after the fire. I said, that sounds implausible. What is the source of your information? She said, oh, I read it on the Internet. I said, well, that's not a source. The fact is she hadn't been away in 30 years. Of course, she didn't go away. She hadn't gone away for maybe 12 weeks after the fire. It just is this inability for people to process information. It's like if somebody reads it in the paper. In the old days, if you read in the newspaper, you assumed it was a fact. Now, Malibu, Malibu. Low income housing is what, like homes that are two million? The I'm not making this up. It's it's ridiculous. In the past year, the median, as many above as below, went from three, five to almost five million, four, nine something. 
the the average because you have houses here that go for 80 million 100 million is over six million is it considered a lot <laughs> no if you buy excuse me if you buy the lot that that reminds me i went down to a, to a hotel called the montage magnificent hotel years ago in laguna beach and that's when i was investing with bernie madoff and i felt like i had money to burn and, they were and you did, it turns out. <laughs> Thank you. Correct. And I go down there, and they're building some homes next to the hotel, but on the hotel property. And they're home. So I go down, and I see where they're selling the homes. And I said, you know, I, I'd like to look into this. Um, what, what's available? She said, uh, well, we have nothing available. Well, everything's sold out. I said, well, what would a house cost? She said, well, it, start, it started at $4 million. I said, that's a lot for a house. She said, Mr. Ross, that's not for the house. That's for the lot. That's a lot. And I, I walked out feeling not that wealthy. Well, tell me, ask you about Bernie Madoff. You've never talked to him. I talked to him one time. Bernie. And I said, Mr. Madoff, and he took my call. I was very, very flattered because I'd never met him. This is an affinity scam. Yes. I'm trying to get one going. So let me learn how to pull an affinity well, scam off. He, when you think about it, uh, I don't think in the history of Ponzi schemes, and I doubt in the future, that anybody will compete with Bernie Madoff. The man was an absolute genius. And I, without mentioning friends, because they continue to be my friend, some very wealthy people whom I know invested with him, and I figured stupidly, if it's good enough for them, it's good enough for me. Rule number one is do your own homework. But I called him up. We were doing very well. And the key, by the way, he the returns in those days of 10% a year were not ridiculous. They were, you know, in those days, interest rates were high and people were getting decent returns. But what most people liked, especially as we got older, was that you had a professional manager and your return was consistent. And that was actually the tell. A professional could look at those. I have a friend who looked at those back in the 90s. He had a great aunt who was investing with him. They showed how consistent it was. And he said, without even going further, that's a fraud. Because they and said, he returns 8% every year, no matter what. He said, oh, well, that's a fraud. Yeah. And the problem is that there were some amazingly sophisticated investors. I mean, Kaufman, Henry Kaufman, for God's sakes, of Solomon Brothers, the man was a guru for years, 20, 30 years ago, invested with them. Anyway, um, so let me, let me, let me, without, oh, go ahead. Let me right. give you the one goddamn conversation I had with him, and then we can get. Okay. I have a lot of questions to ask you about this because I think he smelled good. I have a feeling he smelled really good. I never, I was never in his presence. I called him up. I have two front row tickets behind the Knicks bench. And at a time when the Knicks were champions, it was very great seats. And I called him up and I said, you know, I really want to congratulate you on the fine job you're doing for me. And if you want to use my seats for a game, I'd be happy to give them to you. And he said, Bert, thank you very much. But I own a couple of a pair of seats already. I didn't realize that I own two pair of seats at Madison Square. He was buying it with my money. Right. I mean, like, it was like I was on a show and somebody said his penthouse. I said, excuse me. That's my penthouse. He's taking my money. I didn't know it at the time, obviously. Um, I learned a lot from that. Um, the can I just ask you, 
Yeah. Oh, sorry. Sorry. No, go ahead. No, I was just curious. Is the city of Malibu angry at Chevy for naming such a bad car after such a nice place? I feel like that car should be named the Grand Rapids. Like it's <laughs> a less fancy name. It's just a, it's I like. Just, I've been to Grand Rapids. It's, it's, it's fine, but it's. I mean, Malibu. That should be like a, a Rolls Royce Malibu. It shouldn't no. be a Chevy Malibu. Uh, it's interesting because I think that they hired somebody four or five years ago, the city, to see how they could sell the name to different, I don't think, uh, I doubt that, she, that General Motors pays Malibu for the use of the town. It's so strange because when I looked out, out in California, and I, I really like California, especially Southern California, pr- primarily because of the weather. Um, and I looked at a bunch of towns. I really didn't know much from, from Malibu. It, it wasn't the, the pizzazz of, of Malibu had no appeal to me, particularly. I remember uh, a broker taking me out and saying, you know, if you go out on the balcony and you lean, you can see the chimney of Barbara Streisanders. I mean, who gives a crap? I mean, it was, or, or your neighbor is so-and-so. It had no meaning to me. It actually, I said to, to the guy, it's really a turnoff. And I started using another broker. Uh, but it's a beautiful. Who just happened, who just happened to be Burgess Meredith broker but it didn't mean anything to bert but he kept burgess calling meredith. me burgess meredith's broker i, I, like, Bert- burgess. I like burgess meredith i remember him in uh i may be making this up but i think he may have been in a, of the original of mice and men the movie get back in there rock. <laughs> <laughs> i hear he was a bad neighbor i hear he's i had i heard he had he was not a good neighbor. That's what I heard. I have, I have, I've never heard that he even lived here. I, what's sad sometimes is you have these great actors and they're remembered for crap. Uh, you know, it's, 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 you're, you're remembered by a whole new generation. It's like, it's like somebody went, a kid saw uh, Joe DiMaggio at the airport and got all excited. Daddy, daddy, uh, Mr. Coffee. <laughs> the, uh, well, let's go back to Malibu because they say the yeah, shallower of the pond. Also, let's go back to because I, I feel like that car should be called the Trenton. <laughs> yes. I, okay, sorry. Go ahead. I, they say the shallower I, I, the I, pond, I, the meaner the uh, fish. Right. It's interesting because Malibu, if I were to use an analogy, is to Beverly Hills what Martha's Vineyard is uh, to the Hamptons. It's a, and again, I'm generalizing. It's a pretty dressed down place. Malibu. There are yes, not a ton. So of they don't wear tuxedos on the beach, is what you're saying. Uh, most of the time, dressing up is going from a t-shirt, which is what I'm wearing. To a polo shirt. By the way, uh, on the beach, there's a thing called the tux speedo. My tux speedo. The speedo with a bow tie. <laughs> uh, yes. I will make my son uh, owns a owns part of a, uh, a a swimwear company, Solid and oh. Stripe. So I'll mention that to him. Suggestive. T- yeah. Your son owns a, a swimwear company. He owns a piece of significant. He was the founder of Solid and Stripe, which is a Quite a successful swimmer company. Wow. And also, your daughter is a pediatrician. It's all true. But getting Welcome to, to let's make David Feldman feel, 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 feel like shit. Let's when you go to, when let's, you go to Beverly Hills, it you immediately feel you sense the wealth. Um 
the cars, the, the, the way people dress. And you know, I don't have that sense of Malibu. Most of the, again, I'm sure there's a social scene here and there are certain people who dress up and have cocktail parties, but most of the people I know, and I know quite a few, are pretty down to earth. And, but what and are the, po- let me ask you this question. What are the politics? You talk about this guy Silverstein, the lawyer. Is it getting? Does it get ugly there? Silverstein supported uh, um, Biden, and uh, we got about seventy percent of the vote was for Biden. No, what are what are you fighting about? Do you go to the city council meetings? What are they arguing about? Do they did they finally fix the sewage problem in Malibu? I didn't know we had one. You have a sewage uh, problem. Well, good to hear that. Yeah, you're Um, all full of shit. Everybody who lives in Malibu is... No. uh, No, they do have a sewage problem. Do you you detect that um, our host has a very negative attitude towards all elite... Yes, yes, I do. I think he's got a problem. He hates our alma mater. He calls it the cause of all evil in the world. Yes. By the way, the, did you like the girl yesterday, the 22-year-old poet at the inauguration? She was the, she was a superstar. Bergen yes. Community College. Bergen Community College. No, she did not. Well, she went to Harvard, but it turns out she was also in Dunster House. I heard she was from the same dorm where I spent three years. So I knew, I knew the master, uh, a good friend of mine, Sally Pappenheimer, her father. Hey. Was the, he was the... Uh, master of Dunster House. I hated the word master. I know. Hmm. Yeah. Was well, he the master when you were at Dunster House? Pappenheimer? Hey, no, guess no, what? No, he was dead by then. You know what? I didn't go to Harvard. And you know what else? I didn't get taken by Bernie Madoff. Boom. Boom. Hmm. You know, Pappenheim. That, that, Pappenheim how does that make you feel? I think it's I think it's extraordinarily sensitive of you. Insensitive? Yes. And, and if I weren't a wise ass, I could say a few things, but you're the host and I'm the guest. Uh, I try to treat you with a, a modicum of respect. <laughs> I think, quite frankly, the modicum of respect I'm paying you is way too much. <laughs> what's, the, uh, what's the exchange rate on a modicum? <laughs> Bitcoins and, uh, and a token. I don't know. Uh, Don't you think, but seriously, with Bernie Madoff, because you've never talked about this before. When you you Google, excuse me, if you Google Burt Ross, Bernie Madoff, you will be tired of watching me. I was on. I remember one of the few people. I don't like the word victim. uh, And so when people would call me a victim, I would say investor. Um, I was on. You named the show and I was on it, including. um, uh frontline nightline uh firing line i was on frontline once to prevent ticks <laughs> that's a joke about a, a pet product yes Thank you. yes <laughs> see what happens you do my show long enough ethan you stop yeah, being funny. funny have you noticed <laughs> i thought it was funny i like it um <laughs> you know I, I was on i i felt it was therapeutic to talk about it and uh, I was one of the very few people who spoke in his trial. Yeah. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. Uh, at, a se- at a sentencing. I'm sorry. But, but when th- doesn't the Bernie Madoff scandal lay bare that Wall Street in and of itself is fraud? 
the idea that anybody can outperform the market, that the only way you can outperform the market is if you're committing fraud. That there's no. no such thing as a financial guru. I don't think that's true. I think it is. For, I, I don't um, think anybody can come up with a, investment advice that's solid without it being fraud, which explains why Larry Summers, the economic genius who was president of Harvard, yes. when he was there, the endowment lost money when... The stock market was going up. I was not a fan of Larry Summers. Um, he had an arrogance. There, there, there is part of Harvard. I don't know if you experienced this, Ethan. Uh, that has a certain arrogance and and and. How about all of it? Much. No, 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 not at all. I, I aspired to that, but I. I <laughs> I never was able to achieve the arrogance. Yeah. But, um, you know the official position of this show, fellas, don't you? Anti-Harvard. No, anti-Harvard. Not, not only anti-Harvard, that you should not hire anybody who went to Harvard, that it's a character flaw, and that people who, you should be stigmatized. Hey, but how many people have you hired recently? And when was the last time you hired somebody? I, but I, my message is don't hire Harvard. You should yeah. not hire Harvard. They, they've they ruined uh, America. I'm very fortunate. I worked for myself most of my life, and I, I did all right. Don't you think it should be broken up? Don't you think Harvard should be split no, into... No, hmm? uh, no, not at all. I think it's a... Um, like everything else, I think it has its faults. Um, but I think it's a, um, a phenomenal place to... To, to learn how to exploit people. people. Well, that, that's your view. And by the way, the woman who, read, who spoke, the poet... Laureate yeah. yesterday, whom everybody was impressed by. I don't think she's doing much exploitation, and she went to Harvard. So, I, you know, these, what I don't like about She had people, angel investors, you know, trust problem, me. She's got, problem, some, she's got an app. Problem, <laughs> the problem with all the generalizations is it, it's a sloppy mind. It's a simple mind that, that wants to put everything in a peg and, rather than think about it. it. Like everything else, there are good parts of it and, and bad parts of it. The part of it that I didn't care for was, and it didn't impact me, but there were many people who go to Harvard, I would say 10 or 20% of the class were geniuses. And many of them have a somewhat nerdy quality, not all of them. I'm, I'm talking about the 10 or 20% who are geniuses. And uh, a lot of them don't have social skills. Some of them are very young when they go to Harvard. Some of them have never been away from home for a, for a big period. And they're not at least when I was there, uh, the Ted Kaczynski's of the world to be hiding in a dorm and nobody's going to know that they need help. Uh, as a matter of fact, they hurt him rather than help him. Um, and it's not a soft and fuzzy place. For, for somebody like me, you throw me in the ocean and I swim. But for a lot of people, that's not the case. Is it about and, getting an education or is it about making connections? Would Bill Gates... And Zuckerberg, did they? In, oh, another Harvard douchebag. Jesus Christ. Who's up next? Well, I think <laughs> I'm surrounded. I think I, I think uh, when I would when I interviewed people at Harvard uh, and did you I'm going to get that? some water. Hey, you guys right talk. Now. I can't. Yes, <laughs> did I hear Harvard? I'll be right back. Harvard. But you know, now we can enjoy. Ethan. Yeah. Did you as, as an alumnus, did you interview anybody? I never did. I never got involved in that whole yeah. thing. 
I did, I interviewed about six people a year for 10 years, about 60 people, including Jared Kushner. Wow. And there were people whom I interviewed who in, during the interview, it, it was apparent to me that their main interest in going to Harvard was to make connections. And those people- Did you say that, did you- Let me, yeah, let me they, finish the thought, yes. I did say right, Jared Kushner. And I did not write those people good recommendation. Uh, there are people who clearly want to go there to get a top education. I just uh, coined a new expression. You can always tell a Harvard man because a Harvard man will tell you he went to Harvard. Hey, I never well, told I don't tell. So, but I, well, let me ask you this. Did you, I hope your report on the Kushner injury was this guy's a, an idiot and don't accept him. Uh, well, I'm, because you, you, treat interviews confidentially. Of course, of course. I would simply say that um, I was surprised that he was applying early when normally the top students are applying early and <clears throat> surprised that he got in. And right. he didn't get in because of some great review right. that I gave him. Yeah. I think um, a $1.2 million donation from his father. two and a half. I think it's two, yeah, more than two. Yeah. Well, it it was a decent uh, a decent one. Um, My parents only had to donate a million. That's funny. But, yeah. But, well, it counted as more because it came from an NYU alum. All right. Let's yeah. let, this conversation is offensive. Quite frankly, <laughs> Dude, <clears throat> it is. Started it's it. everything. You started it. David, are you? Did the, do you segue into the Amanda Gorman conversation now? Because she was a hard help. Yeah, so David, David conveniently, when you bring that to his attention, totally ignores it and, and, uh, and moves on. Do you realize if you didn't have Harvard graduates, you'd, you'd lose some of your finest guests? Ethan, don't you agree? I, uh, I can't, no comment. I can't comment. <laughs> Thank you. It just Thank so you happens that I have three of you assholes together. I, love, I put you all together so I can keep an eye on you. <laughs> Doesn't that tell you something? And by the way, I would imagine the three of us in many ways are, are different. And one of the one of the things I absolutely loved about Harvard and what and <sighs> which is very true of their uh, admissions policy is they really go for diversity. This is not the Harvard. This is not the Harvard of the 1950s. There have been some dramatic changes, um, and. I, I, they were a bulwark. They were one of the few institutions that stood up against Joe McCarthy. You remember Joe or, or David? You're very quiet now. Yeah. I, See, I believe he was, I Joe McCarthy was funded. I don't, Joe, I Joe don't McCarthy was funded by Joseph Kennedy and uh, who also funded Harvard. Oh, that's great. That is, that's, by the way, you know who would be proud of that logic? Joe McCarthy. The, and Joseph Kennedy. Yes, probably. The what I don't respect is somebody who insults the institution that we went to, but when asked where he attended, or I think got kicked out of, does refuses to this day to tell you. Isn't that interesting? Because you know why? Do you know why? Yeah, because you're ashamed. I am ashamed. Shonda. I'm ashamed. I'm ashamed of where I went to college. Mrs. Feldman, are you listening? Your late husband 
spent money to send him to college, and he flunked out. I didn't flunk out. I have my Never degree. Went. Never got a degree. I got my degree, but I don't. Tr- I, I I don't believe that where you went to. One of the things I have oh, learned I, is I remember that that punchline of your graduation speech. Go ahead, David. Where I say it's, it's not where you went to college; it's where you say you went to college. That's yes. But he did such. He did such a great stick at a graduation. What was the college? Pitzer, which is a great school. I, I I find I find it really offensive. I'm being serious. When the professional class competes to get into good schools, what they consider to be good schools, I think it's a caste system. It's not a meritocracy. It's the illusion of a meritocracy. There are tricks to get into these top schools that uh, that betray real academic prowess. And I think it's one of the things that's destroyed the Democratic Party, quite frankly. The reason people don't like the Democratic Party is it's lousy with hyper-educated elitists who think eggheads no not not eggheads people who have a sense of excuse me for one second i'm being serious here the reason the democrats don't win is barack obama whether he's willing to admit it or not thinks he's better than the people who vote for him because he went to harvard law he's an elitist He's an intellectual elitist and he has a sense of entitlement and he, and they're out of touch. They are out of touch with America. I'm sorry. The Democrats don't win, but Barack Obama won twice. So that's true. And also it's not, he did, it's not that he went to Harvard law. It's that he was the editor of the law review. You know how hard that is. Thank you. Harvard Law, as Ralph Nader said, should be called the Harvard Lawless School. It teaches you how to maintain the status quo. It teaches you how to defend guilty people. That's what that's that's basically I love your summary. And how about the people who graduated Harvard Law who spent a lifetime defending people on death row? Name Name one. Name one. Name one. I saw a movie. I don't remember the guy's name, but there was a movie. Yeah. Uh, when it costs, what, like $500,000 a year to get a Harvard Law School, so many people are going to go work with Sister Prajan, right? Okay, Come how on. about Barack Obama? What, what did Barack Obama do after he graduated Harvard Law? He, he <laughs> did time as a community organizer briefly. He no, was on the fast track. Oh, it's, it's you know... David, you you remind me of the the right wingers on the other side. Thank you. Uh, yes. Well, I feel like I'm at a Thanksgiving dinner. This is uh, it's- Emil. Back me up. Hey, look, I will. I am happy to. I am proud to say I was probably the worst student ever to go to Harvard. That, that is, is my. I mean, it's, this is not a. Right. I, Let's talk about the news. It's it's a tired. It's no, it's a tired it's not, discussion. No, look. Who brought it up, by the way? All right. 
I didn't mention that you, you keep bringing everybody who goes to Harvard. The first thing out of their mouth is, you know, when I was studying I in Cambridge. Oh, Cambridge Community College. I never brought it up. If somebody did. Let me. All right, D- David, did you get, did you catch Joe Biden's talk to his uh, appointees yesterday? Ethan knows because I'm right. What, Ethan, you know, uh, I'm right. Wait, wait, did you did you see that one of the things he said that it, it shows how you it shows the true test of character of a person, how they treat the, the lowest person on the totem pole. And he and Biden said and he was on TV. I saw it on cable. He said, if I catch any of you talking down on people. I will fire you on the spot. And that was, I thought, a more credible, a more endearing speech that Biden gave yesterday than the thing he gave up on, you know, up on the platform, which I thought was fairly good. And, you know, let's stop this on civil war and all that. But when he was talking to his appointees, he said that because and, and I think this is the real measure of the guy who I know many people in your audience who are avowed leftists are trying to figure out, you know, what is, how did we get this retread? How did we get this guy? But the hope for us is that he is not an elitist like the, the, the guys that you referred to. And I don't even know what college you went to. That's yeah. a true mark of a man. You right. don't even, you don't even ask what college you went to. Right. Let, let me say goodbye to Ethan and Bert. Bert. Okay. Can yeah. I plug something really quickly? Yes, please. Okay, Tuesday evening, 7.30 Eastern. I have a great role. My character's named Phil. It's a play called Remix. And uh, you can find a ticket for free on Eventbrite. The play's called Remix. I play a real schlocky turd of a music promoter. It's a fun play about the music industry. Remix, this coming Tuesday, 7.30 p.m. On Zoom. I love you, Ethan. You want to come back with her? uh, uh, What's his name? The, the comic who I just discovered. Oh, yeah, Renan. Renan. You yeah. want to come on with him? I would love to. Great. Yeah. Okay. All right. Send Bert Ross, I love you. Thank you. Well, see, we'll see, see you Bert. next week. Bye, see you, Ethan. See you, Bert. We'll, we'll have an well. alumni club party. Peace yeah. out. Peace. Emil Guillermo is the host of the PETA podcast. He's a columnist for Al Duff, the Asian American legal AA Duff. I corrected it. Asian American Legal Defense and Education Fund. Tell me what you saw during the inauguration. You know, uh, I saw, I couldn't take my eyes off Kamala Harris. Kamala Harris. I mean, I know I didn't want to upstage Biden. It's still his inaugural. But it was history because of Kamala Harris. And as a person of color, I, I just... And I've, I'm a person of color who has disagreed with her on the local level, but there she was. That that was history. And I couldn't, I, I just had to, I was in awe of that moment of history. No, I mean, look at all the, how the commentators had to struggle as they identify her, right? You know, Asian, South Asian, African-American, mother from, from India, father, you know, so forth and so on. Before you even get to a woman, right? First one. I mean, she's loaded with uh, this identity thing. She's the great metaphor for the for where we are as a nation. And think how I felt seeing her husband, that well, I, too, uh, could marry a vice here's president. The, here's, here's the thing, David. You know, I did this show called New California Media, which was on cable in, in San Francisco and L.A. In, back in 2000. And Van Jones was on that show. And we, and I was a host and moderator, 
And we always talked about how, you know, we knew that this demographic change was coming to America, that we would be the, uh, you know, the minorities would be the majority. We were talking about it since 89, but we had this show in 2000. And I always said, and we had demographers coming on, they said, you know, when, when we have a love interest in one another, a true love interest, then maybe we'll solve this thing called racism. Now, maybe it's just totally BS, you know, uh, naive. But you mentioned when you see Doug Emhoff, right, when you see him walking aside alongside, uh, you know, uh, Kamala Harris and you see her mixed family, you see everyone. That's diversity, man. That 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 is a that is historic. And as we shift to try to figure out how do we embrace the diversity of our country? You know, I mean, this is hasn't been done. We've been talking about it for 20, 30 years. It's going to come. It's happening. It's happening. And the first time at the highest level, suddenly now we have Kamala Harris as the ultimate metaphor, walking with her grandniece, walking with her husband. Right. Uh, it's, but what, what, what happened? Beautiful. But so this is, you know, I don't mean to offer up a tired argument. I'm, I'm well, kind of, go ahead, go ahead. please. I'm kind of stunned by your reaction. I don't know what it's like to not feel represented. It, it, it did in Washington, D.C. I'm not a person of color. Uh, I grew up, I was told there'll never be a Jewish president. You know, I just give up on that. That's not going to, I was told there's never going to be a Jewish late night uh, talk show host. I was told, you know, and just accept it and uh, walk away from it. Um, I don't, uh, so I don't understand what you're going through and and I don't mean to diminish it. However, we bore witness to this at the ultimate level with Barack Obama. Right. And he didn't really tackle class issues. He, he didn't. I, I, and I agree. So, so the, the criticism, not to, I, I don't mean to disrespect sure. no, what, I what, what you felt. Uh, and I and and I do understand it. Not as much as you do, but the, the argument is that Obama and Kamala use identity as a smokescreen to maintain the status quo. Well, I think I, I don't know if that's and the Obama case. kind of turned on his own. That's the other rap against Obama. Pull pull your pants up and don't eat at Popeye's chicken that, you know, you would tell African-Americans, stop feeding your kids Popeye's chicken and pull your pants up and personal responsibility. Yeah. Look, I I, I understand the criticism. And and Kamala was pretty rough on the African-American community as a prosecutor in San Francisco As attorney general, she didn't want to empty the prisons because, quote unquote, we need the labor locking up the parents of truants. I agree with with you. Look at my columns at aldiff.com. I know. I know. I mean, I said I've I've criticized Kamala. I always say when and when she leads, she never leads with race, just like Obama. 
And so it, it, she uses it like a pair, uh, like a carefully played card, right? Just like when she when she sprung the sucker punch on Biden, you know, which was a lie, girl, though. That was a lie. That little girl was me. That was a lie. That wasn't her. I don't know. I, she I didn't said go, you were against busing. Oh, that was uh, that was part of the lie. But and that, that girl was, was me. Well, she never did the follow. Nobody, nobody in the media asked the follow up question. Well, Senator Kamala Harris, you were bust. Do you believe in busing? And the answer is no. We couldn't so, even get her. We can't even get the media to do the follow up question. And ask well, Senator Harris. Right. OK, right. you were bust. What's your position now on busing? You're yeah. going after right. Joe Biden for being against busing. That little girl was me. Yeah. What about busing now? Look, well, I'm against I'm, it now because why? I look. I this is this is part of my uh, of, of my. It's not a reservation, but I like I said, I've always had my problems with Kamala Harris. I have publicly said, you know, like on things that she did locally, she kept rising. She kept rising. You know, from DA to AG. Now she's vice president. Ambition. So had she been? Had she grown up in? In where? Where? Texas, she'd be a Republican. She, I just see ambition. Well, ambition is there, certainly. I uh, think same that's with all. Same, same with the mom. Look, but I, I still think that for, for history, you have to look at it and say, my God, there, this, is the bre- this is the historical breakthrough. Now, maybe just, that just counts on the surface. And if you go deeper, you say, oh, well, she's not, you know, she's not all that well she is all that she's cracked out to be in terms of being this symbol but maybe she represents something uh she represents something to both sides on the one side of the people who would put people of color down they say well we can't we can't make these assumptions because you know she's smart obama's smart they're tactical they're strategical and then to the other side of the they were they kept saying yesterday, African American boys and girls. Same with Asians. South I, Asian. I don't know. I, I think Pramila Jayapal, Ilian Omar, uh, AOC. These are They're, people who get to the top without compromising their principles. They're people well, of color, women of color, who yeah. uh, aren't pulling up the ladder behind them. She's vice president, though, and I, I yeah, say pretty that, disappointing if you ask me. Well. <laughs> Well, look, uh, David, like I said, I when I saw her yesterday, I just wanted to honor the sense that, boy, she she got there. What she, do you think is going to happen when we start looking into Doug Emhoff's law practice and who he represented? I, you know, what, I what know. do you think he does for I, I think he's given up his partnership, but he was a Los Angeles attorney, corporate uh-huh. attorney. Labor rights. Someone said something. Um, OSHA making sure corporations uh, are obeying OSHA regulations. You think Doug Emhoff, you think you don't think when they start doing the oppo research on Doug Emhoff, lawyer, corporate attorney, it's going to be pretty. You got to hand it to Kamala for getting through the oppo research on her. And I I just think, look, for the moment. And the inauguration was a, a, to me, it represented this kind of diversity metaphor after four years of anti-diversity highlighted by this anti-diversity riot of the, the white supremacist and the, you know, 
uh, the folks on ja- on January sixth, and and to me that was that was worth talking about, you know, because look, I know that the thing we did previously, I mean, I stumbled into it, people talking about Harvard. Look, I, I, I'm, I'm with you. I, I believe in affirmative action where people should be given an opportunity, but there's something wrong when, when I, I don't think what I did when I got there, it was a matter of affirmative action, but there was an assumption that I would become them. Right. It was not this two-way street where they change, right? right. It was like, hey, I'm opening up the door and, you know, you walk through it if you want. And I shut it, you know, and didn't go through. Right. And just said, I'm, I'm who I am. I have paid the price gladly. But, you know, that's why I'm talking with you and not, you know, with Jim Cramer on CNBC, right? right? Another classmate of mine. Uh, or, you know, I'm not doing PR for Bill Gates or for Steve Ballmer, right? Because, it get, you know, you, you see when you're at that fork in the roads, right? To, to, to quote Robert Frost, two roads diverged in yellow wood and the yellow was an Asian. And I picked one and went the road less traveled. Right. Which is. So you're feeling optimistic. I, I'm not, I don't mean to. I, no, no. Look, you're right. I, I, I don't, I, I had to deal with this too. You know, I was, I wasn't anti Kamala. I was more like, Hey, come on. What is she going to be? Tell me what kind of chameleon you're going to be. In fact, I looked at her yesterday. What color is my jacket here? David blue. See, I'm this, this jacket is purple. Just like Kamala had a purple coat on yesterday. And I don't people, see color as you can obviously tell. No, no, no. My point is this. It's all about the light because this this purple jacket appears blue under different light for Kamala. When she was walking around the inaugural parade, it looked purple to me. And when she was up on the platform there, it looked it looked blue to me, a royal blue. And then the commentators was, oh, she's wearing purple today. That's because of both. And and that is really the problem of our political landscape today. Or our, our, you know, our politics today. We look at the same thing. We can't figure out because we got different light, and that is ultimately the the message of yesterday. If you go by Amanda Gorman's poem, right? We need more light. You have the courage to be the light. You are the light. So be your own light. Go out there. Be your light. You're being your light here. There's uh, really a lot of light on you right now, David. Right, there is. You're being, you're, you're being the light now. Uh-huh. And I'm just saying, that's that that's ultimately, and it's coming from a 22-year-old black kid from L.A. who get you know goes to Harvard, and uh, a roommate of mine, I'm still in touch with one or two roommates, they texted me, he said, a girl from Leverett House, she's giving a speech. They were all so happy. But, you know, before, I, did, I, never, I knew she was going to speak. And before I wrote a column that ran in, diverse uh, issues in higher education and it's a magazine or a website i i how is somebody from harvard how is that diversity well wait a minute wait wait, let me finish i i welcomed her to give the speech but i suggested another poet ishmael reed who is an an old friend of mine he's 83 years old and had a number of great the poems about immigration, which talks about a, a reset in, in, in immigration. And so I wrote, I, I suggested that Ishmael should be the poet laureate. 
And, and then this was before I saw what Amanda Gorman did. And then of course, Amanda Gorman, I thought she did really well because she showed the power of iambic democracy, right? She, she in poetic rhetoric, poetic language said what the previous speeches really may not have risen to. You, you see the, you know, if maybe what I don't we know, mean, I'd like to see at an inauguration, uh, maybe a single mom who uh, I think, I think, I think Amanda Gorman was raised by a single mom. But not like how about a single mom who isn't going to Harvard, who's uh, living on, uh, you know, $11 an hour. Look, I, I, why don't I we hear like them to, speak? At the, I would like to see that too. I mean, look, it's such an, I think that's a more important voice actually right now than a kid on the Harvard fast track, not to diminish not to diminish all her talents and accomplishments, yeah. but I've had it with the elitism. I've had it with the meritocracy. I've had it with aren't isn't this person great? This person came from nowhere and has you know graduated from Princeton. See, it just it just reinforces this lie that we well, have a porous culture that there's mo there's no mobility here so you, what you're saying is uh what what is this bs that you have to get your ticket punched from this place in order yeah, to do i'm tired well, of it unfortunately you know look it, it works both ways look I, I i had some some cards punched i thought in the right way but it it doesn't work in in the corporate room if you choose to not be a part of to not be a member Right. Of the club that would have you as a member. Well, this is why people stormed. One of the reasons people stormed the Capitol. Well, believe me, I there, there was racism involved, but there's also this elitism. Right. This, this out of touchism, the celebration of the, the meritocrats, the technocrats, the people who, as you say, got their ticket punched. And well, if you don't get your ticket punched, you get punched. You, you're not heard. I don't hey, know. Look, it would be nice to just see a laborer speak at an inauguration. Or a, a, a regular a regular guy. Of, well, that's supposedly what the House of Representatives is supposed to be, right? Yeah. You know, how, many, how many uh, laborers? How many, get, how many laborers? How many yeah. nurses? get elected to the House of Representatives. Well, Lee Carter he, from Virginia, the delegate running for governor, drives Uber. I like him. Well, you, you know as well as I that anyone who decides to go- I mean, real diversity. With I, I, Again, I, I'm being a little dismissive and I apologize because I do understand the importance. I don't, but real diversity- Well- Real right diversity now, would also include- a minimum wage worker speaking. Sometimes, sometimes they are both in one. I mean, when my when I went to Harvard, my father was making a hundred dollars a week. I'm not. I, I know. I, I'd I'm rather hear saying. from your father than some Harvard <laughs> douchebag. Yeah, but you know, it took my father to. Be, He's I more interested. Your father's more interesting to me than some is. piece of shit who went to Harvard. <laughs> he is more interesting, and you know. Because I wrote about him in my essay, that was the reason I got in. Yeah, well, yeah, he's more interesting. He's he's, he's had a richer life than some. 
It was very interesting. Yeah, but- much more interesting than some than somebody who took the coward's route and went to Harvard. Well, uh, I did. I did drop out briefly to become a disc jockey in Houston to play the Ramones. For the right, but it's an act of cowardice to do what to go to these elite schools. No, well, yes and no. In in in, in your pers- from your perspective, perhaps it's but- a character flaw. When when it's the when it's the thing that is seen as well, you know, this is where the top students go, and you know, everyone is assuming they see Emil Guillermo on an attendance list, and they say, well, you know, we have college prep classes, but we're going to put you in shop because wouldn't you like to work with wood and metal I and things like that? Yeah. Well, maybe I, I don't understand. Maybe I don't understand. That is the way they tracked yeah. in junior high school, right. and until and right. seventh grade, until I stood up and said. Why am I here with all these juvenile delinquents, miss? Right. You know, I, which was good because they didn't beat me up in, in the, in the schoolyard, but I didn't, you know, we, I wasn't learning anything. I, when I complained, I got put in the better classes. Right. No, I, and you're, I, 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 I apologize. I don't mean to be. And that's all right. Look, it, you know, the thing is, uh, it's complex. It would be nice to see. All different ty- a diversification of diversity. That also includes. Uh, well, I'm repeating myself. That, that also include what? Uh, the people who are downtrodden and don't have any so class. Look, this has always been an argument too. You know, class not race, race not class. I mean, look uh, back in. In the 80s, they're talking about uh, Michael Kinsley was always advocating, well, what about the kid from Appalachia? What about the kid, you know, what about, you know, my, my wife has roots in the, the, in, in the, the Daniel Boone Forest, right. you know, in Kentucky. And so. Which is why um, she's also your sister. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> He's low hanging. I, I set you up for that. It's no, my it's fault. Bad. It's bad. My it's fault. Wrong. It is bad. You know my wife. She looks nothing like me. I know. I know. So uh, you know, but 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 that's a thing. You know, uh, and then you know, sometimes my my wife, who is white, we talk. We had the same kind of things growing up because we were in the same we were in the same class. You know, we we were in the same class of back in the sixties. The middle class was. Hey, he made a decent wage. If you could make a hundred dollars a week, two hundred dollars a week, it wasn't like you know vast wealth in our society. So, you know, I just think that you know, I, I saw the inaugural. I saw great hope. I I got uh, I got a little jazz about Kamala and about Amanda Gorman, and I was much more and I have to uh, admit optimistic about Biden. And, and with Biden, you know, as a little white guy. I watched Joe Biden. I thought some somewhere in America, there's a young white guy with bad hair plugs like me who's looking at Joe Biden thinking, I, too, can get my teeth capped and a facelift. And I, too, can get elected president. David, you know, Biden, the, the beauty about Biden is that he is such a political professional that he's gone from bad 
to a little bit better over the course of like 40, 50 years, right? I mean, what no, I think he, about, honestly, I think he's gone from bad to worse, to worse and enough people, there are enough opportunistic infections around him who think, hey, this guy is so broken, we can, we can manipulate him. Look, here's the it's thing. It's like Reagan. I, he's just stupid he's, enough that he'll do our bidding. He's at least tilting the right way, don't you think? He's a, That's a look, stroke. Here's the other thing. Well, here's the thing about when I saw him today with the uh, doing his press conferences. You know, I see Kamala Harris, and after I say and I couldn't, I was offer uh, at the inaugural. I watch her now because I just see how close she positions herself to Biden just in case he falls down so mm-hmm. she, she can catch him because that, you know, number one, the I question is, will Harris. she catch him? <laughs> no, I think she's got to catch him. I don't think so. About, the thing about Kamala Harris is she's, you know, she's used to being in the top. If you work in politics, the word, the, the, the monosyllabic word boss means everything in politics. And I know for having worked on the Hill and I, I couldn't take it. And I'm wondering how Kamala having such a he she's got the ultimate boss, right? How she must feels now being used to being in charge of her vast whatever's, you know, as AG, DA, you know, in the Senate. Okay, she's part of a team, but she's kind of, you know, two senders from California. But I I imagine she's got to be chafing. She's got, she's ready to bust out. And, and, but you know, in, in some ways that's to, to Biden's benefit because she's the number two and, you know, he knows that he's going to do, I know I'm, I'm hoping for, I'm trying to be optimistic, hoping for the best because he is a member of the political class. And I think that if we see change, it's because of one of them, you know, you saw how they all glad handed each other up in the, at the inaugural, you know, before and after. Mm-hmm. See, this is why people who watch this, who are totally cut out, feel like, you know, politics is BS. It's so duplicitous. I can't trust it. Right? No, 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 no. I think they look at the Democrats well, and feel that way. Well, I think everyone, I mean, if you, I think if you're not a part of politics and you think, oh, these guys are yelling at each other. They're at each other's throat. And now here they are shaking hands with their friends, you know. And I think it's because everyone not in politics or outside has this world wrestling federation view of the way politics is or this Marvel Comics view of good guys, bad guys and villains. And I really think and, and this is why another reason why I'm optimistic about Joe Biden. Look. I'm a Catholic, right? So he starts and he goes to mass before, you know, the inaugural. So that, that gets me a little bit. And I think that if we got to find that human part, that emotional part that, that drives our politics as opposed to ideology. And I think that, you know, he's at least a human. You had brunch today, didn't you? No, you had brunch. I did did not. have. You had brunch. Emil had brunch. I'm I'm an intermittent faster. I'm an intermittent fa- Hey, look, you know, I I said I wanted to talk about being vegan. Yeah, we have to wrap it up. Podcast. We have to wrap it up. Okay, but let me let me just say let me just say it's January, and you know, if you want to be vegan, you can be vegan. But I I used to be I used to be a real like vegan cop. You know, finger wagging vegan. 
like I finger wagged you into no, no, no in the oil, right? Forgive me, David. I, no, I'm you're right. Much, no, you're right. I'm a gentler, kinder vegan now. Okay. And I, I'm going to be like father vegan and you can come to me and confess. I mean, it's not a matter. It's, this is not a rigid thing. People become vegan on the terms. And in the future, let's talk about this because I can help your people, your people, David, become vegan easily and without any kind of duress because it's, you got to just figure out why you're doing it. And I know why you're doing it, right? Because you think mistakenly it will help you grow hair, which it doesn't. Oh. It doesn't. I, you know, we're trying. I'm, I'm trying I, to hurt plants. I, I want to be cruel to plants. We have to wrap it up. Emil, I'm going to get the last word. Okay, go ahead. Let me. Uh, I, I apologize if I was dismissive of, of uh, how you felt watching Kamala. Kamala Harris. Yeah, I apologize. That's uh, all right. We're we're all friends, David. We're but friends. It, but it but it is a it trick. It is a trick played on the ninety nine percent. And I think it was Doctor Kumar. He was on the last time he was on. He talked about looking at politics and economics the way the one percent looks at us. Remove the emotion. Look at it. Just work the Remove numbers. The work the numbers. That that the the ninety nine percent has to look at Washington D.C. and work the numbers, the same way our bosses work the numbers when it comes to us. What are you doing for me? What are you doing for me? And maybe Kamala being a person, a woman of color, is doing something for you. I get that. Uh, but it, what is she really yeah. doing for me? And See, what is Joe Biden doing for me? And if he's not doing anything for me, get rid of him. I don't care about your flag. I don't care about your soul. I don't care about an existential threat. Don't tell me you've saved democracy because this isn't a democracy. What are you going to do for me? Are you going to put more money in my pocket? Are you going to make it so my kids don't rack up debt? What are you doing for me? And if you're not doing anything for me, you're fired because that's how it works in America. Work the numbers. What so, is Joe? Am I going to be better off in two years? I think you'd be better off with Biden than Trump. Yeah, I mean, that's right. I'm also going to be better off without shit smeared all over my face, <laughs> walking through Central Park completely naked, going, I mean, I'm here to watch birds. Anyone want to anybody want to do some bird watching with me? Uh, well, look, I, I will say this. Um, we have to wrap it up. I, I think. All right. But I think you're right. We need to see results. And right now, what's the biggest thing, right? 400,000 people dying, right? And I, I, it's, it's almost an impossible thing for, for Biden to turn around quickly. He knows we're going to get to 500,000 deaths soon. So I, I just think that at least, look, acknowledge the fact that it's like night and day between, you know, Tuesday and Wednesday. And, you know, let's, let's hope that All we right. can... Follow Emil. I love you, buddy. Thank you. I 
Yeah, well, you know, you know, it's I, you know, I love you too. I too. Thank you. I'll see you next week. See you. Thank you, Emil Guillermo. Before we go to Mar-a-Lago to talk to the first lady, I'm the grandson of immigrants. All four of my grandparents came through Ellis Island, and uh, I look at America as Scarface said, as a giant pussy waiting to be fucked. And that's how all Americans should look at America. All 99% of America should think of America the same way Scarface did. What's in it for me? When you elect a politician, are they putting more money in your pocket? If they're not, get rid of them. They will wave the flag and the Bible and freedom and the soul of our nation in front of you. Unless they're putting better food on your table, more financial security in your wallet, unless they're offering you union jobs, health care, free tuition at public universities, unless they're offering that to you, they can go F themselves. That's my, that's, everybody is taking from this country. It's the land of plenty. Right now, only 1% gets, gets it. What's in it for you? Take your religion and your flag and your pomp and circumstance and shove it up where the sun don't shine. Not interested in your pomp and circumstance and your rituals. I'm interested in free health care, not free health insurance, free health care, free tuition, union jobs, better schools. If you're not offering that, take the flag and your Bible and shove it up your ass. Now let's go to Mar-a-Lago. Where the First Lady of the United States is standing by. Hello, First Lady. Well, hello there, Davey. Sorry, I was cursing in front of you. I just, I miss you already. Well, thank you. I miss you all too, very much. Yeah, we all, we, we, we miss the great president and our great First Lady. But you will return, won't you? I have not gone anywhere. I am always here. I, I apologize for my I apologize for my language. Oh, that is nothing, David. Well, anyway, you were kind enough. Well, what is that scraping sound? There's a scraping sound, First Lady. You it were kind. Maybe your bottle against the chair. I don't know. Oh, what is I'm that sorry. scraping sound? I don't know. But you were kind. You, tell and, me. you came out for Diabetic Fury, I guess, like three weeks ago, and you were kind enough to agree to do shout outs for the people who donated a lot of money to Diabetic Fury. So let's do some some shout outs, shall we? Just Davey, but let me just say how relieved I am. I am relieved. Are you? I am relieved all over, like in my short German film, Relieved All Over, (laughs) where I am relieved all over. Yes, it was a Scheisse film, right? 
Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a scheisse film. Yes. Also, I am relieved yesterday I have not been hugged and kissed by the super spreader Garth Brooks. Have you seen this guy? <laughs> he, he speaks of unity. He sings of unity. Have you seen this guy more like Garth Brooks? Garth Brooks, yeah. Garth Brooks. Yes. Yeah. He looks like he looks like a bad version of John Wayne Gacy. <laughs> did you did you see him singing The Amazing Grace? It, it was very nice. Yeah. yeah, more like more like Amazing Space. <laughs> like he's fat, you're saying. Give me a fucking break already. Okay. You're you're saying he's heavy. Is that what you're saying? Yes, yes, amazing space. Can we shart now? Uh, I think we're going to do a, a, a shout out. Is that what you're? Is that what yes, you're? This the shout out. Okay, uh, let us do a a shout out. This first shout out goes to Rich Myers. Who? Rich Myers. How do you say that again, David? Rich Myers. Okay. Hello, Bill Johnson. It's Rich Myers. This is Melania Shartout coming to you from former feasted lady Melania, soon to be Mrs. Brian Williams. It's first late Brian Will. His name is Rich Myers, not Bill Johnson. I know, stupid, but I can't pronounce Rich Myers. Okay? You just did. You just pronounced it. Give me a fucking break already. Okay. Anyway. Bill Smith. Rich Myers. This is your shout out. Our nation must heal in a civil manner. Make no mistake about it. I absolutely condom the violence that has occurred on all of our nation's capital, especially in the restrooms. Hang on. You're condoning the violence that occurred in the nation's capital two weeks ago. Yes, I said... You I condemn abs- or condone? I absolutely condom the the violence... The violence. That, the violence that has occurred on our nation's capistol. Okay. Especially in the restrooms. <laughs> okay, that's... There was some nasty shit coming down. Yeah, go ahead. Remember, violence is never acceptable. Right. Except... When there's a chance that NATO might discover the hastily dug mass graves hidden beneath Uncle Slobodan's hibiscus garden. (laughs) Then you can really go all out. Uncle Slobodan, yeah. Yes. And to answer your cheap accusatorials, Bill Smith Johnson, I, Melania, first lady, first feasted lady, have been a woman of great grace and beauty and dignity. You'll get no argument from me. So stick a cue ball up your ass <laughs> and bank shot a solid off your mom's cushion. <laughs> I am the most popular of all of the horribly polling first ladies. Like in Melania, Ukrainian short film, where I get horribly polled. <laughs> And you can interpret that any way you like, Mitch Ryers. Rich Myers. I really do not care. Do you? Rich Myers, not Mitch Ryers. Okay. Mitch Ryers. That is what I said. Rich Myers. 
Rich Myers. Thank you. Meat fryers. Deep fryers. We're never... I'm telling you, th- these are the last shout outs that are going to be done because you've you've alienated everyone who donated money to Diabetic Fury. I really do not care. Do you? Okay, this next shout out from Melania goes to Robert Butterfield. Hello and big respectful shout out to Robert. Yes. Robert. Um, yes, Robert. Robert Battlefield. <laughs> no, 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 that's not his name. It's not Robert Buttholefields. His name is Robert Butterfield. It's a very respected name. He donated money. He's helping Diabetic Fury. No, it's a no, respected David. name. No, David, if it is so respected, then why is it Buttholefields? <laughs> it's not. It's Robert Butterfield. Not Buttholefields. Robert Butterfield. I mean, doesn't doesn't he know that this kind of name is just a gratuitous attention-getting gimmick made meant to elicit childish reactions? It's not. His name is Robert Butterfield. Grow up already, Bobby Butterface. <laughs> Butterfield. Bobby Butterface. Robert Butterfield. Bobby Butterface. (laughs) Let me say this. Our past four years in this hallowed home have, have been unforgettable, but not something I would ever want to talk about. As Tonell and I conclude our time eating paint in the White House, I think of all the peoples I have taken home in my heart after relentlessly mocking them on the streets. Mm. Remember, violence is never justified. Except when someone throws a pizza at your Range Rover from the 405 (laughs) overpass. As a first lady... I launched Be Best to make sure that we as Americans are doing all we can to take care of the next generation of out of control psychopaths. (laughs) (laughs) To all the people of this country, you will be in my heart forever until my prenup runs out five hours (laughs) from now. Now go blow it out your ass. Mm -mm. Be Best and Junk. Be best. Thank you. This next shout mo- out. That it's a shout out. Not shout a shout out. <laughs> shout out. This next Melania ex first lady shout out goes to Baltazar Pinedo. What? Baltazar Pinedo. He donated a lot of money to Diabetic Fury. You agreed to do a shout out. Please give a shout out to Baltazar Pinedo, please. Okay, here we go. Thank you. Hello, and big shout out to Baltazar Hard Penis Talk. <laughs> Did I get it right this time? Not really. It's Baltazar Pinedo, not Balls Are Hard Penis Toe. My mistake. <laughs> Hello, Balls Are Hard Penis Hole. 
This is former Melania, first lady, saying, whoop-de-doo, I am so over this. Like great comedian Dennis Stiller at the end of show on Politically Correct, where he flings carefully crafted jokes into the air written by Harvard perverts. <laughs> That's not, it's not Dennis Stiller. It's Bill Maher. And politically, it's politically incorrect, not politically correct. And that show hasn't been on for 30 years. Yes. Well, fuck these protocol and tradition <laughs> shits, okay? And stop right. whining. Right. Tonel and I left a nice note for Crybaby Joe. Dum de dum, okay? <laughs> All right? Well, leaving that note was a nice and unexpected gesture, Melania. Jess, Tonel's secretary was was dead of Corvette-19. COVID-19. COVID-19. Corvette nineteen. That is what I said. Okay. So so uh, he so the, the Donald's secretary was dead. Yes, Tonel's secretary was. So dead who wrote of, the letter? Corvette nineteen. So Tonel Junior had to write it in his own feces. <laughs> oh. So it really came from the heart. <laughs> Thank goodness for broccoli. Talk about a smooth transition. Uh-huh. <laughs> yep. These are the jokes. Okay. Why? Are, wait, are you saying Donald Jr. wrote the Biden's welcome note in his own feces? Uh, he had to, Davey. We couldn't find a number two panther. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's why they call it a number two pencil. Oh, I didn't know. Okay, I thought it was lead. Well, I must say, you looked very stylish in your black dress leaving the White House. (sighs) Who left? I'm still here. I'm calling from the basement underneath Larry Truman's bowling alley, (laughs) underneath the forgotten storage where all of Obama's broken promises are kept. (laughs) Nobody ever goes there. It's Harry Truman, not Larry Truman. But uh, wait, are you saying that President Obama's broken promises are kept in storage above Harry Truman's bowling alley? How come nobody ever goes there? They always get distracted by the Clinton hallway of crusty towels. <laughs> Eight years is a lot of towels, you know. All right. But you're 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 still in the White House because I saw you and Donald leave on Air Force One. No, wherever you see Melania with the big sunglasses, that is not the real Melania. Melania would never be caught dead in the same plane as Donald. Hmm. After all, he smells like pork rinds and Pepsi-Cola. That's what I've heard. Anyway, shut the fucks up to whatever this shart out goes to. Melania does not care, do you? Yeah, I do. Melania... No, Melania lived down here for the rest of life, like in that funny Korean movie, Parasite. (laughs) So you're going to just stay in the basement of the White House? Yes. All right. It has been the honor of my lifetime to serve as your first lady. I want to thank the millions of Americans who supported me over the past four years to help fund my massive collection of urine-stained Fabergé eggs. (laughs) Also, Barton statues of drunken midgets and my warehouse full of vintage cream pie squirt fetches videos. (laughs) May God, (laughs) may the great God Thor 
bring down his mighty hammer upon your deflated scrotums. <laughs> and may God bless our contagious poop, poops. <laughs> and hail to the Hitler. I'm, I'm sorry, you, uh, we, the audience... The audience. They're always interrupting me with the applause. They love you. And here. I may finish again. Yes. And may God bless our contagious troops. <laughs> the troops. troops. And hail to the Hitler. Thank you. Thank you, First Lady Melania Trump. Thank you so much. I'll see you then. Well, let's go to Kenny Bunk, Maine, where Jim Earl is standing by. Hello, Jim. Hi, Dave. That was very funny. <laughs> you know, uh, Melania has always entertained me. Yeah, she's fantastic. She's just amazing. So uh, I take it you watched the inauguration and everything you said about the Obamas and the Bidens, you take back and you're all on board, right? Uh, I was, they're amazing people. It was a wonderful show. I, I have a lot of hope. Did you see me? Did you see me at the uh, at the inauguration? No, I didn't. Well, let me show you a picture of me at the inauguration. Somebody just sent this to me. Who sent that? Who made that, Dan? Somebody made that. Yeah. I think Martha did. Oh, Martha made that. I love that. No, I did. I didn't make that. Somebody made it before me. Somebody oh, made it. That was Dave M. Dave M. made that. That's great. Yep. <laughs> That's great. I like why, that. Why are you wearing a mask? <laughs> uh, uh, you know what? I thought, I, you know, I was exhausted. And the inauguration made me even more tired. It's, it, there's no time to to just breathe a sigh of relief is there no there isn't i you know i, I agree with emil though i do have great hope for the other side <laughs> they're gonna lose so bad <laughs> they are gonna lose so bad he's not even making promises no he's well, leveling he with us i'm gonna level with you everything i said during the race i lied to you it's not not even fifty thousand of uh, taking away from your student loan debt, not even 10,000 now. It's barely, what the hell is that? Yeah. Not, and not no, a, public not, option, no public no, option, no public option, nothing. No, not a $2,000 check, 1400 Yeah. Maybe, maybe at the beginning of uh, March, because for some strange reason, the Democrats say they can't even approach uh, a relief package until March. Right. I don't know why. They control the government now. Well, we've decided that since we won the Senate, the best thing to do is reach a, across the aisle and govern with with Mitch McConnell. The way Trent Lott and uh, Tom Daschle governed in the first year of George W.'s presidency. And we all know how well that turned out. I think we got a war authorization when yeah. the, the Democrats worked with the Republicans. That Joe Biden helped push through. Yeah. Yeah. So everything looks uh, par for the course. Yeah. With our great Democratic Party. So what are we going to do? 
push him to the left. That's what everybody in the chat room <laughs> says. How do we push Joe to the left? Yeah, you push him over the edge. That's how you do it. <laughs> Off a cliff, a uh, metaphorical cliff, not a real cliff. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not one of those crazy people who wants to post pictures of guillotines on social media like I used to see all the time from my friends on the left right. when, it, when it came to uh, Congress and, and Wall Street. But no more, I guess. Well, I think one thing you got to hand it to Biden and his supporters. He surprised us. He's going to let 90 million people starve to death. I didn't think he had it in him. <laughs> he surprised him. It kind of, you know, in terms of moving to the left, that's kind of like a Stalin-esque move, isn't it? Yeah. So well, that's kind of it. little... Well, he helped push through a, an illegal war that contributed to the deaths and, and uh, of four to five million people, and I, and that includes uh, from 1990 all our overseas entanglements operations, uh, at least 82 of them. So we had uh, Ben Burgess on, and and everybody should read his piece in Jacobin, entitled "Get Ready to Fight Joe Biden," and that's what people on the left have to do don't according to professor ben burgess and this makes the most sense to me this is the pathway forward don't invest any hope into into this administration don't negotiate with centrists and we have to do the heavy lifting the hard work that people like professor marianne cummings do and that, that is run for right. office and stop watching MSNBC and Fox News and worrying about what's going on in the Beltway. The it, it's got to bubble up to the surface. We have to take our cues from people like Professor Mary Ann Cummings, who ran for office. She became a Parks Commissioner in Aurora, Illinois. There isn't there just wasn't the infrastructure, Jim, to support Bernie. Bernie was right. He had to invade the Democratic Party like a virus. And he couldn't trick the virus into manufacturing leftists. Yeah, I disagree there. He didn't have to invade the Democratic Party like a virus. He, he should have stayed away from it and let the Democratic Party implode and die on its own. Yeah. He got infected, just like AOC did. A year ago today, I, I just looked at a, one of my Facebook memories from from yesterday, from a year ago, exactly a year ago. And it was AOC saying exactly what forced the vote proposed. And she gave exactly the rationale for it, which was the exact same rationale that the force the vote people are using, which is build momentum, show people where you stand. And so you can hold uh, your representatives accountable later. Well, we need more. The, the argument against that, and it's a tired argument, we, we don't need to go after the squad. That, that's what people like Ben Burgess are saying. Don't attack the squad. We need to prop them up and get the squad to be bigger. That's the, the criticism of force the vote. Yeah, so. well, we need we need to get we need a squad outside of the Democratic Party. As or we need more. Inside. We need the squad we need to do to the Democratic Party what the new right did to the Republicans back in 75. We need to do to the Democratic Party what Donald Trump 
It's yes. the Republican Party in 2015. They that's never saw it coming. Right. And that's from the ground up. That's absolutely right. You can't, it's just like you were talking about with Harvard. You go to, you go to Harvard and you become a Harvard, you have to, you go to Harvard, you have to become a Harvardite. You can't become yourself in Harvard. That's when you, you graduate from these elite institutions, your diploma is like a, a $5 million IOU that you can cash in in 10 years. Here's your degree from Harvard or Princeton. And if you flash this diploma and take the jobs that come with it, this diploma will be worth millions and millions of dollars. That's what it is. I'm tired of discussing this. Right. It's it's right. it's just these people. You're in, you're in debt. You're in debt to them. You're in debt to them because you're already you're in debt. debt. Yeah. It's a it's a tired discussion. But if you lead with where you went to school or how much money you have, uh, there should be a figurative guillotine waiting for you. And uh, it's uh, I. I I know you discussed this, you pummeled me about a week ago over this, about who exactly did vote for Trump and who are Republicans. No, it's upper middle class white people. Right. And I've been posting these articles uh, for the last week. You know, Biden voting counties equals 70 percent of America's economy. You know, he had uh, the majority of the high earning college degree holding uh counties biden did and and this is this has been a complete biden and the democratic party overall and this is a complete reversal of the way from 1980 late 70s 1980 that the democratic base used to be what the republican base is now vice versa yeah we lost our base we abandoned just like ralph nader this has been saying for decades, you take money from, you abandon your, your working class poor base and for rich donors. And I, and you, you, you know, get? the party I want to start. The fuck working families party. I'm sick of hearing about working families. Wait. I don't want to hear about working yeah. families. Well, it implies that if you're not working or part of a family, you don't deserve anything. Well, yeah. Okay, I can, I can see that. I, but Most people who are yes, working are poor. And if you have a family, you're poor. Yeah. This whole idea of the Democrats appealing to working families and the dignity of work. There's no dignity to work. That's why it's called work. It's a job. There's no dignity. You're, you're telling me. The idea that a job has dignity, that, that's that's dignity. The idea that that's what you get in lieu of a livable wage. Dignity, the dignity of of work. That's why people I mean, people drive for Uber. They they're driving for the dignity of the job. Not the wages. They're 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 driving because they have a work ethic, and they they cannot sit at home, and they and they they can say to themselves, well, at least I'm trying. That's what Uber has to offer. 
That's what the gig economy has to offer. Well, at least I'm trying. Dignity is 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 working to live, not living to work. And in countries like like Holland, where you get paid sick leave and maternity leave and family leave and uh, eight weeks uh, paid vacation, and people there. Well, I don't know how it is right now, but for all the times I went there and the decades I've known of it, it's been a place where people enjoy life. Yeah. And they don't, they don't, they don't, they aren't uh, fooled by the powers that be with words like dignity of work because that's used to control people. Well, let us uh, say goodbye to Jim Earl. We'll have you back on Monday. Great job on the Shardats. When are we doing uh, another Diabetic Fury? Well, that's a good question. We were hoping, uh, uh, Martha, I think it was. Uh, yeah, I'm here. But we have to solve the uh, logistic problems of the postcards. So we're not doing. Anyway, This I don't want to air our dirty laundry, but there's the postcard skid marks that have to be addressed, which have not all been sent out. So we have to solve that. Well, let's have a you know phone call about that. Yes, we will. Yeah, let's meet soon about that. I oh. think there, yeah, lots of people waiting for their. Yes, I take full yeah, responsibility yeah. for that. Okay. But they will yeah, come. Dave. What the hell? Get your act together. When we come back, Andrew Miller joins us. <laughs> it's time right now for the David Feldman Show. He's talking politics and comedy too. Now tell a dirty joke if you want him to. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a union man with an Emmy for writing. Someday he's mad and he feels like fighting. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show to get your ears on right, buckle in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. So get your ears on right, buckle in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. Somebody's been learning After Effects. Welcome back to the David Feldman Show. Subscribe to my newsletter, please. Go to davidfeldmanshow.com and sign up for my newsletter. It goes out about once a week, and it's a reading list. Things we discuss on this show, 
we compile all the articles that we pull for this show so we can have a conversation and we have a discord group. And so we pull some stories that we learn about in our discord group. Let us now go to Andrew Miller from the IWW. Hello there, sir. Hey, long the time. Industri- industrial workers of the world. Indeed. Are you the, yeah. you're the press spokesman now for the IWW? I, I am. I uh, was just uh, elected in December to fill this role for, for the organization. So um, just uh, trying to spread the good word and keep organizing workers and, uh, you know, to the, point of some of your last guests i I think that ultimately the way that we change things is not necessarily getting too hung up on what's going on in washington itself and instead organizing our workplaces and our neighborhoods and uh taking care of one one another first and uh in doing that um you know we can change the world we can change the world by focusing on what's in front of us. Right. What we eat, how we treat people. Who are the friends of labor? Is Marty Walsh, the former mayor of Boston, who's now going to head labor? Supposedly, he's the labor secretary. Is he a good guy? He's a union guy, right? Yeah. I, I mean, there there was certainly... Um, uh, a very anti-labor NLRB board under Trump. And that board doesn't actually always change that much um, between presidents. Uh, It did happen to under Trump and and has now been shifted. But ultimately, you know, I I mean, we have at best what could be called a a center-right government right now and uh i i don't particularly see that voting well for labor um the democrats and you know the elections since the clinton era uh have pretty much ignored labor um other than to say hey we'll take care of you guys once we you know get this taken care of or that taken care of and and uh um uh, unfortunately, the labor unit uh, movement in general in the U.S. has just, you know, been decimated since the Reagan era. And um, uh, so what do you say to our Marxist friends on this show who, who say the answer is the labor movement, that the way we're going to get democracy in this country is we have to organize the workers it's kind of hard to do that when when something like eight percent seven percent of this country is in a in a union what is it eleven percent if you include the public sector unions right yeah it's it's uh disgustingly low um and the, uh, and the biden the, inauguration was paid for by union busting law firms correct uh, I'm sure that that was a significant con- contribution to it. Yeah. Um, you know, the, uh, the good news is that within the IWW, we're seeing a, uh, 
a significant uptick over the past year and a half in people uh, um, joining. I know that personally I'm involved in uh, a couple of organizing efforts that I'm working as an external organizer. One is for about 600 employees. And um, so not, none of these are, are public, so I'm, I'm not going to talk much about exactly what they are, but, um, you know, right, let's talk about AOC. A strong interest. Let's oh, talk yeah. AOC, instead of showing up at the inauguration, went to the Hunts Point Market in the Bronx. Yes to support the 1,400 striking grocery workers. Tell me uh, what's happening in the Bronx. Why is Hunts Point so important if you live in New York? Well, so Hunts Point, um, it, it is the largest produce market in the world. And so it supplies pretty much all of the um, fruits and vegetables to the greater New York City area, um, not to mention, uh, you know, further out in the Northeast. We would have starved to death in New York during the pandemic if it weren't for these people. Correct. Yeah. They're heroes. And. Yeah, but you know what? I, I'll be honest with you. The last thing that I I think any workers want to hear is being called heroes. Well, isn't that good enough? In lieu- Wait, hang on. I'm not going to pay you. <laughs> I don't want to pay you a livable wage or give you protections from uh, COVID because you're a hero. The same way I'll send you off to Iraq without the body equipment that you need. Because you get to be called a hero. Isn't that good enough? Oh, I, yeah. Yeah. I'm sorry. I, I, I didn't mean to, uh, you know, uh, uh, discount your praise. <laughs> I, somebody literally said that to me. I, I will not violate. I, I don't, I'm not mean enough to name the person. I said, you're for the war in Iraq. These people, these, these soldiers don't have body armor. They don't have any. And he said to me. Well, they get to be heroes, though. And he meant that. That's disgusting. Yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry. One day, oh, no, I'll, one day right. I'll tell you who that um, was. You know, the so the workers, uh, they're organized under uh, uh, Teamsters Local 202. And um, they went out on strike. Uh, I, I, I believe the strike vote was January 16th, I think. Anyways, um, they went out on strike uh, primarily because they are looking for a dollar an hour raise and uh, some Im- improvements to their health coverage. Were they getting um, hazard so, pay? No. And, and Were they so ever getting hazard pay? I don't believe so. Uh, I'm pretty sure that they were not. Um, However, the owners of uh, the market received 15 million in PPP from the government. The Paycheck Protection uh, Act. Payroll Protection Act. Yeah, exactly. Which so you would think that that might go to supplementing the uh, payroll payroll (laughs) or PPE. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, so the uh, it really came to a head on 
Monday on Martin Luther King Jr. Day um, when the Teamsters that were on the picket line were preventing trucks from entering the uh, the market unloading docks and the New York City police were called and they arrested eight of the Teamsters, um, you know, and, and uh, uh, harassed the rest of them into um, leaving, you know. Uh, well, well, I don't understand, the but the, the, we're told that uh, Lynch, who runs the police union in New York City, he's a union guy. Whenever the police are in trouble, we always hear from the police union about solidarity. Really? So the right. police union, the police union didn't come out in favor of the striking uh, uh, teamsters. Shocking, Interesting. I uh, shocking. I know. It's almost as though uh, the police union has is servicing some some other cause other. than than the labor movement. Hmm. Right. Right. Exactly. It's almost as though and, the police you know, have their alliance with another sector of our economy. Hmm. <laughs> After we evaluate think, uh, the police union. I, I I think that you know it's it's easy to um, uh, dis, disparage the IWW for uh, its stance on uh, its very strong stance against bosses and against the police, and um, you know that's what drew me to it. However, uh, when we started off the conversation about, you know, the, the strength of labor and, and all of that, I, I think one of the primary issues is, is that the labor movement, when you think of like AFL-CIO um, and, and some of, uh, of the largest organizations out there in regard to labor, they've done themselves such a disservice by uh, aligning themselves with these police unions, um, uh, signing no strike clauses and uh, and so many other options and tactics that that are some of the few things that workers really, truly have to defend themselves and their rights that have been sold down the river by these union bosses and, and that's you know that's a, a big part of it is is if we're gonna truly bring uh organized labor back to the united states we need to get out from underneath all of the bosses including the the labor union bosses so. what, what is the i was just watching uh the irishman again such a great movie and when I was a kid, the Teamsters, if you supported the United Farm Workers and and uh, Cesar Chavez, you were no fan of the Teamsters, that they were corrupt. But then there were consent decrees and Hoffa went to prison and and it was supposedly cleaned up. Is is are the Teamsters now a good organization? I. I will say that um, they're not a monolith. Right. Uh, you know, I, I, I mean, I don't, I don't claim to know enough about the internal workings of the Teamsters to be able to say how clean or not they are. However, um, I appreciate the 
fact that the Teamsters are one of the few large unions that are still willing to uh, go strike. To strike, you know, um, which is the role is of government common. Good, a competent left of center government would install a Justice Department and a labor secretary who protected unions from themselves. You would have a labor secretary who would go in and make sure that the pension funds were being run properly, that the fiduciary rule is restored, that uh, that that unions are not corrupt. That that's the role of a pro-labor government is to help unions from getting corrupted by mobsters. I think that there is some point to that. Um, however, I also think that um, not unlike our our system of government itself, um, you know, the business model of unions that was uh, really adopted in you know in the Taft Hartley era. Uh, has it in its system built in this, uh, you know, thirst for power. And, and so one of the things that is very different about the IWW is, is that we, we don't have a paid administrative uh, structure. It is all about direct action on the floor uh, by the workers. And, and that prevents there from, or it, it does a pretty good job of preventing there from being those one or two people that, that are trying to um, take over and, and utilize the organization for their own bidding. Um, you know, the IWW uh, was way, way ahead of its time in terms of uh, accepting people of color uh, women, immigrants. Um, I recently was interviewed by a high school student about Joe Hill. And uh, uh, I know you love music and, and you know, Joe Hill is uh, known uh, throughout folk music for his songs uh, that he would travel the country uh, joining picket lines and, and helping to boost morale. And uh, one of the reasons he joined the IWW is he was an immigrant. It's the only union that would have him. Um, you know, at the very first IWW convention, uh, we had women, Mother Jones, who uh, the you know magazine now is named after, who led. So where the is the left? Strikes. Where is the left? AOC is out there with so, at Hunts Point. Are we seeing solidarity? Are we seeing, I hate to put down the kids from Brooklyn, but they're easy marks. Are we seeing the, the Brooklyn leftists traveling to the Bronx and supporting the brothers and sisters in the Teamsters um, Union? There, there certainly has been. Um, and, you know, I, I agree. I, I, I don't, know if it was uh jim or who that was uh it was one of your earlier guests that that said you know it's um a good idea that we do our best to support 
AOC and the right. squad because, you know, it was um, Ben Burgess. For the gov- yeah. Ben Burgess. Ben, lay, yeah. lay off the squad. They, it needs to get bigger. Don't feed. Right. Don't feed on them. And, you know, I while I I think that ultimately we need to um, we need to deal with the broader issue of the power that our government has over us, um, at least while it exists in the form it does, we need to have more people like AOC, like Bernie Sanders, you know, uh, like the squad in general. And I, I think that AOC showing up on the picket line the other day um, wasn't just a photo op for her. For her. You know, I, I truly believe that that she feels that that the route that she is taking is the best. That's who she is for her to take. That's who she yeah, is. I, yeah. You know, I mean, I, I I love all of the um, memes, including the one that was just made of you, of Bernie and his and in his jacket and whatnot. Um, and I love the fact that that uh, Bernie's own social media has been reposting them because he knows this is who I am and I'm not trying to not be this. And I, I think we need more of those sorts. Where's of Barack Obama? Where's Michelle? We're partying it up with Bush. Uh huh. Where where I, where are they? They're you know I go to Payday Report. Mike Elk does a great job at Payday Report, and he keeps track of all the the strikes going on in this country. I think there's something like twelve hundred strikes at any given time. All it takes is a couple of politicians to go march with the workers. You know, George Clooney said. Okay, if the paparazzi is going to follow me, I'm going to Sudan. Smart move. Yeah. Where are the Hollywood celebrities? They're busy at the effing inauguration. Lady Gaga should have been, you know, with the Teamsters. Right. You're getting photographed. Go march. Go march with the the McDonald's workers who are fighting for $15 an hour. What are you doing going to an inauguration that's being funded by Pennsylvania union-busting law firms? Well, you know, maybe John Stewart was going to have a, uh, a fundraiser out at his ranch. <laughs> I can't believe you brought up John Stewart because he was in the parade. <laughs> and I was told when I had my problems with John, uh, the Writers Guild told me that he hired a notorious union busting attorney. And I and I wonder if John's union busting attorney uh, was part of the cabal that funded the the Biden inauguration. He was in the parade, supposedly, John. It's always good when yeah. a political satirist yeah. is in the pocket of <laughs> the most powerful man in the world. It's a way to punch up there, John. Exactly. Yeah. I figured you'd like a, an excuse to talk about that. <laughs> so, um, in regard to uh, the the Teamsters uh, are out on strike right now, um, you know, uh, we at the IWW are certainly uh, um, in solidarity with them and uh, 
um, you know, I know that quite a few of our members that live in uh, New York City have been down to the picket lines, and I certainly encourage anyone that is in the area to go and show solidarity for them. I mean, it's it's almost um, it's almost laughable how little they're asking for, and how I think it's like a dollar an hour extra for their yeah. health care, right? Yes, that's it. Yep. Yeah. And and I can't I really can't fathom how much money is being lost to not give them that, um, you know, but that's unfortunately the, the well, way that if you're a vegan or a vegetarian, I know New York is lousy with them. Sixty percent of your produce comes through Hunts Point. Yep. These are the people Absolutely. who are unloading the trucks and making sure that you get your cauliflower and your Brussels sprouts delivered. Now, one one, one uh, uh, big win for me uh, personally, I, I, you know, I, I'll, those of us in, in the uh, flyover states like to make it all about us whenever we can, <laughs> um, is there, there was a, uh, uh, freight train from Ohio that uh, was on its way there to Hunts. And when the uh, staff on the locomotive found out that it was being struck and they are also Teamsters, they turned the train around and, nice. and came back without unloading. Um, and also being that I'm a vegan, uh, you know, I, I appreciate that uh, we all need to get our produce and whatnot, but it's more important that these workers have their health care. Hunts Point Produce Market, 772 Edgewater Road, Bronx, New York, 10474. And if you want to show solidarity, put on your mask and go to 772 Edgewater Road, Bronx, New York, 10474. That's the Hunts Point Produce Market, where 1,400 Teamsters are on strike for what, a dollar an hour? Yep. I guess that's instead of watching the inauguration and banging my head against the wall, I should go out there, shouldn't I? Yeah. Yeah. You could do a remote from there. Yeah. Okay. Andrew Miller, would you come to office hours? I, I had Professor Ben Burgess on, and they don't teach the history of the labor movement in America, in America, do they? No, not at all. Would you come to office hours and start teaching the history of uh, the labor movement to us? Sure. I, I'd be honored to. All right. I'm going to talk to you uh, tomorrow. We do office hours. Okay. You haven't been to office. It's, it's morphed into something really special. We do. Oh, nice. Yeah, it's half hour blocks now where we, for the most part, have people teaching something. It can be anything from cool. how to fix a lamp to how to cook squirrel pie to 
the history of the American labor movement. It, it's 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 spectacular. And then once a month, we're going 24 hours. Oof. And we have a sponsor, No Evil Foods. Have you heard of them? They're, they are so great. No Evil Foods. <laughs> They are, there is, they are so, I don't know what their union policy is. (laughs) Did any, what's happening with, what what is happening with No Evil Foods? We have to do a follow up. You know what we should, you should come. If you can come Friday night at nine, we start at eight now. So uh, we should, we should start working on uh, No Evil Foods. What happened is we dropped the ball because there was an existential threat to the soul of our existentialism. And now we have Joe Biden who fought for the soul of America and he's going to heal this uncivil war. His whole soul is in it. Yeah, his whole soul is in it. <laughs> and and he's going to he's going to reach deep, across deep the aisle. In it. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, did has no evil foods? Are they uh any um, any movement there? Uh, no, it's, uh, there's been some laughable moments, um, but, uh, to focus on what good came out of it was that, um, workers, uh, organizing for the, um, animal defense league, uh, another group that you would assume would be pro worker that isn't um their organizing efforts um they have reached out saying that they've learned a lot from from watching what happened with no evil foods and so um you know i'm willing to say the name because they are public which i think is unfortunate because i think they probably could have done some more organizing before going public um to be in a stronger position, but I appreciate the fact that that they've reached out and and talked about how much they how much they appreciated the coverage of the no evil food situation, right. including that that was on your show because right. it's really we need to them. revisit that. Come back to office hours, and we, we need to support sure. uh, no evil foods in their war against workers. If uh, if you're a vegan and you love animals as much as you hate people, then you'll eat the food from no evil. You'll, you'll partake in no evil foods. The union busting company that gravitated to a right to work state. And uh, did the National Labor Review Board, do we know how, what their ruling was? Oh, yeah. Yeah. The, uh, the workers won their uh nlrb cases um, against no evil foods against no evil so foods. no evil foods um, officially punished the strikers which correct. is against the yes. law and that was recognized by the national labor's review board so it is not incorrect for me to report that no evil foods is anti-union and violates correct. their workers rights correct okay. and uh 
they they were forced to hang up signage that included some of those workers uh names explicitly on there that they had violated the rights of and and uh several other wonderful things that uh you you love to see uh happen to people that union bust and break the law yeah that's noevilfoods.com uh follow them on facebook Instagram and Twitter, No Evil Foods, and let them know that you hate unions and humanity just as much as they do. And everybody should, everybody should eat, everybody should buy food from No Evil Foods because they hate the working man and women. And if you hate humanity as much as I do, you will go to noevilfoods.com and exhibit solidarity with the union-busting management of No Evil Foods. I cannot support noevilfoods.com enough. They do great work destroying unions. They're good people. Let them know that you, too, are anti-human. Andrew, I'm going to call you tomorrow, try to get you to come to office hours. Sounds good. Thank you. Thanks. So How do people follow so you? How do people on. contact you? It's good to see you again. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm on Instagram at uh, x Andrew Miller X or uh, website Andrew Miller dot com. Okay, kind of disappointing to discover that a union guy has a cat, but uh, <laughs> the hypocrisy. They wonder why the labor movement <laughs> is in trouble. Yeah, I have a dog too. Yeah, so, but you know, you know cats, equal time. <laughs> I don't. I don't think a cat would march with you. Thank you, Andrew. <laughs> Thank you. Let's bring in. Oh, this is good. I'm happy. Professor Marianne Cummings, Professor Adnan Hussein, Professor Jonathan Bick, and Professor Ian Faluna. You're all here. We have we have an hour. I think this is great. Uh, hello there, Professor. Let me say hello to... There we go. Uh, well, let me... Jonathan Bick, Professor Jonathan Bick is a political scientist. Professor Marianne Cummings is a physicist. She's also a parks commissioner at Aurora, Illinois, in Aurora, Illinois, the second largest city in Illinois. I don't know what the first is. Nobody will tell me. Professor... Ian Faluna is, I'm going to get this right, you're a, a meteorologist, is that correct? Yeah, sure. Am I, am I screwing that up? You no, teach? That's what, what do you, yes. what, what, what exactly do you teach? So I get this right. It's, uh, I teach uh, atmospheric science, so generally how weather works, how climate works, and I teach uh, atmospheric chemistry, which is how air pollution Works. Atmospheric chemistry. I apologize for not getting that right. No, no. And Professor Adnan Hussein joins us. He is chairman of the religion department at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, host of the Mudgeless podcast and Guerrilla History. Welcome all. Let's start with Professor Marianne. Mm-hmm. Normally, I uh, ask the professors to bring a story that they want to talk about. I don't know if you came prepared, 
or not. Mm-hmm. You, you do have something you want to talk about, Professor. Yeah, Good. It's, a, it's an interesting little story. Um, not such a little one. Turns out that West Virginia uh, leads the nation in getting its population vaccinated in a time, West Virginia. And so I, I, that got mentioned on a Twitter feed someplace. So I kind of looked into it yesterday. And it turns out uh, all 50 states, all 49 states, except and not Virginia, have all entered into this government agreement with Walmarts and CVS to distribute the vaccines. And it turns out there's not many Walgreens, Walgreens rather, and CVSs in Virginia. There's just a lot of little, uh, you know, small drugstores. So they decided that they weren't going to be part of that, that they were going to organize vaccine distribution themselves, the state of, of, of West Virginia, and they used their National Guard headquarters to kind of coordinate it. And it's turned out that they got more people vaccinated faster. They're waiting for the next batch of vaccines to come. Hmm. And, you know, and so this is just kind of an example of, you know, the the problem with dealing with Walgreens and CVS, you think there's one in every corner. Great. That'll be, you know, that, that that'll be very con- uh, convenient and fast. No, you've got another whole bureaucracy to deal with. I'm looking at a chart now of yeah. the top 10 states in terms of uh, yeah. those who've gotten their dose. West Virginia, followed by Alaska, South Dakota and North Dakota. It's now closer to 10%. That looks like, because uh, I'm reading an article from uh, just a couple days ago. So the so. top four, I would assume, don't have too many Walgreens or CVSs there. Well, you know, this is just kind of a little thing that whenever, and, and I don't know why um, I got interested in it. I guess it was because I was so irked by listening to Larry Summers child rapist i'm going to say that every time i see his name oh because he went he went to pedo island with not only that he's he's named in that uh, in that deposition of virginia gaffray the one that got that has landed uh maxine uh Ma- elaine maxwell in jail she she's went to bed with uh went well, to bed she, she was raped by uh chris andrew right she was uh, shopped to Prince Andrew, and they made much of that because, A, Prince Andrew made a very unfortunate uh, interview with the BBC, but he's a foreigner. But what they don't mention are the other people mentioned in her deposition, which include uh, George Mitchell. I don't think half the people on this. Uh, the senator from Maine. Senator from Maine that was, I think he was special envoy under Bill Clinton to uh, broker the North uh, Ireland peace treaty. So George Mitchell, um, the former governor of New Mexico. Who was Bill Richardson. The, Bill Richardson was the secretary of energy. Larry Summers. And Pedo Man, Epstein had a ranch in New Mexico, right? Uh, I don't know. He had a lot of properties everywhere. That's what Ghislaine Maxwell was telling people she was doing. She was managing like about 25 different properties of his. So anyway, it is uh, it is astounding to me. Now, I might have given him some slack. That would be Larry Summers. If after Jeff Epstein's conviction, after he did his quote unquote time in (laughs) effectively under house arrest for about a half a year or a year. 
for ch- for uh, child prostitution. Why isn't that just child rape? You can't have child prostitution. It's right. child rape. Right. So, uh, but Epstein is a, was a very big donor, or his uh, hedge fund was a very big donor to Harvard's endowments. So during that time, he's you know, he's got an office at Harvard. You see him in 2010 and 2011 with pictures with Larry Summers, with Bill Gates, with Elon Musk. You, you see them with a whole bunch of allworthies that you know go to these Harvard get-togethers. And it's just astounding to me that these people, you know, like. They got rid of. They, they threw somebody under the bus. Uh, Deutsche Bank has admitted this past year was like the most astounding thing. At yeah, they admitted that yeah, uh, they solicited his business and so on and so forth. But Larry Summers, of course, has come out and said an asshole thing, like he doesn't think that the two that it's a good idea to send desperately poor Americans a two thousand dollar stimulus check. They're worried that the economy is going to overheat. This, this economy would overheat. But, you know, meanwhile, there are 80 million Americans who could use some heat right now. And of course, you know, the problem is it's so obvious because I I don't know why this particular episode uh, or or article about uh, why West Virginia did so well with the with the covid vaccine distribution. But, yeah, somebody like Larry Summers would see the distribution of money in terms of what companies like he represents or was represented to the endowment of Harvard could make off of this, what companies like CVS and Walgreens would make off of this. So, of course, you know, he would rather it be to the states because the states make big contracts with companies. But if you just give it to people, they might just spend it down at the local grocery store or restaurant. And that will result in inflation. Yeah. Rampant inflation. Rampant inflation. It is, just, you know, it's just, I think Larry Summers, it's just to me, it's just a symbol of corruption in this society. The very highest levels. Harvard, Jeff Epstein, privilege, child When rape. they get interviewed by George, and then I'll ask the other three yes. people here if they want to ask you a question. When Larry Summers is on with George Stephanopoulos and he says... I'm worried about the economy overheating. You would think George Stephanopoulos would say, why? Why? What are you worried about? Well, I'm worried about inflation. And and why is inflation? What is inflation? What concerns you about inflation? Well, prices will go up. Yeah. What else will go up? Well, What, what workers will charge? Workers will ask for more money because if the economy overheats, that means there's a shortage, I believe, of labor. If the economy is on fire, everybody's working so they can charge more for their labor. I'm sorry, Professor Uh, Faluna. Yeah. Why doesn't Stephanopoulos ask? Why he's not worried about the Arctic overheating and the lack of sea ice up there, for example. No, like George Stephanopoulos doesn't get 15 million or whatever they pay him a year to get at the truth of anything. You know, he's paid to maintain a narrative and to normalize a really hideous oligarchy that's bordering on, well, at least genocide. I'm sorry. 
at least Mussolini's dip, uh, definition of fascism, which is just basically a coalescence of large corporate interests and government interests. Professor Hussein, do you have a question you want to ask Professor Marianne or Professor Bick? So, um, go ahead. Oh, go Sorry, ahead. Go ahead you go ahead, Professor Bick. Okay, so uh, I'm surprised to hear you say, you know, about uh, Walgreens and CVS, because in Massachusetts here, we are lousy with them. Uh, but we're doing a very lousy job of uh, distributing the vaccine. And we were not on that uh, on that chart that uh, David uh, put up earlier. Uh, we're not doing well. Um, so what, what was it? How exactly did they do it in West Virginia that? Uh, well, they, got, they, they had control. I mean, basically, this the government and, and the governor himself said, look, you know, if we were to have gotten into this government agreement, federal government agreement through Walgreens and CVS, we wouldn't have control over distribution. As it is, you know, the, the uh, West Virginia National Guard is in charge of the distribution and they're getting into the poor areas. They're getting into the hard to get areas. They're getting into the you know most at risk population. Um, yeah, I've got the little map. Let's see. Uh, Massachusetts on this map is 5.1% first dose, 0.7%. Virginia is like 9.4%. That's the biggest in the country. Uh, first is dose. Is that Virginia or West Virginia? West Virginia, excuse me. Alaska? Yeah, Alaska is close. Same thing. I mean, both Alaska and, and West Virginia are, are fairly close. Well, uh, Professor Bick, you live in Massachusetts. You've got Romney Care, which is supposedly Obamacare. They're not handling COVID well? Uh, no, not from the statistics that I'm seeing. Uh, we're... I mean, just recently, we're starting to head a little bit in the right direction, but it, uh, we were hit very hard at the beginning, and then now we're, we are hit uh, hard again. And the uh, distribution of the vaccines has been problematic. How is Romney care? I think that it's uh, better than not having it, for sure. Uh, but it has its problems. I mean, it's expensive. Uh, the plans can have high deductibles, high costs, um, co-pays. You know, depending on how much you earn, uh, it can get very expensive. Okay. Interesting story. Thank you, Professor Marianne. Did anybody else come with a story? Professor Faluna, do you have a story you want to talk about? Professor Hussein? Professor Beck, do you anything you guys want to bring up? Well, I just uh, the thing that you know, I've been doing a lot of work lately, so my head's in the atmosphere. So, but your head's in the clouds is what you're saying. Anywhere around clouds, all around, yes, but up, up, up. So, but something that happened interesting was this this uh, rapid warming in the in the uh, Arctic stratosphere which doesn't sound that wild, but um, what it does is it wobbles off the axis, the, the polar axis of the polar vortex. And what this means to, to people in northern latitudes is that you get these really wild swings in, in weather. So you get this sort of extreme, extreme weather events, which they're thinking might be 
uh, propagating through the world in the next, or through the northern latitudes in the next, uh, through in the middle of, through the middle of February. <clears throat> but it happened because of this this sudden warming, and it's you know it's definitely part of the the warming that's going on. Twenty twenty was officially now the warmest year. I think it tied twenty sixteen with the warmest year we have on record. The Arctic's warming twice as fast, and so there's a lot less Arctic sea ice. Um, and so this facilitates these kind of wild Arctic um, sudden stratospheric warmings, which will just play out in terms of the people we know, the feldosphere might be experiencing this at higher latitudes, some mm-hmm. crazy weather in the next couple of weeks. Um, so that's kind of what I've had on my mind. And are you optimistic with Biden? He canceled the Keystone XL. We're back in the Paris Accords. Is this... A grain of sand. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's a grain of sand. It's baby steps. I mean, it's baby steps. And, and I have to say, I mean, what what Trump did to the EPA, just from my own colleagues and, and my own work, I see the effect was really severe, really wide ranging and severe. I mean, he slashed it by something like thirty percent, and um, that's going to take a while to rebuild. And there's a lot of, um, you know, the, basically the gains of air, in air quality we've seen over the past few decades completely stalled out um, in the past few years. And, um, you know, it's just so, yeah, of course, it's better, but it's like we're not anywhere near where we need to be in any of these regards. But, you know, and there's talking you know, about the Paris Climate Accords. Everyone's like, "Woo, that's great. But the Paris Climate Accords were totally feckless. And that was in large part because of. President Obama's, his push with his fossil fuel lobbyists, they made that thing, they watered it down actively. So, yeah, it's better than a sharp stick in the eye, but we need to do a lot more than, than this. So, And I'm reading about carbon. I, yeah. I'm reading that Wall Street is investing billions into carbon capture. And we've talked about this. This is just an opportunity for Wall Street to sell meaningless crap, which they're notorious for. They're bundling carbon capture the same way they bundle bad mortgages, right? There's there's no upside to carbon capture. Well, right? basically, their plan, and uh, my friend uh, John Lash wrote a column for- We have to have him on the show, by the way. Yes, we we will talk about that too soon because he would be great. Probably with Howie Klein because Howie Klein knows him from- Or you, or you. Or myself. Yeah. Uh, Probably get more listeners with Howie. But, uh, you know, this was- this There was a uh, plan through the Senate a couple years ago, two or three years ago, called the Use It Act. And that was a fossil fuel written- green energy, which uh, which basically uh, featured this carbon capture and sequestration and enhanced oil recovery, which is like hydraulic mining for oil that's, uh, who's, that's already been drilled. It is just a giveaway. And in fact, uh, it's not surprising that the, the Biden team has basically adopted that as their primary. And, and it, so a lot of the uh, energy for this very expensive time consuming capture would be provided by uh, by uh, array of solar, solar panels and some of the environmental assets. Well, this is a rather expensive system. Why don't you just put those solar panels 
on people's roofs. And then you don't have to need this whole big, you know, petrochemical plant. But anyway, it's uh, yeah. I want How to bold a move was it to cancel the XL pipeline? Given it wasn't that- a bold move at all. It had right. been already held up in courts. Okay, so let's uh, let's go back. The um, the Keystone XL, as opposed to the Dapple pipeline, that was uh, had many components. At it. it started construction in 2010, and many of the stretches of pipeline are already built. But the one big one between Alberta and Montana wasn't. So after a lot of pressure, uh, Obama sort of put the project on hold for environmental review. Uh, when, when, of course, when Trumpy got in, he, he was declaiming. I remember him saying this, oh, these terrible, awful, really incumbent rules, you know, we want to get jobs to the United States. So they, he basically lifted the pause on that. However, environmental groups went right back to court. So that's been in court. Uh, it went all the way up to the Supreme Court earlier last year. It went through the the district court in Montana. It went through the ninth, and they appealed in the Ninth Circuit Court, and they just they upheld the district court, and then they took it all the way to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court just kicked it all the way back to the uh, to the district court, saying, you know, there is nothing here to appeal. You have to go through an environment. The, the issue is in something that the that the Obama administration did not do either for Excel or DAPL or any of the other seventy pipelines that they've been putting in is a full environmental review. It's got they had an expedited environmental review, and environmentalists have been in court the whole time. Of course, we've seen the great drama with the DAPL protesters; they were very brave. But uh, you know, for years, uh, Obama. The Obama administration was violating its own environmental laws over these pipelines. But even worse, these pipelines are 50 to 100 year investments in the dirtiest oil when we have to be rapidly divesting our energy and money out of this. And and this oil, this tar sands oil is sludge. It is like, you know, you practically have to mine the oil from it's not the easy oil over in the Middle East where you stick a pipe and it's just. You don't you don't even have to refine this stuff. And it's from Canada. We are transporting Canadian oil down to the Gulf, down to the Mississippi and down to the Gulf. For what? You know, it's we go through. And the two the reasons why DAPL and the XL were two big issues, because one of them, I think the 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 Keystone went through the Oglala. I won't be pronouncing it. Oglala, uh, yeah, right. Thank you. Oglala, uh, 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 aquifer, and it's one of the biggest sources of water in the Midwest, and and of course is going through sacred Sioux land. The Dapple was going through sacred Sioux land, and you know they were in vi- they were in violation of all kinds of overlapping rules and regulations. I mean, so uh, the act, Biden's act, it was symbolic, but the reality is. This the Excel pipeline was going to be held in court for so many years to get everything straight, and it's not even worth it now. I mean, they were anticipating the price of oil being one hundred and fifty dollars right. a barrel. Are we in a, in a permanent state of cheap oil? Is that in, is that well, kind of cheap if you discount all of the costs to the environment right. and the wars and, and the fracking that's being done. I mean, fracking is driving the prices of a lot of things down, but you know, this is, we're poking holes in the earth's crust. 
But is it conceivable that 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 ExxonMobil and Chevron are going to have to look at their business model and say this doesn't cut it in 10 years? Oh, there is no I don't think there is any long term from them. They pretty there's no market, really. I mean, they control they dictate the terms of the market and they'll be right there with the subsidies and everything else, because, you know, and unfortunately, but excuse me for one second, you, yeah. you kind of gloss by that. Uh, right. Is it is it safe to say that ExxonMobil is a bad investment? Oh no, because they'll always make money off what? I of mean, the we subsidize these guys to the tune of billions a year. But but and is oil is subsidize them for quote unquote R and D on carbon capture and sequestration under Biden, and it's like you know they. they, they well, I guess I, I I guess I think I speak for everybody when we hope that Exxon Mobil goes out of business, right? So, and because for many reasons, Chevron these they produce uh, <laughs> fascist regimes and. All around the world, but they're destroying the planet. So, is no, oil is oil going to just eventually become prohibitive, or it's going to get so cheap that solar and wind can't compete? Oh, well, half of us are going to die, and that's their and they're going to you know they have a business model where they're just going to deal with the world with the changed climate. I'm talking about the. Yeah, I, I didn't want to well, get well, that. Well, I didn't want to get that depressed. Think there's actually a rational free market. Just like that line from The Big Short. Look at you. You think this is a rational system still. You still have faith. It's not, you know. Well, but I would be oh, surprised. I mean, you know those internal memos that show that they, they've been talking about this since the 70s. They've known about climate change. So Since the I 50s. They've known about it since the 50s. Well, that was Al Gore's professor. Yeah, but yeah, right. So I would be very and they have, I mean, those places are just awash with money. I would be very surprised if they don't have a very active research team trying to come up with the alternative to some degree. I mean, it's not enough. It's not like a government expenditure, but they would be fools if they weren't. Oh, thinking they, about they that big thing, not only of the carbon oh, capture, but of the, the carbon cleansing. They've got they're, they're talking about technologies oh. that will extract carbon from the atmosphere, things that haven't even been invented yet. Yeah, no, I realize it's foolish. But, you know, I mentioned this last time that the with the with the uh, Montreal Protocol, I mean, the way we were able to um, so dramatically shut off the CFC emissions were was because DuPont had to substitute ready to sell. So they were, they, you know, and so I, I imagine that model has got to be in their minds. They must know at some point they're going to need to do something. The name of the game, though, is just to delay it because they're making hand over fist cash in the meantime. Um, and they feel they won't suffer the worst effects. That'll just be poor people right? in developing countries. We have, I, I, I can I, I apologize. I don't want to keep Professor Harvey J.K. waiting. Can we take a break and then come back in a half hour? Would that be rude? And then we'll get to Professor Hussein and Professor Bick. Is that? Is that... I'm always down for Harvey J. So go for it. Is that okay? Is that okay? You play the Harvey J. K. Love song. Now you're talking. All right. Twice, 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 and we'll do it. Here we go. Thank you. 
this is it's a miracle that this show gets produced. It is. It, 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 it's it's what is they what do they say about the dancing bear? It, it, the the miracle isn't that he's good; it's that he dances. So. Harvey J.K. He's got a lot a to right say about Thomas Paine and FDR. St. Peter, don't you call me, cause I can't go. Harvey J.K. is on the show today. Harvey J.K. JK wants you to be radical. He ain't dogmatical. Won't take a sabbatical. St. Peter, don't you call me, cause I can't go. Harvey JK is on the show today. Harvey JK. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Professor Mike Steinel. Go to MikeSteinel.com and pick up his music and his books. He taught musical theory at Office Hours last Friday. It was incredible. He had an overhead shot, and he taught. Fantastic. It was amazing. Fantastic. Is he up for a Grammy for that piece? I hope so. Yeah. Professor Harvey J.K.'s latest book is FDR and Democracy. Go buy it. Take hold of our history. Also go buy that. And also joining us is Alan Minsky. He's executive director of Progressive Democrats of America. And I just wanted to thank the uh, Professor Hussein and Jonathan Bick, Professor Bick, for uh, putting a pin in it. Uh, it's uh, I'm honored and in by the embarrassment of riches that I have on this show. All right, the inauguration. We'll start with Professor K. Yeah. So first of all, I'll, I'll frame the whole thing by telling you it was a day of 
of contradictions. The, the speech itself, by the way, the Black Lives Matter people at least received a, a direct nod, okay, with when when Biden spoke of white supremacy and systemic racism, and I actually heard some uh, some black intellectuals respond really favorably to that. Carl Rove was offended by that. Yes, he was. Um, I, I, I wasn't offended by anything. I was just disappointed. And this brings us to the contradiction. There was absolutely no mention of class in that entire speech. Oh, well, okay. Thank but you. Here's the contradiction. Here's what I don't get. And something's going on. They fired Peter Robb yesterday. Peter Robb was the general counsel of the National Labor Relations Board. He was, you know, it was a, it was a corporate character who actually was involved in the Patco strike alongside of Reagan back in 1981 and is decidedly anti-labor. And he had 10 more months to go on his term as, you know, head of the, sorry, as general counsel. And the Biden administration, Biden's office told him, you can resign by five o'clock after which you're fired. And they fired him. Now, that that is not a trivial thing to do. It is very unusual to put to fire someone when they have a certain number of months remaining. It annoyed Republicans. It pleased a number of labor leaders who see it as a sign of really of real possible progress. So the contradiction to me was in the inaugural address where it would have been a very effective thing to do to speak of labor, especially in areas around the Midwest, which have taken such a beating from corporate capital and corporate neoliberal Democrats and corporate conservatives. It would have been a really good sign, you might say. And, they, and he didn't do it in the speech, maybe because the speech was written really, who knows, by that John Meacham that we've talked about in the past. Yeah. But it is the case that on the very same day, as I said, he took this step and maybe maybe Alan knows more about it than I do. But I well, maybe saying, it's don't pay attention to what I'm saying. Pay attention to what I'm doing. Oh, well, that, that's a I, boy, I forgot about that. That could be. But but it but isn't. He had, <laughs> I don't he had the whole nation. He had the whole nation on television. And that would have been the moment to sort of. He didn't, he didn't have to say, you know, long live Eugene Debs or, you know, or Walter Ruth or come back from the grave. But it would have been a really effective thing to do, because I think of um, of uh, inaugural addresses as as signals, as as signals. That's, so I guess that was very upsetting to me. And also there was no real hint at what I think is important, as I've said many times on the show, that they're really should be that the Biden administration must pursue a massive FDR. Well, there's another thing. No mention of FDR. And meanwhile, by the end of the day, the Washington Post had as a major story the fact that they had already reorganized the Oval Office so that if you're in the Oval Office, the most prominent image in the Oval Office is Franklin Roosevelt. Well, you would have thought now, I mean, we could write it all off to the right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing, but it really was the case that two things that did not happen in the speech that should have all of a sudden turn up to be prominent in the news on the same day that are positive signs, you might say. By the way, there are other figures who are now adorning the Oval Office. One who is not is Andrew Jackson's picture or whatever the hell was there before is removed. But um, 
Martin Luther King, Bobby Kennedy, Cesar Chavez, and, and a host of others are now in the Oval Office. So, you know, I know, I know it's too easy to dismiss it as just symbolism, but you got to figure that it's, it's there to remind him. Cesar Chavez, I mean, with all due respect, is a failed union leader. I mean, there's been revisionism on Cesar Chavez. Yes, I, I agree. I agree. Too much religion, too much martyrdom. It's like the, he turned the United Farm Workers into a, a death cult. Yeah, I, I think I think Biden has isn't up on the current literature. Or maybe he likes martyrs in the <laughs> labor. Cult? No, we just got rid of the death cult. Don't don't threaten me with that. Yeah, don't threaten head me. Head of the former head of the Pacifica National Board, one of the great legislative bodies in the world, Julia <laughs> Chavez Rodriguez, who's who's a relation of Caesar Chavez, is in the Biden administration. She was the head of the board when I was on the board myself. About. 12 years ago. Well, maybe he should have appointed Dolores Huerta to be labor secretary instead of Marty Walsh. Although I'm hearing good things about Marty Walsh. Did you have any hope, Alan Minsky? You have to have hope, right? Um, You know, I actually, you know, I couldn't stay away and I watched your dialogue with Ben Burgess. And, you know, um, I really. His piece in Jacobin is great. Yeah, well, I think there's one thing that's a little absent there, because I don't think there's a wait and build politics when you need instant action on certain things. And the thing, of course, we most need instant action on is the climate, uh, because that has a backstop that uh, is non-negotiable. And so we really need to see, we we do need to press and press and press. And I'm actually, you know, I want to see Sunrise get active very quick. I'm involved with a bunch of, uh, there's actually a very good article in The Intercept about where the climate movements are today. It was, it was published today and where they are in terms of how they're relating to the Biden administration and the groups that they basically position on the left in that article. If you go to The Intercept right now, you'll find it. It was published today. Uh, are groups that, that, I, that PDA organizes with were big, keep it in the ground. Uh, that's, that's, PD, that's basically very simple. One phrase, PDA's climate policy is keep the goddamn stuff on the ground, okay? Right. Just transition for workers immediately. Keep the fossil fuels on the ground, R&D to the high heavens to get uh, green energy capacity up to where it can replace all that it needs to replace. And probably, you know, when airplanes will be the one of the most difficult things. But, you know, right now, uh, green energy capacity is not trusted in terms of you know, having to have factories where metal is bent and you really have to boost up the energy to do what they have to do at the factories. So, but we're for keeping in the ground and we need um, the outside strategy of an inside-outside strategy to press on the climate. Now, I don't really want to see all the suffering that exists in the United States just be left also on the side per Ben's strategy. So I could have sort of debated Ben, but I, for the most part, of course, I agree also with what he's saying. But I simply think, you know, just if we want to believe that we're decent people, we have to try to lessen suffering as much as we can. I think what Professor Burgess is saying, Alan, is that that it's insanity to expect Joe Biden to reach across the aisle and fight for a Green New Deal. Well, I know we have to make him. And not only that, I do think. I think who's going to make him? Who's going to make him? That's what that's what we need. We need we need the sunrise movement and the base, the mass base of the environmental movement to remain active in the face of 
incrementalist improvements. So it requires, it requires a march on Washington, a million person march on Washington outside um, the White House. I mean, what, what would it, what are we looking at? Um, obviously, right now, that kind of mobiliz- those kind of mobilizations are difficult within COVID, especially since it would require travel. But um, I just I just do think that's important to differentiate. But it was an excellent interview with Ben, and I certainly agree with the necessity of primarying all the Democrats who clearly aren't going to move. But we do have to try to move them. Right. We had the Reverend Barry W. Lynn on, Professor Harvey, at the top of the show, and he's pragmatic, and he laid out all the the landmines, the obstacles that are. That we're up against a Supreme Court, yeah. a, a, a Senate right. that our only option is incrementalism. We, yeah. we, that as, you know, how do you go big if the system is rigged against you? I'm not. I mean, I, I do think I do think as bad as the Democratic Senate caucuses and on balance, the House caucus is more progressive and there certainly are more a much larger group of progressive champions in the House than just a very small handful. Okay, of so HR one, HR one is great. It dies and it will die in Schumer's yeah. Senate. Exactly. Well, no, so, it wouldn't die. It would pass if you had the filibuster defeated. And so we do have to pressure and force pressure upon the damn and expose the Democrats who won't even support democracy reform, you know, actually just trying to have elections be on the up and up in the United States of America, which is what HR1 and now S1 are about. So Manchin, Cinema, whoever else aren't going to go for this and they need to be exposed in that regard. Absolutely. But um, Biden on other issues will would be able if he actually, as the administration, put forward progressive policies. There would be very few of the Democrats, even in the Senate, who would break with them. So even with these tiny, slim majorities, if he actually did put forward progressive policies, they would at least now bounce up against the filibuster. Um, but again, I do want to say I, I did like Ben's interview and I thought it was a great dialogue and his points were well taken. But the one point I kept thinking he had a little bit of a blind spot on his climate. We have to get, and this is not Ben's fault. It's actually already now the outside pressure isn't strong enough even to have Ben foreground the necessity of having, we have to recognize what the climate crisis is. And here's the thing with the Biden administration and the Senate caucus and the house. There's nobody listening here right now, including Harvey, you, myself, who really can believe that six months from now, the fossil fuel industries which if it was left to the market would be flat on their back right now. Paradoxically, the COVID pandemic has been the best thing that's happened to the impact on fossil fuels in the atmosphere. I don't know if that's COVID. true, but what we'll ask, we'll ask it's, Ian Faluna about, about that. A third. It's down, no, but it's a third of the way down to where they would want it to be. So it did get cut. Not I've heard otherwise, either. but go ahead. Well, we'll yeah, find it. Wasn't, I, it wasn't as good as people thought initially is what I think it is. But anyway, um, nobody believes that the federal government will not make sure per um, uh, what uh, uh, Professor Marianne was saying that they will get the um, fossil fuel companies. The federal government will make sure that they're financially healthy. They will lift them from the dead. They will raise them from the dead. And we really have an opportunity to really damage them and force our way into expanding green energy capacity. And we're going to miss this moment. 
Well, what about United Airlines losing two billion and American Airlines losing three billion instead of bailing them out? How about giving that to Amtrak? Yeah, there we go. Thank you, David Feldman. I vote for you. Policy wonk. Did you know that? (laughs) What does wonk mean? Uh, Professor K, are you optimistic? I mean, what is the, what is the, the, the thing that. Yeah, if you, people always say, I don't, I don't call, I never use the word optimistic. I just, no, I'm not optimistic. But I do think there's reason to believe that certain kinds of actions can have consequences even now. And, but I, I actually think that if, and I think it can be done under the guise of the green, well, the guise of the Green New Deal or vice versa. I still think the way to go is a massive national infrastructure project, not project, but literally programs. And I think that's the wedge to secure some Republican votes and to hold on to Manchin. And I think under that, there can be executive orders that literally can start to create some kinds of solidarities that have been so ripped apart over these last 40 years. I think, uh, I think new deal projects, new deal, public works along the lines of the 1930s kinds of stuff. To me, that's uh, if you're going to go big and you're going to try and get Republicans to cross the aisle, that's the way to do it. I I hate to be pessimistic, but I started. You You love to be pessimistic. No, I don't. I'm not. You don't listen to this show. I'm a wide eyed. Seriously, I'm a wide eyed optimist. I I felt really pessimistic this morning. I was reading. Yeah, it seems like everybody's gone back to their respective corners. And it's like Hollyfield versus Tyson. You know, Hollyfield was headbutting. And uh, so Dyson bit his ear off. Go back to your respective corners. Maybe they'll stop this fight, but there'll be a rematch. And with Karl Rove complaining about Biden bringing up racism, everybody's just back to what they were doing Look, before. Seriously, I, I, I'm, I'm optimistic. Sorry. Oh, I use a dirty word. I'm sorry. No, I, I'd like to be optimistic. I, I just see the same I, games I being hopeful. played. I think that I think the executive orders were, were a good start yesterday. I think the fire I seriously believe the firing of that man that they paid that attention and fired him was a really good sign. Uh, and I I also think that uh, we're going to see additional executive orders that matter. Look, I'll tell you what really gives me hope. I believe that Bernie Sanders at the head of the budget committee in the Senate is going to make a major difference. Is he going to be the head? He, yeah. Oh, he is going to be the head. You bet. If, if not, then all bets are off on everything as far as I'm concerned. And and I think Schumer will probably bend in his direction because it, remember, it's New York State. Bernie's not a New Yorker, obviously, other than by birth and upbringing. <laughs> but it is the case that that New York State is ready to go is ready to go left. And uh and I, I think Schumer knows it, and he's going to want to protect his own seat. I mean, it's the case that I'm not saying somebody will beat him, but he doesn't want to look like a fool in, this, in, in the next go-around when he has to run. I, I, I think Bernie being the chair of the Budget Committee is, is, a, is a major breakthrough. I really do. All right. The first, you are the world's leading expert on FDR. Yeah. 
the first 100 days. You measure a president by the first 100 days, yeah. right? Yep. Well, that's, that doesn't even require me to do it. That's generally what we've been doing these last several administrations. He had a, he had a filibuster-proof house, right? There's well, no House doesn't have a filibuster, so that's... Uh, I mean, a Senate. Yeah. Who does? He does. No, Roosevelt did. Well, yes, but 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 he had the Dixiecrats. But he had but exactly he had but the Dixiecrats. All of those committees were chaired by Southern Democrats who wanted the money of the federal government, but not if it meant any kind of desegregation. So they had to be very 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 careful as they crafted things, and at least at the out, I mean, you know, at the outset, even before the so-called major Second New Deal of 1935. Programs like the Civil Works Administration and, well, the original one, the Federal Emergency Relief Act, actually did have integrated, well, semi-integrated workforces in the South. And black, there was a black sub-cabinet. But to, be more, to get back to the, my idea, I still think that if we're going to judge him on his first 100 days, the way he has to launch the first 100 days is first the pandemic must be addressed. That's, re- that's relief. And then the question of recovery must be pursued in terms of major public works with job guarantees for all those who want it with a minimum wage of a very minimum wage of $15. I mean, I see, this is the way it's got to go. And I, I, don't know, I don't know who's in his office that's telling him this. I would hope somebody is there to do that. But Bernie's in the bu- chair of the budget committee. And you know for a fact that they've got to be in regular contact. It's, it's got to be the case. Alan? Yeah, he ended up, it, 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 David, he's ended up in a very, actually quite a powerful position. Very, in fact, it, yeah. made, it really is, is as important as Manchin in all this. You're talking about Bernie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, oh, and, and with, if it's budget, you can do reconciliation, right? That's right. He oversees the reconciliation yeah. process. Which means you don't need to worry about a filibuster. You can pass a simple it majority. So it doesn't apply to things like HR1, S1, the democracy. But you can sneak things into appropriations bills that nobody knows about, and it passes with a yeah, simple majority. I don't think the Republicans are going to let the, the, the very fabric of the way they steal elections get snuck into any bill, um, nor are they going to let the immigration bill, which Biden is uh, also highlighting, which is great that he's highlighting it, but that's going to be very difficult. Obamacare to, got passed through reconciliation. That that's, has much a much stronger budgetary component than those other two yeah. things. So, you're, you're that, so it's in the details. That we 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 will we won't know what what they've been able to accomplish until when. I just want to highlight what Bernie can do, though. Something comes through for reconciliation; he can make sure for it to get past his committee that it has things he wants in there. Right? Yeah. No, I'm telling you this. The, okay, this the is public, good. The public works projects. We'll have no trouble being a you know, budget reconciliation endeavor. And you can build into that a lot of things that will literally set a model for the economy. 
it's a that's how they can do it so that he might not even need to issue certain kinds of executive. But, but here's before what if you have guaranteed health care when you have a federal job through the federal job programs exactly and any public any private employer who gets a contract on the projects must fulfill these kinds of things it was, they fdr did it and they can do it today they can even make sure that every single employer must recognize the rights of it of their workers to organize they can just build it right in now here's the question ezra klein had an interesting piece in the times today yeah, it was weak, ultimately. It was a typical liberal, but it was good. But, but his complaint against Obama was that Obama didn't brag. He thought policy was more important than politics. Will Biden, if what you're saying is true, and I hope it's true, that Bernie's able to sneak all these progressive items into our appropriations bills, will Biden be a schmuck and not run on this stuff, or at least in 2022, will he let the world know what Bernie accomplished? Because that's how, isn't that how you win the midterms by telling? Why would, why would he be a schmuck? Why would he Because Because Obama, according to Ezra Klein, was a schmuck in 2010. And well, didn't, Obama didn't lose because he failed to tell people. Obama <laughs> failed because he didn't involve anyone, but oh. two senators from Maine. That's why he failed. Okay. Obama ran Obama. Look, the Obama presidency failed. I mean, a number of us. Well, I wrote about this in 2010 and I said, look, first of all, Obama brought in a bunch of historians to advise him who were all the likes of John Meacham and, you know, and Doris Kearns Goodwin. And they all talked to him about top down kinds of things. And what did Obama do? He pursued he pursued so-called, you know, Obamacare. And what did he do? He negotiated with two senators from Maine. He literally alienated people in the process. What else did he do? Did he ever, ever create the kinds of programs that he seemed to promise the young people who rallied to him with, yes, we can. You want to win an election? You engage and you empower your fellow citizens. And Obama did nothing of the sort. Mm -hmm. And that's why I think this public works thing is the only way the Democrats can transcend this crisis. All the... All the other stuff that the Republicans would block, they can't they would not block the public infrastructure because then they can say the Democrats, these people don't want you to have jobs. Right. Well, the way the neoliberals rewrote history is that Obama lost in 2010 because he wasn't a braggart, that, that the stimulus bill and Obamacare were massive progressive lurches to the left. But Obama figured Americans would figure that out all by himself. All them, all by themselves. That's yeah. Well, I can tell you out here in the Midwest, people knew exactly why they didn't vote. Why they, why when Hillary Clinton came along, they had little desire to vote for Democrats. Biden is going to say, "We're sneaking leftist policy in," but if we don't draw attention to it. Don't tell anybody. <laughs> That's so. Alan Minsky is executive director of Progressive Democrats of America. Professor Harvey J.K.'s latest book, more relevant now than ever, FDR and Democracy and Pick Up, Take Hold of Our History. Thank you so much. And maybe we can get Professor K to come on Thursdays. I, I know we can't get them on Mondays for a Listen, while. For the next couple of weeks, I, I can't come on Mondays. Okay, we'll be why back. 
why don't we do this? Why don't we come back and we'll, we'll mop it up next week. We'll mop up the mop up. Okay. And, and we'll, we'll actually be at the end next week and then we can go a little longer. How's okay. And, I, and we're going to talk, I want to talk to professor Faluna and Jonathan Bick and professor Marianne. And yeah, no, I, I felt bad that we were cutting. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm, it's good. Let's hit it. Mike Steinel. Thank you. Harvey JK. He's got a lot to say about Thomas Paine and FDR. St. Peter, don't you call me because I can't go. Harvey J.K. is on the show today. Harvey J.K. J.K. wants you to be radical. He ain't dogmatical. Won't take a sabbatical. St. Peter, don't you call me, cause I can't go. Harvey J.K. is on the show today. Harvey J.K. Thank you, Mike Steinel. It's the only reason RVJK does the show. Is that true, Professor Faluna, about the environment? Wasn't that a myth about the air quality getting better because of the pandemic? Well, yeah, it's funny you mentioned that. I was just at the annual meeting of the American Meteorological Society last week, and there's a lot of talk about this. Um, the air quality, it turns out, is is a harder. It, it doesn't respond as as quickly, and it's the chemistry is complicated. So, the signs of like, for example, ozone uh, didn't really respond very systematically to the change. But I believe what Alan Minsky was talking about was CO two, right? The main greenhouse gas. So that has dropped. Um, it dropped more in the you know spring. And then it's coming back up, and it's now we're about, I don't know, 15, 20% lower than we were before COVID. Um, but that's, 
you know, that, I mean, that same thing happened in 2008. You see the same thing because of the economic slowdown. You see a reduction in, in the growth of greenhouse gas emissions for a while, and then it just ticks back up. So, I mean, that, that seems to be no way to handle the problem is, is economic crisis, right? I mean, it's just so. I, mean, I read right. somewhere I mean, that, that Zoom is actually bad for the environment. This idea of people staying home, uh, that, that your camera and your computer is a ecological nightmare in terms of the energy and the water, even the water it takes. So. Hmm. I, I don't know. I mean, I haven't, I haven't looked into that question, but I mean, I know people can see it from space. You can map these things from satellite and you can see how emissions have changed. And, you know, it does look like it has gone down from pre COVID time. Like I said, about 15% or something. If um, we change the way we trend, work, you know, this is all superimposed. If we change the way Americans work. That's not going to do it. No, we have to change the way. Right. Professor Big. Yeah, but, but is that enough? No. Thank you all for, for accommodating me. Did you have a story, Professor Big? I do, actually, yeah. So I was uh, reading the cover article of uh, In These Times magazine by uh, Mindy Eisner. And it's called, uh, Are Trump Voters a Lost Cause? And she answers that question uh, with a, a partial yes. So she says, you know, we shouldn't be focusing, obviously, on, you know, virulent white supremacists or neo-Nazis, uh, but we should be able to pull many union member households who voted for Trump back to our side. And she says, you know, about a third of Trump voters in 2020 were from households making less than $50,000, which is amazing when you consider the, the Trump policies. Um, but she's, so she says, why would they do that? And why particularly would uh, union households vote for Trump? And she notes that uh, Trump was against free trade deals. So he was very uh, vocal about opposing the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, uh, that he wanted to renegotiate NAFTA, which he did, but, you know, marginal differences in the end. Um, but Trump voters said that jobs in the economy were one of their top priorities in 2020. In fact, 84% said it was very important compared to 66% of Biden supporters. Uh, and she quotes a, a woman who voted in 2008 for Barack Obama, uh, who voted for Trump in 2016 and 2020. And she said, you can't care about policies, other policies, if you're worried about losing your house or if your children don't have food or if your heat might get turned off. And when we look at wage growth, you know, we see that it's stagnated or declined since uh, since the 1970s for 70 percent of workers in the United States. And also the job quality index, which measures you know, the, the quality, stability, uh, benefits of, of jobs, 
hasn't recovered since uh, the Great Recession in the mid-2000s. And of course, she points to the failures of the Democratic Party um, on these issues. When you look at free trade, uh, Bill Clinton pushed NAFTA through a, you know, a very hesitant Congress. He had to you know, twist quite a few arms to get it through. Uh, but ever since, the, the, the Democrats have pretty much been pro-corporate trade or pro-globalism. Sorry? Globalism. Globalism, yeah. Uh, Hillary Clinton certainly was, you know, hard to to argue with that. Um, and she lost the Rust Belt. She lost Wisconsin, Michigan, Ohio. Um, and of course, we have broken promises from her husband, Bill Clinton, when he was president. Uh, he pretended to be a friend of labor when he was running the first time. Um, but when he got into office, you know, he was pushing NAFTA, which was devastating to the to the working class and to unions generally. With Barack Obama, you know, he pushed the Employee Free Choice Act, which was also called Card Check, which would make unionizing easier and faster. Um, but once he was elected, he forgot it almost instantly. So, um, you know, this had an effect. So when Hillary Clinton was running in 2016, she won union voters by only 8% and lost to Trump. Obama had won union households by 18%, and he won over Romney in, in 2012. Biden won union households by 16%, so almost as well as Obama did. And he beat Trump in those critical uh, union uh, manufacturing states, uh, you know, Wisconsin, uh, Michigan, and uh, also Pennsylvania. So one thing is the Democratic Party has to change. You know, it has to talk to working class Americans and it has to change its stance on so-called free trade. Um, now, there are things that the unions need to do as well. They need to invest in political education of their members to explain the systemic decline that accounts for the worsening of their economic situation. And they need to show them. Uh, how to see through right-wing propaganda, which we're all swimming in, you know, from Fox News to the Republican Party, uh, talking points, and so forth. And unions need to change their strategy from a concessionary approach. I mean, they're, they're almost, at least the, the bosses of the unions, uh, are almost coordinating with, with the, uh, the owners of businesses, and to say, you know, well, what can we do to, uh, you know, keep things the way they are? But she says, we've got to go beyond that. And they need to organize people and um, explain to them, you know, I mean, what racial group has the most people living in poverty, David, would you say? What racial group? Yes. Indigenous Americans? Yes. Uh, 
in the U.S. I would think indigenous Americans are. are the oh, no, it's whites. Oh, OK. In terms of per capita or. In terms of absolute numbers. Oh, OK. Yeah. Right. So it's important to talk to them. Right. I mean, they represent the largest group of, of both those living in poverty and, and in the working class. And uh, to dis- dismiss them or to say, you know, we can have a winning electoral coalition without them is problematic. I mean, we, you know, Biden barely won this election uh, in many key states. So let me ask Professor Hussein a question. As I'm listening to Professor Bick, how many people in the Oval, the new Oval Office have college degrees? How many interns up on Capitol Hill have college degrees or are in college? If it's a prerequisite, to get, you want to get a job in a congressman's office, you have to have a college degree. I think the first step is uh, some kind of discriminatory lawsuit, discrimination lawsuit. We won't hire you unless you have a college degree. Well, every congressperson, every senator, the Oval Office should be lousy with people who don't have college degrees. Because anybody with a college degree who's working for the Oval Office for the president is not going to identify with the poor. You're ambitious. You're building your resume. They don't care. Washington doesn't care about these white people you're speaking about, Professor Bick. We have to stop hiring people just because they have a college degree. Well, is it the interns that we should be concerned about or the people we're electing their experience and um, this idea that if you're an intern, you're going to Georgetown, you're going to college, you're padding your resume. You don't give a damn about the working class. You might come from the working class, but you're climbing the ladder out. There's no identity with well, the working why. class. Nobody wants to stay. You know, Roosevelt had Harry Hopkins. They had people who who identified as working class and were willing to stay working class. Nobody in Washington, you're all there to build your resume and go on for your master's and your PhD. Indeed. Well, I mean, this is part of the, well, one of the issues is that it has also become really expensive to go to college. So this is one way of cutting through that is make it affordable and possible, in fact, free to go to a public university as well as a vocational, um, you know, and technical uh, institute. These should be established in states for trades and they should be closely connected with uh, working class unions. And I feel like Bernie sometimes didn't emphasize that enough. He was just talking college free for all. But his program, I think it was a shorthand, but his program was meant also to help people who wanted to learn a a trade, to be an electrician or a plumber or some other kind of skilled uh, trade. Um, But but, but what about the autodidacts? I mean, Harry Truman didn't go to college. 
what's wrong with hiring well there's a high school dropouts wrong with it in fact google just announced that they are going to run a six-month training certificate type program and hire people without college degrees if they Great. take their you know training certificate because they figure for the kinds of uh work that they want to hire people in certain kinds of uh technical uh elements for uh you know their their company the people don't need a, a college degree. Richard Trumka, the head of the AFL-CIO, is a lawyer. I don't, I don't want a lawyer being my union rep. I want a guy with dirty fingernails. But I'm not being cute. I really mean that. Well, yes. I mean, you've 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 uh, planted your flag, uh, the anti-Harvard contingency. And um, no, I'm not anti-Harvard. I, I think it should agree. be wiped off the face of the earth. That's right. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, and I understand that. But I mean that. I think we're 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 moving into a period actually where with so much public media on YouTube, how-to videos, um, all kinds of lectures being offered uh, that it's becoming a lot easier to learn how to do things and to master forms of knowledge than it ever was before. I obviously still feel that there are elements to a good education um, that help you sift through you know, what you see and have a critical engagement with it and being able to analyze it well. I, I'm not putting down, I, no, no, I, I'm not putting down sec, higher education what I'm saying is that shouldn't be a barrier. Lacking a college degree should not be a barrier from being an intern on what, for your congressperson or getting a job in the Oval Office. I actually think you should you, you should get a leg up. If you're not going to college, you should get a leg up on the people who uh, do. I think you're more in touch with uh, half this country, if not more. It's not there representative. Is, there definitely is a problem of our elected officials and the support services and bureaucracy in the think tanks and, you know, basically Washington. When you put it all together, there's a big gap between the world uh, that they are familiar with and that they serve and, of course, common people. That's what's driving the anger in this country. The disinterest in electoral politics, except as a, you know, graffiti on the system. So that's what Trump was, is that you want to spray paint, you know, that you think this is all, you know, a joke and doesn't mean uh, anything to you. That's the kind of politics we're seeing, you know, emerge because of that gap. So I think definitely uh, if there was a little bit more contact, but of course, what does this really um, result from? It results from the fact that politics has been completely corrupted by corporate interests. Uh, those are the interests that are defining the priorities and the policies. And these, of course, are not meant you know, for the public good in a broad sense or taking into account these. I mean, the corporate interests are the ones that bust the unions, that crush, you know, little people that monopolize further and further. Um, so, of course, we're going to see, you know, that our entire politics is oriented around those kinds of interests and priorities. And there's going to be increasing gaps. The problem is, is that we think meritocracy 
is open to everyone. That's an ideology that suggests that, well, anybody could in this society overcome all of the uh, barriers and challenges if they just go and get a good education. And, and sell their um, soul. Yes. And, and also, this is also why the retraining never, you know, we have to, when we talk about a just, just transition, we can't be talking about how we're going to retrain you to be a coder or we're going to retrain you to do this or that as if education is some kind of magical solution that's appropriate for everyone and that everybody wants to just be retrained according to the priorities of others. They have a destiny in mind for themselves and these aspirations are being curtailed and cut off. It used to be possible to have a decent, solid middle class life working nine to five in with a high school degree that's no longer been, no no longer possible and there may be good reasons for why you want everyone to be continuing to be get education but it's education for their own self enrichment for achieving their own ends not because they're forced to do it in order to remain competitive in a cutthroat environment that only privileges those who have success in these narrow tracks make better who, citizens how about educating well, people to make better citizens to be the real purpose of real education not training what's the difference between training and education training is to teach you to do a task what kind of knowledge and techniques you need in order to perform a certain function. Education, which should be available to absolutely everybody, is about enriching your mind so that you have the capacities and the abilities and the confidence to discriminate between what's true and what's false and to make judgments so that you can be a proper citizen and participate in a democracy. That's really the purpose of education. Right. And the great story about Steve Jobs is he learned about fonts at, I think it was Reed College. He became fascinated by fonts. Nobody who's teaching code and computer programming is going to sit you down and talk about the aesthetics of fonts. It's something you stumble into with a, a liberal arts college education and this idea of training you specifically for one job that may not even be there when you get out. Uh, yeah, I think politicians cannot even wrap their head around the idea that you get elected by selling something other than jobs and education. This whole thing is, you know, working families and jobs and uh how about, I don't know, something other than, anyway, is there a story you would like to talk about, Professor Hussein? Oh, well, I mean, there were a lot of things that came up in the discussion previously. By the way, the interview with Professor Horn, I, oh, I, I, I started reading one of his, first of all, you know, he, he has a law degree, mm -hmm. he has, like, like, he's like master, how many degrees does he have? Uh, but... Uh, Unbelievable that that the stuff it, it, the, the stuff about the slave trade. And uh, I've been reading about how once the market took over, the, the slave trade became even crueler than it was when it was just run by the crown. I'm sorry. Go ahead. What were you? That's right. 
Well, I'll just say that uh, uh, the good news is that uh, due to uh, popular demand, uh, he's coming back on on Monday. So we'll have a chance to really conversation. Yes. Yeah. He's he's agreed to come back on Monday. So send him a link. You had some questions. I know there were people, Rorikki, whose birthday it is today. Happy birthday. um, Wanted to ask a question, but there wasn't time. So we've got an extended period. Wow. He's returning. So. prepare your questions and uh, uh, post them to us. Great. Uh, but so there were a lot of, you know, interesting issues that were being discussed. Um, I thought it would be useful. I wondered what people thought about uh, the executive orders that uh, Biden, um, you know, put through on the first day and how to assess them. I think on in many cases, they appear to us to be rather symbolic, good steps, but not necessarily transformative um, you know, or decisive actions that will make a huge difference. Um, so I thought we might end up talking a little bit uh, more about some of those. Uh, the Muslim ban, of course, uh, that was almost the signature um, measure by Trump to define both an anti-immigrant uh, politics as well as to harness um, Islamophobia, the war on terror in this uh, uh, visceral sort of way together during the period of the height of the refugee crisis to be able to say, well, we just don't want them coming to our country um, was very decisive, I think, um, in his politics. So to have to overturn that is an important symbolic uh, measure. Of course, again, we're not talking about a lot of people. So I wonder if our evaluation of most of these acts of uh, reversal or even positive steps that Biden is taking are really principally symbolic and what what we can expect. And it would be interesting to compare what he actually did do that first day uh, with some of the lists that I had seen that were quite interesting about what is in the power of the executive Uh, power of Biden as president to do by order and uh, whether there's a huge shortfall between these uh, between these things. I think I get the sense that maybe there is um, that there's a lot more he he could he could be doing. But uh, the one story that I did want to mention is just that, you know, we were talking about um, over the summer, all kinds of Black Lives Matter, protests against police brutality. And then we also had uh, the January 6th uh, insurrectionary events on the right. And it's been kind of interesting to see how the right wing has appropriated the legitimacy of protest and violence in their politics um, and what kinds of contradictions that brings up for the left to be able to distinguish um, our politics and our uh, tactics um, in this discourse. And it reminded me of uh, what's been happening in Tunisia because there have been a lot of youth protests taking place. out of economic distress, but also uh, harassment by the police and the uh, a, a kind of uh, dissatisfaction with the way in which pandemic policy has been applied. So it really reminded me of the 
very volatile mix of issues that touched off uh, the revolution in Tunisia a decade ago. It really was almost exactly a decade ago. And we're seeing the rise of new protests uh, in um, Tunisia. The youth want a new revolution because they're totally dissatisfied with uh, what's been going on. And there are a lot of stories circulating, for example, about street popcorn sellers not wearing a mask and being fined uh, 60 Tunisian dinars, which is the equivalent. Isn't of, that uh, what set off? Didn't a shop keep a, a street? Exactly. That's what reminded me was um, a street vendor who was suppressed and harassed by the police and um, fined uh, so that he ended up in protest uh, immolate, Im- immolating himself mm-hmm. um, in this dramatic event showing the frustration and absolute despair. And as a result, uh, protests built up around uh, him um, and his example to, uh, you know, demonstrate um, how insufficient uh, at every level the society was, the government's policies, uh, the economy, the harassment by police, the unjust way in which laws are applied. I think what was interesting about the popcorn um, seller recently, just this last week, made a very key point. He said, if I had the 60 Tunisian dinars to pay this fine, would I be selling popcorn Mm. in the street? I know what a mask costs. If I had the money to buy a mask, I would use it to help my children. I can't afford you know, to adhere to this uh, policy. So this kind of anger is is um, re- the true anger, it seems to me, of, of how it's impossible to even adhere to public health requirements because people are so poor and desperate. And if governments um, don't provide the means and the mechanism for people to survive, um, public health is, is, is really going to be impossible. And this is a global question and a global issue. If we can't have people in Tunisia being able to control the pandemic, Even if we immunize ourselves, there are going to be variants that will appear all over the world that our vaccines don't provide immunity for. This is a global question. And one issue that I have is how little attention there has been about the uh, intellectual property and patenting of these vaccines. They need to be rolled out extremely quickly to be effective. There should be the possibility of generics being produced and circulated globally. Uh, You know, um, this is just uh, a requirement, it seems to me, in this public health circumstance. And there has been almost no attention about um, the politics and economics um, of the of the vaccine and uh, the rollout and how this is going to work in in the third world in the global south. And Tunisia is better off 10 years later. Is there is there more democracy? Uh, There have been um, uh, I can't remember exactly how many rounds of elections uh, they have had, but they have more freedom uh, for women, I would think. Yes. Oh, definitely. I mean, it's it's um, it's it's a society that 
has has really implemented these democratic reforms. There have been um, governments uh, that have been voted out of office. You know, we're thinking about uh, the problems of transition. You know, recently we were thinking about that here as well. And very uncommon for the Middle East, uh, most of which has suffered under uh, undemocratic, uh, monarchical or dictatorial, military dictatorial rule. Um, Tunisia has really developed democratic politics, uh, but it shows the insufficiency in some ways of neoliberal ideas that democracy is enough. Um, there hasn't been enough economic development um, to meet the needs of the of the people. And that's probably those are structural problems that could go well beyond just what um, the policies of a small government for a small country, a government of a small country can manage. Um, but yeah, it has been a success. That's the one place where the popular revolutions have been somewhat successful from a purely political perspective. In a neo, but is it more of a neoliberal? Is it still a secular country that is controlled by neo? Neoliberal liberation. Yes, I mean, well, they they, their first government did have um, the Anata Party uh, involved. I think in the lead position that formed the formed the government, but um, which is the religious, uh, you know, Islamist sort of moderate Islamist party. Uh, But in subsequent elections. they lost and they've stepped down from government. And I think that's a very important, important uh, step. Um, so, yeah, but Tunisia is an interesting place. You wouldn't think of it as um, the real harbinger of what might uh, happen in the rest of the Middle East. But it was the first, really, to bring down its government in the Arab Spring a decade ago. And we might be seeing uh, that dissatisfaction with the um, even with the, with those outcomes is boiling under the surface and that the uh, coronavirus pandemic is exacerbating, as we know that it has exacerbated inequities all around, but particularly in places like Lebanon, Tunisia, uh, Iran, we're seeing um, that uh failures to control the pandemic or uh, even the attempts to control the pandemic um, in inequitable ways is, are producing social discontent um, that may prove very consequential in the very near future. I noticed on his way out, Trump listed the Houthis in Yemen as a terrorist organization. Do we know if Biden is going to reverse that? That I was going to talk about that last week um, as my uh, my story because I noticed that also popped up, and it just shows how much this administration, the Trump administration, was committed. Um, what what was committed to disordering the world and also trying to cause problems for the future administration. I think Pompeo also has his eye on uh, political 
office, higher political office, and sees this as a way of of, of uh, serving red meat, at least in the capacity he can as Secretary of State to uh, some of the most uh, right wing of foreign policy uh, specialists, and it also attempting to exacerbate and make difficult uh, the relationship with Iran. There had been some hopeful signs um, in Biden's uh, announced policies of being interested in returning to the Iran nuclear deal that had been negotiated under the Obama administration. And likewise, we also heard um, from the Iranian side some real genuine interest of, uh, that they would adhere and um, roll back the enrichment um, programs um, that they had put in place once Trump scrapped the deal, that they would roll all of those back to adhere to the original deal without demanding, which I think they could really, in fairness, be demanding further concessions. They've basically said, we'll return to the deal and, and, and you know, start over, uh, which I think is quite amazing because elsewhere in a geopolitical foreign policy circles and international affairs, I get the sense that even though Biden is coming in, that there might be a sense of restoration to the status quo ante, that the oscillation between, you know, the madman Trump to, you know, feckless Biden. It just seems like the United States is too volatile to trust if it can have such um, dramatic and violent changes. And certainly the events of January 6th are not going to imbue allies around the world with confidence. And so we might see, um, as I think Professor Horn was mentioning, that the EU, for example, might begin to forge uh, uh, alliances and preferential trade relations with China and, and others because the United States is just not seen as a reliable partner, even if Biden is now in charge and it's back to that establishment. It's obvious that that could change 2022. Everything in Congress could be different. 2024, we could have uh, Tom Cotton. So this is quite interesting to see. Maybe so I'm the, quite maybe, impressed that yeah, I'm quite impressed the, that Iran is willing to give the Biden administration uh, uh, its trust. Maybe the International Criminal Court will do us a favor and arrest our climate czar, John Kerry, for selling arms to the Saudi Arabians and committing that would be genocide. Yeah, that would be quite a sign of uh, the decrease in uh, American prestige. The end of the empire uh, would be signaled by actually holding to account some of these war criminals. Um, but I'd much rather see uh, Bush and Blair on the dock first. Yeah, to be continued. I'd, I'd love to continue this. Uh, thank you, Professor Jonathan Bick, Professor Adnan Hussein, Professor Ian Faluna. It is a privilege. I hope to see you all at office hours on Friday night, starting at nine o'clock. And please uh, join us at office hours by going to davidfeldmanshow.com and hit the office hours. Hey, Dan Frankenberger, hit the office hours button. Are you still there? Yep. Hey, how are you? Good. How are you doing? Good. Sorry to keep you waiting. That's okay. So I have a few things for the community billboard here. Okay. And um, David by the way, did you find your glasses? I found my glasses. I lost Sorry, my, God. would my headset be anywhere where you left your glasses? 
<laughs> they can, they could be. <laughs> I want. I lost my headset. Your earbuds are, are my missing. earbuds. My earbuds actually got sick of listening to this show <laughs> and walked out on me. They, they grew legs. Yeah. <laughs> what do we have in the community billboard today? Uh, David has recently been sending out a reading list. And me, I, I have. You have. Yes. And I hadn't I hadn't seen one yet. And I thought maybe they were mixed in with some standard emails that I hadn't noticed. But um, I ended up going into my spam folder. Oh, boy. And I found them there, so I wanted to make sure everyone knew to uh, check their spam folder if they haven't seen uh, reading list emails coming through. Please subscribe. Uh, if you subscribe, if you go to davidfeldmanshow.com, you'll see a form to sign up for my newsletter. It comes out about once a week, and you get a gift for signing up. Well, when I went in my spam folder, I found uh, the emails lodged between these two spam emails. The sender was Instahard ad, and mm. the subject was... No, that's me. That's me problems getting head yeah, watch that, this that's, that's, that was me <laughs> and my side under that, <laughs> right under that was smiley face emoticon sex and intimacy smiley face emoticon and the subject was well done you've just found the best kept secret to enlarge your penis that's also me yes <laughs> um the next one uh, at the watch party for ed larson's movie how america killed my mother last week we watched the world premiere of invisible ninjas animated cartoon called before the david feldman show hysterical reading. it was awesome let's screen that at office hours yeah great okay great idea um he threw it up on his twitter which you can find uh go to at people's comic underscore to check that right. out it's a, it's a 10 minute animation and it's quite hilarious listener glenn caustic got back to me on uh, the issue from last week yeah shoddy this. journalism last week yeah, and well, you really I, didn't get to the bottom of the story so well I, i've got the details now thank you on the the scallops and dumplings dish the scallop and uh, dumplings dish Yep, it turns out it was not on a bed of couscous or farro. It was brown rice and sautéed vegetables. Hmm. So that is definitely my fault. Also, this week he made a salad. Yes. With uh, lettuce, tomatoes, bean sprouts, prosciutto, cheese, celery, and uh, green peppers, and paper thinly sliced carrots. Hmm. And the dressing was green olives, oregano, crushed red pepper, garlic, and uh, expensive olive oil. Expensive olive oil, virgin, yeah. virgin oil. Yeah. yeah, yes, virgin olive oil. Henry Huckamacki. Yes. From the Gorilla History podcast. Uh, last week, he did a great job with uh, Professor Wolf and Dr. Fraud. Mm -hmm. And uh, he did a great job on COVID Town Squares number seven wow. on Saturday. Yeah. And today, he was awesome with uh, Grace Jackson and Professor Ashok Kumar. Yes. And uh, I just wanted to give him a shout out and plug a few of his uh internet things here we got the twitter for his podcast is gorilla pod it's gorilla underscore pod and his personal one is huck 1995 for twitter and he has a cash app which is dollar sign henry huckamaki h-a-k-a-m-a-k-i right so you can send him a few bucks um tom and barb weber did a show on tuesday night their half hour show they're going to be getting their uh hour and a half long shows every other saturday going here soon we haven't started them up for this year yet but they're uh they're moving on it and uh tom has a website tomweberart.com and uh as i mentioned last time he's been doing an awesome job with some non-violence 
uh, presentations. He's been teaching at, nonviolence yeah. at office hours. It's been amazing. It's pretty cool. Um, I wanted to bring up JJ's petition. If you go to change.org. I'm against this. I'm going to fight it. You can search for David Feldman Wolf Howell soundboard, and you will find a, a petition to, to whereas all the listeners of the David Feldman show really want David to have the Wolf Howell soundboard. Yeah, going. they want Wolf Howells on the show, and I will not abide. I don't care how many people, how many people signed this petition. I know I signed it. But <laughs> to get Asshole. it started, <laughs> but I'm against it. <laughs> the goal is 100. And, we and, have and a, how many people have signed it? 74. 74 people have signed this. All right. That's right. I accidentally <laughs> signed it. I'm against this. No wolf howls on this show. But <laughs> damn you, JJ. Um, Greg Fitzsimmons has a podca- podcast. It's I did it yesterday. Well, I've been refreshing the feed. I'm waiting for it. Yeah, so you, I'm not sure you, you're responsible. Or or what? You're responsible for that. I did it yesterday. Yeah, I didn't thank you. I forgot to thank you. We want it. It is good. It was really funny. He He's great. It, it was so much oh, fun. Yeah. yeah. I've said it a bunch of times. You and him together are I my know. favorite we could have combo. Done, we could have done seven hours together. He does three different podcasts. Really? Yep. He does his regular podcast. Um, uh, he does Sunday morning papers, and he does another one about parenting. And yeah, Greg's great. Yes, Greg is great. Um, the Goodfellas quote. Oh, we have a quote from week. Goodfellas. Sure. Yes. How do I know? You said I'm funny. How the fuck am I funny? What the <laughs> fuck is so funny about me? Tell me. Tell me what's funny. Okay, so there's that. And then if you need uh, to send something into the community billboard, send it to dentfelpin at gmail.com. Dent Feldman at gmail.com. That's it. Great. Sign up for the newsletter. Go to davidfeldmanshow.com. Sign up for the newsletter. If you would like to sit in our Zoom room and be in our virtual studio audience when we're taping the show, go to davidfeldmanshow.com. Hit attend a live taping. And if you'd like to attend office hours, hit the office hours menu and sign up. If you, you just need to sign up once and then the invitation is good for, I think, forever. And I can't wait to see what will be taught. And you're good for 10 emails a week. Just sign up. You'll get no. <laughs> if you sign up, you don't get any invitations. I'll leave you alone. Uh, office hours starts at 8 p.m. Friday nights. And then after office hours starts after that. We'll ask Andy about that. Jim Earl, what, 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 what? Is that it, Dan? What? Oh, well, let me let me thank all our guests and then I'll give Jim the last word. We don't want that. Let me see if I can remember the show. Five o'clock, we had the Reverend Barry W. Lynn. Thank you, Reverend. Then we have the Marxist Power Hour with Grace Jackson, Henry Huckamacki, and Dr. Kumar. Then we had Professor Ben Burgess, followed by Dr. Ethan Hershenfeld. Ethan Hershenfeld. Then we had Bert Ross. Now my memory is going. Bert Ross, don't tell me. Oh, boy, it's a blank. Uh, Bert Ross. He doesn't need oil anymore. 
Emil Guillermo from the PETA podcast. Thank you for that hint. And then we had Mr. Miller from the IWW, correct? Yep. And then we had the professors. Do we have Jonathan Bick, Ian Faluna? Marianne Cummings. Right. And all right, so I'm doing okay. Uh, Adnan Hussein. Yes. K is right. What? K. You said K. Harvey JK. Right. And that that's right. And oh I forgot Melania Trump and Jim Earl. Yes. I, I wasn't sure if you were joking because Jim's sitting there. No, I, I, I just let you blow by it. <laughs> you know, it's it's a trauma and sometimes you block it out. You also had Martha Previtt on. I was going to get to that. That's I'm happy about that. And Martha Previtt and Melania Trump and then Professor Harvey J.K. And then we had uh, Alan Minsky and Dan Frankenberger. And then Jim Earl came on to end the show by thanking Vice President Harris. What are you eating, Jim? Uh, pistachios. A lot of water to grow pistachios. I've heard that, but that's kind of like the olive tree thing. Isn't it most of the water is used to establish the tree and then... Great job on the shard outs, by the way. They're getting funnier and funnier. Thank you, David. <laughs> they were really funny. Thank you. They're great. Was, I'm going to take all the credit for that. I love it. I love it. Uh, and and once we solve the postcards, we'll be plugging more pay-per-views. But the next two weeks, we go. Uh, in, in fact, why don't I wrap it up? Say goodbye to the people watching us on YouTube and the people listening to this as a podcast, and then uh, we'll have a quick conversation about logistics. We have a, a logistics happy, problem. Uh, happy, squirrel. happy Squirrel Appreciation Day. That's right. Oh, okay. Thank you, everybody. Remember to stay strong and protect. Don't get sick. It's time right now. <laughs> Of the David Feldman Show. Stay strong, protect the weak. Politics, a comedy too. He'll tell a dirty joke if you want him to. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a union man with an Emmy for writing. Someday he's mad and he feels like fighting. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show To get your ears on right, buckle in real tight He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way
It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. So get your ears on right and buckle in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. Before we go, before we say goodbye, PETA has announced a big victory that Exxon Mobil will no longer sponsor the deadly Iditarod dog sled race. Interesting. <laughs> now, the Iditarod, I am against the Iditarod, but Exxon Mobil has bigger problems in Alaska than dog sled races. This is how they co-opt certain issues to distract from much bigger ones. I'm glad they're no longer sponsoring the Iditarod. That's what you call performative symbolism. Exactly. We'll end it on that. Thank you, Jim. <laughs>